Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dandruff. With tell us this is being recorded live and broadcasted live on February 11th, 2023. The time right now is 11.17 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is a spontaneous show. It has been a while since we were last on. The last show we did was from January 25th to 26th. So it has been about two weeks, and I figured it was time to get a show back on because there's some things to talk about, of course, and the time is getting too long since our last episode. So even though this is not the most convenient time or place for me to do the show, I'm doing one anyway, and I just decided it on the spur of the moment tonight after I finished eating dinner, and I went to work preparing the show, researching topics, and everything like that, so... We're going to have a show. It won't be as long as the last show we had, which was one of our longest of all time. Even after the editing, it was well over nine hours. I am going to be watching the Super Bowl tomorrow. I am going to be attending a Super Bowl party tomorrow. In fact, I am in Las Vegas right now. So this show is coming to you from Las Vegas in a secret location in Las Vegas. And I am going to need to get some sleep after the show. So the archives may be a bit late. I'm not going to spend Super Bowl Sunday editing the show to put it up in the archives. So we will see when it appears in the archives, but that will be the reason for the delay in the appearance into the archives. But if you're listening live, then great. You get to hear everything as it's said. There is going to be no free roll tonight because this is a last-minute decision to do this show. Nobody knew it was coming, and it is late anyway. It is after 11 o'clock, so I have to imagine most people couldn't play anyway. So we're going to skip the free roll this week. We will have one when I do my next show, whenever that may be. I will try to make it less time than what had passed since the last show. I know I've kind of fallen into a pattern lately of taking like one and a half to two weeks between episodes. But on the bright side, the episodes have been very long. And that has been some of the reason that I have been waiting time in between because I kind of just am burnt out from doing so many hours of talking that I really don't have the urge to do another show so soon after a very long one like last week. So that's why it took two weeks. And here I was sitting in Las Vegas and I originally was planning to not do this show until like Tuesday or Wednesday. That was the next time I could fit it in. But I was just kind of thinking about tonight and I didn't really have anything going on tonight. I had something going on last night. I'm going to have something going on tomorrow. But I really didn't have much going on tonight. And I said, well, I could go and play poker or I could go gamble with something that isn't poker or I could do this show. So let's just do this show instead of gambling or playing poker. Because I know a lot of you have been waiting for it. And here we are. So, if you want to call the show, as always, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. 775-372-8355 is the number to call. You can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits on top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away by car from Las Vegas. It does have snow right now. In fact, if you're in Las Vegas, you can just look towards the Spring Mountains and you will see Mount Charleston full of snow. So the Mount Charleston line is 
among snow at the moment, but it's safely indoors in a cabin there, and it is working. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. 775-FRAUD-55 or 775-372-8355 is the main number. Remember, you can only text the main number. Don't try to text the Mount Charleston line. It is a rotary phone. It can't get texts. We, of course, have the call to listen line. The call to listen line is very simple. You just call up and listen. It's just another way you can listen to the show. It's not an interactive thing. I will not be able to hear you if you speak to me through that line. But you can call and listen to the show. The phone number is 518-931-1189. 518-931-1189 is the number to the call to listen line. It works from any phone in the world that can dial the U.S., And if you can call the U.S. for free, then it is free, unless you have T-Mobile, in which they will charge you one cent per minute, because that's considered a high-volume number. And I've heard a few other, like, cable providers might do the same thing. So if you see that on your bill, don't complain to me. But for most people, it's free. Like, for my cell phone provider, it's free. 518-931-1189. And the best thing about it is it does not require a computer, does not require... A smartphone does not require a data plan or an app or the internet. No, 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 no. Just requires a phone that can dial and it never buffers and it never freezes. Never, never, I promise you. It's a no buffering guarantee because I hate when I listen to streaming media and it just freezes up because my connection's not very good. So I made sure the call to listen line will never do that on my show. So if you call the call to listen line, it'll just work. When we are not live, the Call to Listen line will stream reruns from our well over 400 episodes that we've done in the 11-year history of this show. And you can also find those same streaming reruns if you go to the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com. In fact, the radio tab, which is near the top of the screen, near the top left, that also has all the phone numbers that I've given you in case you forgot any of those phone numbers. And on that radio tab, you can also listen to the show at any time. You can listen to the live show or the streaming reruns, which are just selected at random and run in full, and then it keeps picking another and another and another until we come back live on the air. There's a lot of ways you can listen to the show in podcast form. In fact, this is the way most of you listen to the show. You can listen on iTunes, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeartMedia, Spotify, which I recommend because Spotify has clickable timestamps because these shows are very long and I do put timestamps for all the different things we talk about so you can go to the things that interest you most if you don't have all the hours to listen. But on Spotify, you can actually click on those timestamps and it jumps to that portion of the show. So it's very, very easy to jump around to what you want to listen to on Spotify. Uh, The Bullhorn app does the same thing as Spotify, actually. Plus, it has its own call to listen line for the archives. So that's pretty interesting. The Stitcher app, we've been on that since the start. And the CastBox app, we are now on as well. The show will usually appear in the archives about 6 to 24 hours after the live broadcast concludes. But it will be longer on this particular episode. I can just about guarantee you that 24 hours after we finish, it will not be in the archives yet. And that's the way it goes. And please stop sending me text messages and emails correcting me about the word archives. I'm very aware of what I'm saying. There's a reason I'm saying archives. So please don't correct me about that or participate. There's just certain things you say on this show for a certain reason. We have a chat room. If you're listening live, you can go into the chat room and talk to anyone else who might be listening live and goes in the chat. You do need a form account in good standing to get into the chat room. 
I don't chat in there because I'm doing so many other things at the same time when I'm running this show. But you can type something in there, and every so often I'll take a look, and I will read it out here and comment on it if it's worth commenting on. You can text me, 775-372-8355. That's really the best way to comment on the show as it goes, and I will read those on the air unless you ask me at the beginning not to. But you can always text me before or after the show or during. Just any time you can text me, and I will probably respond to you. So always keep that in mind. If you have a way you want to get a hold of me, that's the way to do it is text message. I do see those texts. I do answer them. Okay, so here is the agenda, and then we will get going. Robbie Jade Lou is back in the news. She is going to return to streamed poker, but not Hustler Casino Live. So I will tell you where she is going to be seen playing poker. I will tell you when you can watch her play, and I will play the little promo video about it, and I will give you my opinion of that whole thing. Then, and the second story, which is related, I have to warn you already, it may be a gag. Some people are telling me that it's a joke, and I'm taking it too seriously, which is possible. But anyway, former Hustler Casino Live employee Patrick Curran claims that Brian Sagbixall is going to do a tell-all about the Jack 4 offsuit scandal, and that it'll be streamed after the Super Bowl. Some people are insisting this is a joke, but I guess we'll have to see tomorrow. But I will talk about it a bit. I won't spend too much time on it because it might be a joke. But I will talk about it. The full World Series of Poker schedule for 2023 has dropped. I will give you my take on the whole thing. And in fact, there are two events that I believe were added because of me. Yes, actually me. I think I had a big part in causing two events to be added to the schedule. So I'll talk about the whole 2023 World Series during that segment. Then we have some girl stories. We have four consecutive stories about women in poker. The first one, Vegas poker player Lindsay Clutt. I've never talked about her before, but Lindsay Clutt, not all that well-known, but she's a Vegas poker player. She is accusing poker player Stan Lee of calling her a whore at the poker table because of her polyamorous lifestyle. She's one of those polyamorous poker players. So I'll tell you about that whole controversy. Then we're going to talk about left-wing Twitter agitator Dr. Kamikaze, who I like to call a poor man's Vanessa Selbst. From what I can tell, she is a butch lesbian. She is very left-wing, very much like uh, Vanessa Selbst, and is a poker player, and even has, I guess, some kind of poker coaching going on, just like Vanessa Self said at one time. So a lot of similarities between the two, but uh, Dr. Kamikaze is actually worse in every way than Vanessa Self. She's more obnoxious, she's less reasonable, and she's worse at poker. So I, I didn't think I'd ever say this, but I actually found a worse Vanessa Self out there, and I will tell you about what's going on with her this week. She's in a bunch of Twitter controversy of her own creation. Then we have a Kate Hall update for you. Kate Hall is getting married again. And yes, I said again, she has been married before. A lot of you don't know that, but she has been. But she's getting married again. And her fiancé is beaming about her. In fact, he wrote a blog about how wonderful Kate Hall is. So I'm going to read some of that blog to you, and we will talk about it together. Then the fourth women in poker topic 
And I'm doing these all together, because why not? Actually has to do with both women and trans women. And I was wondering when this would eventually become an issue. And it looks like right now. A question has come up on Twitter. Should trans women be welcome in ladies' events in poker? We know that men should not be welcome in those events. Some have played anyway, and they changed the rule of the World Series to prevent it. But should trans women be welcome in these events the same way that cisgender or natural women are welcome in these events? And if so, what should determine eligibility? And the second part of that question is a lot tougher than you might think. So we will discuss that. I got involved with a whole Twitter debate about this, and uh, even though I was definitely not as hard line on one side as many others would be, I was actually trying to see it on both sides and be kind of in the middle there. A lot of people got very angry and attacked me from the uh, left-wing standpoint, shall we say, but I will give you my whole take on this. It might even surprise you some, but I'll give you my whole take on this, and then... You can tell me after you listen to that segment how you feel about it, about trans women in ladies' events. Then we will talk about Steve O'Dwyer using a poker stream. He was on a TV table for the PCA. He used it to call out airline Lufthansa for losing his bags and making it basically impossible to retrieve them, even though he knew exactly where they were. So we'll tell you about... That whole thing and how it made national news. It was actually on CNN. Another lawsuit has been filed to stop casinos from issuing separate tickets to redeem your change. This is known by some people as the Superman 3 trick, because it's similar to what the Richard Pryor character did in Superman 3 to accumulate a lot of money by stealing pennies from each employee, from each paycheck. Here, when you have a ticket that comes out of a machine that is something dollars and something cents, when you put it in a redemption machine, it will issue the dollars and then the cents you have to go bring up to the cashier to get. And most people are not going to stand in line to go retrieve less than a dollar. So the casino just keeps it. So this has been controversial, and there's yet another lawsuit now attempting to stop this. This is the second lawsuit I know of, but this one is actually aimed at Vegas casinos where the previous one was not. Then we have another Vegas casino lawsuit topic. A lawsuit has been filed against Vegas strip properties for allegedly using third-party software to fix prices. So they're trying to sue to stop this. But is this really a meritorious lawsuit? Is this a lawsuit that they are likely to win? And are the strip properties doing anything wrong? So we're going to discuss this, and I want you guys to understand something. This includes any poker or casino executives that might be listening to this. And we do have some. We do have people listening to the show who work in the casino industry. And I'm not anti-casino, and I'm not always on the side of the consumers. Sometimes the consumers are not being reasonable. So I try to look at these objectively. I don't just automatically take the side of whoever is suing the big corporation. So I did an objective analysis, and I will give it to you when we get to that segment. Jonathan Ape Styles Van Fleet, he's been around for a long time. Ape Styles is his nickname. 
He found something very, very disturbing, and he still has not solved the problem. And that is his YouTube channel and his Google account were deleted. And he had a very active YouTube channel with thousands of hours of videos, and it's all gone. Now, he may have the videos saved on his computer. I don't know. But as far as online and accessible to the public, they're gone. The whole channel's gone, and his Gmail is even gone. His whole Google account is gone, but not banned. It's just gone. So we will discuss this mystery of ApeStyle's missing Google account and missing YouTube account that's linked to it. And... I'm not going to give you a solution to this mystery because nobody has that except Google and they're not giving it up. But very weird. We will discuss that. Finally, a Reddit post raised a question, which I think is an interesting question. So that'll be our last topic. Is it appropriate ever for a poker dealer to remind players that they work for tips? Because they're paid minimum wage last I heard. And then why they end up taking home a lot more than minimum wage is because they also get tips. So if nobody tipped them, then they would make very, very little money and wouldn't be able to support themselves. So, of course, you do need to tip poker dealers, but should they remind you? Should they verbalize this to you? And if they do, what should you do about it? So that question came up on Reddit and then was shared by someone who saw it and uh, it got some traction on Twitter and got some discussion. So I will discuss it as our final topic tonight. So that is our show this week. Let's go and talk about Robbie. So we really talked the whole Robbie thing to death when it happened in the fall of 2022. And I try not to cover every little thing that happens with Robbie now because I think everybody's pretty much sick of it, including me. But I knew that there would be times I would have to cover her again. And this is one of these times because she is a major figure in poker at this point. Like it or not, she's a very well-known figure in poker. She made mainstream national news over that very controversial Jack Four offsuit hand against Garrett Adelstein, something that I won't even bother to describe again because I'm sure every single one of you knows what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then you can go listen to old shows and... You can find plenty of discussion of it, or just Google it. You'll find tons of articles and videos about it. But there is an update regarding the whole story. In fact, there's two updates. The first one is about Robbie herself. First of all, I just want to mention, I didn't bother covering it on this show, and I'm not going to cover it on this episode, but she appeared on Nick Vertucci's show in mid-January. It was called Robbie J. Lou Finally Tells the Whole Truth. And it doesn't really tell you very much new. That's why I didn't bother to cover it here. But if you want to go find that, then you can. It's on the Nick Vertucci show in mid-January. That's not what I'm here to talk about. I just wanted to mention that because I don't think I've talked about it before when it appeared. And for those of you who are very interested in this story, maybe you want to watch it. It's well over two hours. So... If you can't get enough of Robbie, you will get that there on the Nick Fertucci show in mid-January if you haven't seen it yet. But let's get to the present. Robbie Jade Liu entered the poker space with one goal, and that was to become a famous poker player. I know this because she has said so. She has said that she wanted to become a famous poker player. 
she was appearing on these streams because she wanted to become a famous poker player. She is not someone who just wants to quietly win and keep their head down. And there are a lot of players out there like that. There is a lot of players that really don't like the spotlight. They really just want to win money or they just want to enjoy playing the game. They enjoy the challenge of trying to win as much as they can in the game. And they really don't like all of the spotlight on them. There's players like that. And then there's players like Robbie who just bask in any attention they get. Now, she was a complete unknown prior to that crazy hand that occurred in late September of 2022. So she went from somebody nobody knew to someone that everybody knew. In fact, she was following me before this hand happened, and I had never heard of her before. I didn't even know that she was following me. If someone had asked me before that hand, who's Robbie J. Lou, I wouldn't be able to tell you. Yeah, she appeared on Hustler a few times before that, but I don't watch that show every day. I only watch if something interesting has happened. So I didn't know who she was. But she was appearing on these shows, on these high-stakes games that she was getting backed for by one or more people. Her goal was to become a famous poker player. Now, she was hoping she would become a famous poker player through just kicking ass and beating everyone at the game. Just being a female who sits down and runs roughshod over the males in the game, especially Garrett Adelstein, who she was targeting as someone that she wanted to beat and humiliate on the poker table. And when I say humiliate, I don't mean like from a personal standpoint. I mean just outplay him and beat him. And you can laugh at that. You can say, oh, Garrett's a great player. How's this noob going to come in and humiliate Garrett? But that was her goal. She wanted to do things like that, and she wanted to get everyone's attention. Like, wow, who's this Robbie chick who's just killing the games? Now, when she was appearing on these streams, she did win. It was very short-term, you know, not much sample space, and anyone can win in a few sessions. You don't have to be good to win one or two poker sessions. But the goal, again, was to become poker famous. Winning money was nice, too, but that was secondary. And I theorized at the time when she gave back that money she won from Garrett in that hand that part of the reason she gave the money back, and maybe most of the reason she gave the money back, was because she was afraid that Garrett had the power to kick her off Hustler Casino Live forever. So she would actually rather give back $135,000 that she doesn't have to give back than have Garrett boot her from the stream permanently. That's how badly she wanted to be poker famous. That she has never said out loud. But that has been my assessment of the situation. That was my assessment back then. That is still my assessment today. In fact, when I met her in person in January, when I happened to end up at her table at a free roll event in commerce, I told her that I thought that was true, and she didn't deny it. She didn't say, oh, yeah, you're right. That's totally it. But she didn't say, no, 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 you're wrong. Like I said that to her, and she didn't deny it. So I believe that was a very big part of why she gave back the money to Garrett. She just doesn't want to say that because it doesn't sound good. It sounds a lot better to say, oh, I gave the money back to Garrett because I was intimidated because he's this muscular guy and he's got me in the hallway alone and I'm just a woman. Like That, that sounds better to shame Garrett in public than, oh, I, I was afraid Garrett had too much influence and I'd rather give him the money back than have him kick me off. And that's fine. You know, like she can do what she wants with her money. And it is wrong for Garrett to demand the money and even take the money, even if that is the reason. So I'm not defending Garrett taking the money. And the whole way, I have said that Garrett needs to give the money back and that Garrett 
should give the money back short of having any kind of concrete evidence that she cheated. And since nobody has any concrete evidence that she cheated, he needs to give the money back. That's been my position the whole way. But I believe she gave back the money because she wanted to stay on that stream. It was very, very important to her. Well, she accomplished her goal with one hand. With one hand playing Jack-4 offsuit and making a nonsensical play. With that one hand, she has become one of the most famous poker players since late September 2022. Prior to that, she was an unknown, but now today, in early 2023, she is one of the most famous poker players out there. So, hey, mission accomplished, right? I mean, it's not the way she thought she'd get there, but sometimes you back into it. It's kind of like when you're drawing for a straight and a flush, and then you end up uh, backing into trips. You, you get... Uh, a pair on the turn, a pair on the river. You go, like, oh, okay, wow, I, I won this way. That's not what I was looking for, but okay, this works too. Same thing. She backed into poker fame in a different way than what she was intending. I mean, it was kind of similar because she tried to play that hand that way, I think. If she wasn't cheating, I think it was for this purpose to try to own Garrett and get people talking about her. But she didn't expect it was going to be this big shitstorm where everyone accuses her of being a cheater and debates it endlessly. That she did not ever expect. That was not intended. But that's what happened. And because it never could be proven that she was cheating, and it very well may be that she wasn't, and I'm not just saying this so she doesn't sue me. I, I'm honestly saying, and I've said the whole way, I've uh, never really been certain either way what happened there. And I, I can easily see to where she was not cheating and that she was just playing the hand that way to try to get attention. In fact, if I was forced to choose one, I would say I guess she probably wasn't cheating. And I told her that, too, in person. I, I don't hide my feelings when I meet in person with people. I, I will tell them what I really think. I don't just say one thing on this show and say something different in person. We didn't intend to meet. You know, I just happened to be dropped at her table. But I talked to her some at the table about the situation. Anyway. The reason I'm talking about all of this and the reason I keep talking about how she wanted to be poker famous is because she is back on a stream, or she will be. She isn't yet, but she will be starting on February 14th, which is three days from now. She will be on three days in a row, I believe. And it's not going to be Hustler Casino Live. But this doesn't surprise me. I'll, I'll tell you in a second what it's going to be, and I'll play you the promo. But this doesn't surprise me one bit because... Why would she hide? Why would she go away? She's been embracing this the whole way. She appears on a million interviews. And she gets all dressed up for them and tries to look as put together as possible. And when she's out there in person, she takes pictures with people. And she's happy to talk about the hand and the situation. She doesn't say, hey, can you leave me alone? I just want to play here. No, she, she's thrilled to talk about all this. People ask her for her autograph. She has become poker famous. This is what she's wanted. So, of course... When a stream wants to have her back on, not only will she say yes, but she is happy to help them promote her return. Not because she has any kind of financial incentive, but because she has a fame incentive. She wants everyone to know that she's coming back. This is her grand return. She's been waiting for this moment. Yeah, she could have returned a while back, but she gave some time. She let some time pass. She let the hustler put out their report that they didn't find any proof she was cheating, then she let some more time pass, then she was playing some live tournaments, and now she's going to play a streamed game again. And this has been the plan the whole way. 
Ever since this whole thing blew up, I think in the first day or two, she was kind of traumatized. And then she realized, hey, wait a minute. This is, this is what I wanted. <laughs> like, yeah, it kind of sucks having everybody call me a cheater and having my name go out like that. But hey, you know, any publicity is good publicity. If you get to be poker famous, then who cares how, especially if they have no proof. And especially if she knows she didn't cheat, which is very possible. Like, She knows for sure. She's the one who knows for sure if she was cheating or not. So if she knows she didn't cheat, she knows there will never be any proof that she cheated because if she didn't, then she didn't and there can't be any proof. So it's very possible that's why she's been welcoming all of this because she knows there will never be proof of cheating because she wasn't cheating. I think there may have been cheating on that stream with others because of that Brian guy who we'll talk about in the next segment. But it's, it's very, very possible that Robbie did not cheat at all here. So I'm going to play you the promo for her big return, which was tweeted out on February 7th, and this is about her return to streamed poker starting February 14th. So I'm going to narrate this because it is uh, printing on the screen, and I can't show you since it's an audio show. What the? <laughs> what kind of music is that? Okay, so it says, the most controversial name in poker returns. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Robbie Jade Lou. I'm back. Yeah, that... It says Robbie, live at the bike. Yes, she's coming on live at the bike. In the jungle. Valentine's Day 2-14-23. I'm coming back to live stream poker on Valentine's Day at live at the bike. So I'm inviting all my lovers and haters looking to maybe uh, break a few hearts, some bank accounts, maybe even break the internet again. Okay, that says it all right there. <laughs> this is not the end of the promo. The promo's 54 seconds. I've played you half of it. But that's pretty much it right there. That one sentence tells you all you need to know about Robbie and this comeback. That she is welcoming her lovers and haters and that she wants to break a few hearts on Valentine's Day with her play. She wants everyone to watch her and maybe break the internet, referring to how everyone's going to want to watch this. She wants this to be an event. She doesn't just want to quietly go back to streamed poker and play her game. No, she wants to break the internet with so much talk and viewership which she gains nothing from monetarily because she doesn't own any piece of life at the bike. She's not being paid to be there. Let's play the rest of this. So this is more money, super high stakes, no crying. That's a, that's, that is a jab at Garrett, by the way, no crying. The no crying is because of uh, Garrett's reaction to losing to that Jack Forehand when his monster draw bricked and he lost to Jack High with no draw. And then he cried about it and demanded the money back and got money back from her, 135K. So the no crying is a little jab at Garrett. But it's a safe jab. This way, if Garrett gets mad, they goes, oh, no, 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 we don't mean you, Garrett. We're just saying no crying in general. That Nobody on here can cry no matter what happens. We're not talking about you, Garrett. I mean, yeah, we're not saying you, you're a crybaby, you know, even though you, you cried. But we're not talking about you. No, 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 no. We've got Phil Helmuth sitting at the table with 300k, so bring it on, Phil. A couple of other great players, and we hope to see you guys there. Live at the bike, Valentine's Day. That is such weird music. Robbie live at the bike, Valentine's Day, it says again. Speaking of poker brats, Garrett, feel free to join us, if you dare. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well... I guess they can't say this in about Garrett. <laughs> oh, boy. But you see how she's leaning into this. 
So if you feel sorry for Robbie, let's say you're in the camp that Robbie did not cheat and that Garrett should not have taken the money. And by the way, again, I agree that he should not have taken the money. And that people on the internet who were saying all these nasty things about her, that they were bullying her and her life must have been hell. And this poor woman. No, no. You see how much she's enjoying all this. You can see how much she is basking in all this. This is the best thing that's ever happened in her life. I'm not exaggerating. I I doubt there has been a thing in her life that has been better than this. At first, it was probably kind of shocking and hard for her to process. But within a few days, she realized it was the best thing that ever happened to her because it aligned very much with her goals to be poker famous. And boy, is she exploiting this big time. Now, she has a right to. She didn't force the internet to talk about her so much. It was going to happen, but she wasn't trying to make it happen exactly like this. She didn't quite expect this to happen. So, okay, if she got famous this way and wants to lean into her fame, fine, do it. I'm just telling you, you don't have to feel bad for her. I remember, like, Norman Chad was feeling bad for her. And he and Chicago Joey ended up going at it. Remember that whole thing? And I was saying to Norman, you know, yes, Joey acted inappropriately with threatening to punch you in the ribs. But I do have to say, you're feeling unnecessarily sorry for Robbie. She doesn't deserve any sympathy here because she is loving all of this. So if you want to watch it, it'll be February 14th, 15th, and 16th on Live at the Bike, which is now playing a very second fiddle to Hustler Casino Live. It just can't get going. It just can't get anywhere near the buzz or viewership of Hustler Casino Live. And that's why they're doing this, of course. Just having Helmuth on isn't enough. Of course, Helmuth isn't even that fun to have on there because he plays like a nit. So that is not something that makes great streamed poker. You want someone who plays and is kind of wild and is fun to watch, not just someone who knits it up and and waits to have the best hand to put the money in. I mean, that's good for Phil's bankroll, but it's not good for viewership other than Phil Helmuth being a huge name. Now, having him there with Robbie, yeah, that's interesting, I guess. Definitely bring some eyeballs to the stream to have him there. But just having Phil on the stream is not going to make them overtake Hustler Casino Live that night. So Live at the Bike is trying to do what they can to reclaim that number one spot. And this one thing isn't going to do it. I have a feeling those few nights, it'll get a lot of viewers. And maybe if she keeps appearing on there, that'll help. But they're trying to make a comeback. Because remember, they went down for a while, and they came back after Hustler Casino Live was already on the scene, and then they had to play catch-up, and they just haven't gotten there. Because regardless of what you want to say about Ryan Feldman, and he has his supporters and detractors for sure, regardless of what you want to say about him, he is very, very talented at his job, which is putting these games together and promoting them and making people want to watch. That's why Live at the Bike did well when he was the one in charge there. And that's why, since he's moved over to Hustler, why that is now the stream people want to watch. It's because of Ryan. He's the one who's managing this whole thing. 
And wherever he goes, that stream does best. So even if you don't like Ryan for one reason or another, you do have to give him that. So Live at the Bike is going to forever be playing catch-up, I think. I, I just don't think they can compete with what Ryan is bringing. Now, something I didn't mean to discuss on this show, but I'll throw in anyway, is that uh, Poker Go is having something uh, a little bit similar. And I guess I might as well mention this as kind of a little offshoot topic to this because it does relate somewhat to a big topic we had a few weeks ago. If you remember when we, when we had uh, Mr. Dr. Batman on here, and he co-hosted the show with me for a few hours when we also talked about the topic about him and Eric Person. And if you remember, Eric Person was just really, really, really angry about Mr. Dr. Batman trolling him on a stream where Eric wasn't even on there. And then Eric tried to go into the chat and talk trash back, and then the chat moderator kept deleting Eric's messages for some reason, and Eric got really furious. So then Eric had Mr. Dr. Mafia banned, and then he finally relented and let him get unbanned. But this was uh, somewhat of a controversy, and we had Mr. Dr. Batman on here to discuss it himself. And you can go back to that episode if you want to hear that whole thing. But the new development here is that Poker Go is kind of trying to compete now with Hustler Casino Live, at least for this particular episode. And we'll see as time passes if they have more like this. But Eric Person has a lot of influence in that he has friendships with other high-stakes players. So he can actually get high-stakes players together to play these games and that is valuable if you're running one of these streams so that's why they don't want to piss him off over at Hustler Casino Live and they did anyway and he hasn't been back since then so even though they they kind of made up he was still pissed off and uh, he probably was still pissed that Mr. Dr. Batman was allowed back even though he rescinded his demand that Batman can't come back but I think he just pissed off about that whole thing so Eric took his ball and went elsewhere, and he's going to be appearing on Poker Go on February 17th with a million-dollar buy-in game with escalating blinds. And it'll be Eric, Rob Young, Rick Solomon, Patrick Antonius, Andrew Robel, and I think one other person. So this is... Obviously, a, a huge game, and it's going to play very big. And any game with Rick Solomon plays huge because he just will pump it up. So whatever, whatever the blinds are, he just makes the gameplay so much bigger. And I sat next to the World Series of Poker to a guy who played in Rick's games and complained about it. And this was like a really, really rich guy in his 70s. And he was even complaining that he didn't like Rick in the game because Rick just made them play so big, and even he was uncomfortable. And that, that's what Rick does. That's what Rick's advantage is, is he makes people uncomfortable with making the game play way bigger than they all really signed up for. So eh, I guess that'll be interesting to see this, especially with the escalating blinds. Uh, Hustler Casino Live is coming back with their own $1 million buy-in game. So that's pretty huge. I mean, imagine million-dollar buy-in games that they're going to have one on Hustler Casino Live and they're going to have one on uh, Poker Go. Poker Go, which normally requires a subscription to watch, is actually going to be streaming this for free. 
They said, watch it free on our YouTube on February 17th at 3.30 p.m. Pacific time. This is on Friday night. So they're going to be competing with Hustler. And I'm sure that's no accident. I'm sure this is Eric's middle finger to Hustler Casino Live. Okay, like, okay, guys, you deleted my messages in the chat room that I was paying $100 each for people to see in what was called the super chat. You guys were deleting it. Okay, this is what I'm going to do back. I'm going to get together a competing game and run it while you guys are running on Friday. I'm sure it's not a coincidence that it is on Friday instead of something like Saturday when Hustler Casino Live may not be going. So it'll be interesting. I think maybe if Hustler Casino Live, if they had kept Mr. Dr. Batman off, even when Eric said it was okay, I think maybe Eric would have been happier. I think Eric relented only because Twitter was bashing him for it. I don't think he wanted to relent. And I said that at the time when we covered the topic on this show. So there's a big difference between someone realizing they were wrong and saying, okay, you know, I lost my temper, fine, he can come back. I don't think that's what was going on with Eric. I think Eric wanted him off permanently, and then everyone on the internet was making fun of him, and so he had to dial it back. But privately, I'm sure he still had his feelings, and I guess we're seeing the result of that now. So we shall see if Poker Go decides to enter that space as well. Okay, so let's go and talk about the second Jack 4 offsuit-related topic. And I want to put a disclaimer here, and by the time you listen to this show in the archives, if you're listening live, then you are going to be just as clueless about this as I am right now. But if you're listening to the archives, I guess we'll know one way or the other, because this is supposed to happen tomorrow during the Super Bowl, or after the Super Bowl. But this may be a joke... And it may be serious. I already have people on Twitter chiding me that I'm not getting the joke. But I'm still not sure. So Patrick Curran is on Twitter as Patrick What Up. That's Patrick with a K, with C-K, P-A-T-R-I-C-K, What Up underscore. Patrick What Up underscore is who he is on Twitter. And he's been doing a lot of Twitch streaming of his poker play. He's been playing a lot of uh, online tournaments and streaming these. He's kind of trying to become a Twitch star. Prior to this, he was a background guy on Hustler Casino Live and Live at the Bike, and he left for unknown reasons in August. This was before the scandal with Jack 4 Offsuit, so it wasn't related to that. He was not present when that occurred, but he was there for a very long time on both shows. And he has been relatively quiet about his feelings about that scandal. Of course, he may know things that he hasn't revealed yet about whether there was any kind of cheating on Hustler Casino Live in general, or even Live at the Bike. But he's never said there was or wasn't. He's been very quiet about it. Occasionally, he will kind of imply something like there might be more to these stories and stuff, but he never comes out and says it and doesn't even put out enough to really allow you to infer what he really means. So this is what he put out about five hours ago on Twitter. Breaking. Untold secrets behind biggest scandal in poker history. Brian Sagbixall tells all regarding his role in the Jack Forehand Sunday night, February 12th, immediately after the Super Bowl, live on my Twitch stream. Link to watch below. 
Well, that's pretty big, right? Remember, Brian Sagbixall was the Hustler Casino Live employee who stole $15,000 off of Robbie Jade Lou's stack during all that madness that night. And he was caught on video doing it when they went to go review the videos afterwards to try to figure out what was happening that night. They found Robbie, Robbie's stack having 15K stolen from it by Brian, who worked for Hustler Casino Live. And for whatever reason, the police weren't called that night. And then the police weren't even involved for a while because Robbie said she didn't want to press charges. And then she said she did. And the whole thing took a while. And by the time the police were finally looking for Brian, he disappeared. And as far as I know, he still hasn't been arrested, even though there is a warrant out for his arrest. And I've read you that warrant before. And the warrant also reveals one other thing that he is accused of also stealing $5,000 from the Hustler Casino. And it's not clear exactly how he was supposed to have done that or if it is related to the 15K he stole from Robbie Stack. Like maybe he went in a cashed 5K of those 15K chips at the Hustler Casino cage, and that's considered a separate crime, even though it's the same 15K that was stolen. But there, there's basically two counts, one having to do with the 15K from Robbie Stack, the other one 5K from Hustler Casino. So this was from the official arrest warrant that Hustler posted and that I read you on this show. So he definitely is wanted by the Gardena, California police. And I don't know how hard they're trying to look for him because this isn't a super major crime. But if he has any kind of contact with law enforcement or if they get any tips as to where he is, provided it's somewhere in California, uh, he will be arrested. So I thought that'll be the last we hear of him for a while because they stupidly drag their feet with having the police look for him. I mean, you don't wait weeks on this and telegraph that you're going to be pressing charges and let the guy get up and run. It's not like this was a guy who had roots firmly planted in Southern California. It's not like he had a family and kids and a house he owned. It's not like he could just you know can't get up and leave. Uh, this is a, a guy who's young, like 24 years old, who didn't have anything. So, of course, he can get up and, and run if he knows his arrest is going to be imminent. If he knows that charges are being pressed and he's on video stealing. So, that was very, very stupid. And I said that at the time, that they didn't, that night, call the police. And the hustler itself should have pressed charges. I don't know why they didn't. And that's something we've never really gotten an answer about. So, even though the charges are being pressed now, it was too little too late, and Brian was able to run off. And I said, hey, I, I don't blame him. <laughs> like, if you're 24 years old, you don't have anything that you are staying for. If there's no reason to stay in Southern California, if there's nothing tying you there, then yeah, why sit around and wait to get arrested? Yeah, why not just run off? That's what he did. I was guessing he probably left the state. And I don't think his crime was severe enough for other states to arrest him and extradite him so let's say they locate where he's living say in arizona or nevada i don't think they're gonna go arrest him and then ship him back to california where if he were accused of a really major crime they of course would do that but i don't think for this they will even though it's a felony i just don't think that they will arrest him in another state and ship him back now maybe if he has some police contact in another state then they may detain him and decide what to do but who knows? 
So the time to arrest him was when they noticed this in early October. The reason I'm talking about this now is because Brian Sagbixall deleted his Twitter. At first on his Twitter, he was defending Hustler Casino Live. Oh, this is such a great operation. There's no chance there's any cheating here, blah, blah, blah. And then it turned out that he was caught on camera stealing. And as I've said many times, anybody who is willing to steal is willing to cheat. I can't think of one thief I've ever known who'd say, ah, I'm happy to steal, but that cheating is where I draw the line. There is no way I would cheat. I'm not a cheat. I'm a thief, but I'm not a cheat. There's no such thing. If you're willing to steal, you're willing to cheat. If you're willing to steal 15K off someone's stack, you're willing to cheat by looking at whole cards and giving signals to someone in the game. All you need is a partner willing to do it with you. So that's why I'm very suspicious about the play on Hustler Casino Live, that even if Robbie was playing a completely honest game, that maybe others weren't. And maybe Brian was giving info to somebody else. And we will never know unless further information comes out. But is it possible that further information will come out? Because remember, Patrick Curran is going to supposedly have Brian on the show tomorrow. Listen to this. This is on the trailer that Patrick posted. My name is Brian Sagbigsell, and after four months of silence due to pending litigation, I'm making this documentary to expose all the hidden secrets behind the biggest scandal in poker history. Then it says the untold secrets behind Brian Sagbixall, Jack Forgate, the biggest scandal in poker history. So this is on Patrick Curran's Twitter right now, that this is being promoted with already 7,000 views in just five hours on what otherwise is, is not a very heavily followed Twitter account. And supposedly this will be after the Super Bowl. But some people are saying that Patrick has done other gags in the past along these lines, where he claims that something amazing is coming to his Twitch and it's all a joke. Some people are saying that he's known for this sort of thing. For example, CMH author 780 a guy named Tony, said back to me, pretty sure he's joking. Patrick is a master at entertainment and promotion. Really puts in the work and grinds on all aspects, not just poker, but social media. Quite an incredible journey of him going into this realm, actually. Now, I don't see what he's accomplishing. Like, when people are saying this, it wasn't just this Tony guy. Like, a few people said this to me. So maybe I'll look stupid for talking about this, and then it turns out that Brian's not coming on. Now, it looks like that was really Brian there, who was talking about how he's going to come out and, and speak out here. But he could have gotten Brian, who he probably knows from working with him for a long time on Hustler Casino Live. He, prob- he could have gotten Brian to just say this when Brian has no intention of really appearing. But I was trying to think, okay, well, if this is a gag, what's the point? Is it just to get people watching Patrick's stream and they're like, ah, I fooled you, ah, there's no Brian, ah. Like, what's the point? Won't that just piss people off? Like, to me, this seems like a joke that isn't a very good one. Because if people are showing up to see something that they really want to see, and then you say, ah, tricked you, we're not really showing you that. But hey, stay around and watch me play poker. They're not going to want to. They're going to turn it off. They're going to be angry. They're going to feel like they were fooled here. It's different if you have some sort of hoax that is involved like with a video or something where you're pretending something happened when it really didn't and you're getting a lot of people talking about it and then eventually people figure it's a hoax this is different because this is just basically saying hey brian's gonna come on and tell all after the super bowl and then if he doesn't and it turns out this is a joke that's not really very funny or very interesting
But I guess we'll see. I'm not going to sit there and analyze this. I, I do wonder if he really does appear. Like, how is he going to explain why he has not turned himself in, why he's not going to face the music? Why is he still in hiding if he's innocent? But maybe he's going to say he's not innocent. He just doesn't want, doesn't want to go to jail. <laughs> maybe he's like, yeah, you know, I'm not turning myself in right now. But here's some other stuff that was happening on Hustler Casino Live that you guys need to know about. Because it is very possible that he knows about a lot of things. It's very possible that he was involved in cheating there, not just stealing. Now, I have to think that it wouldn't be likely that he would incriminate himself and face a lot more time in prison. Remember, he already is a convicted felon for robbery from a few years ago. So he would be doing serious prison time if it turned out he was the architect or a major player in a major cheating scandal on Hustler Casino Live. So I can't really see where he would incriminate himself there. I think the only way he would is if he was given some deal by authorities that they won't prosecute him. But if he was kind of the ringleader of the whole thing, then they would never give him such a deal. They would only give him a deal. Let's say Hustler itself was doing this and he was just an employee following orders. That's where he could make a deal. But if he was doing it without Hustler Casino Live knowing, then there really wouldn't be a deal he could make other than just pleading guilty. So I can't see where he would cop to this when otherwise there does not seem to be any evidence this has happened that could be used against him. So I don't think we'll hear that. But maybe he has some more things he can tell us what happened behind the scenes. So, I mean, I'll be interested to watch if he really does appear there, but I'm skeptical whether he really will. And even if he does, whether we can believe any of it. Because remember, this is a guy who went on Twitter and was all indignant about how you can totally trust all the great people at Hustler Casino Live when he had just stolen 15K. So this is a guy who you can't trust at all. That's the problem. Is Unless he can show some kind of proof as to what he's saying, even if he drops some bombshells, you do have to wonder, how can we trust this guy? Because he's a thief. And he's on the run from the law. So can we really trust any allegations he makes against others? But I don't want to get too much into talking about that because this could just be a joke and then I'll feel like a fool. In fact, maybe by the time you hear this, you will know if it's a joke or not. In fact, you probably will because I guess you'll see what happens after the Super Bowl. All right, let's move on and talk about the World Series. It seems like they announced the World Series of Poker, the full schedule, that is, in February. One year, they actually put it out in late December. But it seems like that was an outlier. It seems like they are now releasing it in February. So when they announced it last year, it was February 23rd. So they got a little bit earlier this year. I remember last year, people were complaining that it was very late. So this year, they decided to do it in early February. And now we do see the full schedule for the World Series of Poker. And I'm always interested in that because I play it every year. If you want to see the World Series of Poker schedule, you just have to go to WCP.com and go to the Tournaments tab. You'll see it right there. The World Series of Poker runs from May 30th through July 18th. Very similar dates to what we have had in the past. Of course, this is excluding 2020 and 2021 because of COVID reasons, but uh, go back to 2022, 2019, 2018. It was all around those dates, late May to mid-July. 
the Casino Employees event is once again the first event, which I always thought was stupid. Why should event number one be the Casino Employees event? I'm, I'm fine with them having that event. They, I just don't think it should be the first event. The Casino Employees event is the first event on May 30th. The first open event is a high roller, a six-handed no-limit event, 25K buy-in. That's a real tough event. Most people won't be entering that one. The first event that the average person will enter is on May 31st. And this is the Mystery Millions. This was a very popular event introduced last year. The World Series did not invent it. Other series were already doing this. But at the World Series, it was extremely extremely popular. And the way it works is it's a bounty event. And that when you knock someone out, you have a chance to win a lot of money. Instead of just a, a typical bounty where it's a fixed amount, like 500 bucks. Here, if you knock even one person out, you have a chance to win... One million dollars. And the big winner of the single million dollar bounty prize in 2022, in the inaugural event, was none other than Poker Fraud Alert radio listener Matt Glantz. So congratulations again to Matt for that. That was incredibly lucky. <laughs> so He also got deep in the event, too. So I, I guess that increased his odds because he knocked out a lot of people. But I guess a certain percentage of them are invited to go up to the podium and draw from a drum of tickets. And then if you pull out the one that says a million dollars, you win a million. But there's a lot of other very, very large prizes in there that are much bigger than the smaller bounties. So very, very popular event. People really, really liked it. Got very, very good participation. I heard nothing but good things about this event existing. Even the people who were saying it was kind of stupid admitted it was kind of fun. So even the criticism was not very serious. The worst I saw was, well, this is kind of a carnival event, but hey, you know, I'll play it too. It's, it's kind, of, kind of fun. So that was a wild success. When they introduce new events, sometimes the events are kind of a fail, and sometimes they do extremely well. This was one that really was a success. So this is a $1,000 buy-in. It's called Mystery Millions, and that is now the first big field no-limit event that is going to be at the World Series. They always, they always have one. They always have one of these big field no-limit events that's very near the beginning of the World Series. Usually it is a small buy-in event. Usually it's like a 500 event. And that started with the Colossus a number of years ago, which still exists, but they've changed it, and it's a shell of its former self. But... This year it's the Mystery Millions, which last year was much deeper into the series because they didn't know how it would do. But since it was such a wild success, that's what they're going to kick it off with. So that, that is going to be the first event that the average person would play. Because events one and two are the casino employees and the 25K high rollers. So that's not going to be something that the average person can just show up and play. The rest of the schedule is fairly similar to last year. But there are some differences. There is a Badoogie event on June 7th. I've never seen that before. That's the first Badoogie event that is at the World Series. I, I believe Badoogie was part of a mix event in the past, maybe multiple events. But there has never been a Badoogie-only event. But on June 7th, there is. So if you like Badoogie, then now you can play a Badoogie-only event. I'm not going to be playing because I'm not good at Badoogie. But if I 
was a good Badoogie player, I would be very excited about this. Another change is that we have finally gotten a benefit out of COVID. There's not very much good you can say about COVID. But one apparent long-term benefit of COVID in poker is that it has mostly done away with nine and ten-handed poker. Originally, this was for COVID reasons. Like, okay, you're, you're not as crowded together at the table, so it's safer. And, you know, that's not really true. It's a little bit true. But the truth is, if you're at a table and somebody has COVID there, it's not going to really matter all that much whether the table's eight or nine-handed. But that was a change they did. And it's a change that stuck. People just liked it better. Number one, you don't need as strong a hands to enter the pot because there's fewer players. The, the more people at the table, the stronger your holdings have to be to enter the hand because there's a higher chance that somebody else at the table has a better hand than you if there's more people. So that's one reason eight is better than nine. Another one is just physical room. It's just less cramped. So people really, really prefer eight-handed. So this has made it into the World Series. So most events are going to be eight-handed, where they used to be nine. Now, of course, there's still some six-handed events. There's even a heads-up event. But I'm talking about the ones that used to be nine-handed or even ten-handed. These events are slated to be eight-handed, which is great. So that is something I give a big thumbs up to the World Series for adopting. And from what I remember, that wasn't the case last year. In fact, I remember playing 10-handed sometimes. So I'm glad that they are going 8-handed with most of their events. Not all events, but most of their events that are full ring are going to be 8-handed in 2023. That's a big plus this year. On June 7th, they have something else that's new in addition to Badoogie. They have a Gladiators of Poker event. This is a $300 buy-in event, and it's a turbo event, meaning that the blinds are going to escalate very quickly. It has a $3 million guaranteed prize pool. And that means that they are going to need a lot of entries. They're going to need 10,000 entries for it to not be an overlay. Do I think they will get it? Yes, because it's a turbo event. People will bust very quickly. It's only $300. So a lot of people can afford it. And people will keep rebuying because it's only $300. Because even if you're not a rich person, you may be very willing to put through multiple bullets at this thing. Like if you're willing to play a 1500 event, you could play this thing five times. I will be skipping this. I actually wish they would stop having cheap events like this. $300 is a joke. Now they've had $60 events online that you can win a bracelet. And it's the same bracelet. It's considered a real bracelet, those online bracelets. I don't like it. I, I don't even like 300. Forget 60. I, I just don't like 300. And the reason I don't like it, it's not me being an elitist. It's not me saying, well, I can afford to play bigger than 300, so screw everybody else who has less money than me. I'm not taking that position. I think there is a place in poker for low-limit players. I just don't think there's a place at the World Series of Poker for low-limit players. The World Series of Poker should be something where you have to put up, I feel, four figures to enter any event. I can understand why every event isn't 10,000 or more, because that really restricts the 
entries to people who have a deep bankroll. But at least make it a thousand minimum, especially with all the inflation. The fact that we're having three hundred dollar events in twenty twenty three is really stupid, and it really devalues the bracelet even further. To show you how ridiculous this is, and we've done this exercise before, but three hundred dollars in twenty twenty three. If you compare this to 1970, when the World Series first started, it was $42 then. $42 in 1970 is $300 today. So we're talking about a factor of like seven. So imagine a $42 event in 1970 if someone wins a bracelet. You go, oh, that's stupid. Well, they didn't have that back then, but you'd say, oh, that's stupid. Well, that's what we have now because of inflation since 1970. These are real live events. So I, I don't like it at all. Now, it's not easy to win a bracelet because you're going to have a gigantic field. It's actually very tough. You have to get really lucky no matter how good you are. But then it just becomes kind of a crapshoot. It becomes who's going to get lucky with a gigantic field with very quickly escalating blinds. This isn't like the main event of the World Series of Poker where you have a huge field but it moves up very slowly. So you really, you really, really have some very excellent players at the end who made it through because they were both lucky and really, really good. At these turbo events, you have people getting very deep just because they were very lucky. Because you have to start gambling. You have to start putting it in a lot with the blinds going up that fast. And I just don't like the whole thing. A turbo event that's $300 buy-in with rebuys, that is something that shouldn't be awarding a bracelet. But they are having it. It's called Gladiators of Poker on June 7th. Now, I mentioned in the intro that there are two events that have been added in 2023 that I believe are at least partially because of me. And I don't say this lightly. I don't like to take credit for things I didn't do. And I will tell you I don't have verification that this was because of me, or even partially because of me, but it all seems to follow. I've talked before on this show that I feel that the World Series of Poker was making a big mistake for not having certain events. And two of the events that I was talking about over and over that they should have but did not were a $1,500 Big O event, because Big O was part of some mixed events and it was part of the mixed Omaha event, but there was no Big O event by itself. And Big O has become a very popular game. It's very much like PLO8, you know, Pot Limit Omaha High Low, except you have five cards instead of four. It's become very popular. It's spread in a lot of rooms. So I said, why are they not having a big O event out of 90-something events each year? It's crazy. Why would they not at least dedicate one event to big O? And I felt that 1500 was the right price point for this. That if they have a PLO8 event for 1500 if they have an Omaha 8 limit event for 1500 which they do, why not also have a big O event? It'll do very well, I said. I also said that Sorely Missing was a $1,500 short deck event. Short deck is something that is not spread very often, but it's something that a lot of people want to try. Short deck is is exactly as it sounds, where 
the twos, threes, fours, and fives are removed from the deck. So a 52-card deck becomes a 36-card deck. And that changes the game very much. So there become some changes already to the rules. For example, a flush beats a full house. And that's because with those cards removed, it's actually easier to make a full house than flush. And then it's easier to hit a set, of course. And they even have some versions where the ace is considered low, just like in uh, a regular poker game. But instead of ace, two, three, four, five to make a straight, you have ace, six, seven, eight, nine. So it has a lot of different strategy from regular Hold'em. And a lot of people enjoy it because it's just something new. It's something that you can quickly pick up on how to play because it's basically the same game with cards removed from the deck, but the whole strategy is different and people enjoy it. The problem is that up until 2023, they only were offering a 10K short deck event and people didn't want to play because who's going to enter a 10K short deck event unless you're really good at the game? Otherwise, you're flushing money down the toilet because there's a lot of really good short deck players who play it for high stakes. So why would you want to compete against these people and throw away 10K? It's a lot easier to enter it as a speculative thing where you're like, okay, well, let me take a shot at this if it's 1500 And especially if you know there will be other people in the event who aren't experts at it. But you don't want to enter a small field event for 10K against a bunch of experts. Like So, so it got very poor attendance, these 10K short deck events. But I said... And you've heard me say it before on this show, and you've probably read me posting it on Twitter, that they should have a $1,500 short deck because a lot of people want to play it. They just don't want to put up 10 k against experts. So I was pushing very hard on Twitter. Add a big O event for 1500 Add a short deck event for 1500 I also said they should bring back the Limit Hold'em shootout. Well, that did not come back. The Limit Hold'em shootout did not come back. But... This year, there are two new events, $1,500 Big O and $1,500 Short Deck. I don't think that's a coincidence because I was saying this for a few years now, but I said it most this past year. There were discussion threads on Twitter where I was pushing especially these two. Because I knew the Limit Hold'em shootout, which they actually took away. I knew getting that back was a long shot. So I was pushing harder on Big O and Short Deck. And I actually had interest in playing both of these two. I wasn't just saying it unselfishly. And here it is. Exactly at the price point I said, too. So I have a feeling someone read this and thought, oh, you know, that's a good idea. (laughs) This Todd guy brings up a good point. So I think there's a very good chance that those making the schedules saw what I was posting and realized this was a good idea. And of course, what they're looking for here is not just the praise from the community, but also to make money. And I was making the point for them too, that they're going to do very well here. They're going to make a lot of money on these events because they're going to be popular. Especially the big O. Short tech, we'll see. But they definitely should, if they're going to offer the 10K short tech, they should offer a cheaper short tech just to let people in make the game accessible. So I believe that uh, they listened to me. The uh, big O is going to be on June 17th. The short deck is going to be on July 12th. 
July 12th, if that sounds late to you, it is. It's actually after the main event. In fact, it's fairly deep into the main. So most people will have left town by then. By July 12th, the vast, vast majority of people will be out of the main event. That is main event day six. So they'll be down to something like, I don't know, 150 people or so out of 8,000, whatever that enters. So what happens is people just leave town. You could say, oh, good, they'll be out of the main event. They'll be looking for something new to play. No, a lot of people will have left town. So I don't think that's the best time to have it. But that's when they're having it. But the June 17th uh, Big O, that one I I think will get some uh, good attendance to it. The main event is back to four starting flights. And they are holding a random drawing for everybody who registers for the main event to win what they call entries for life into the main. And all you have to do to enter is play the main event. You don't have to do anything additional. You just, you sign up for the main and you are entered. So one player out of the 8,000, whatever that probably will enter is going to win free main event entries for life. So does that mean if somebody who's uh, 25 years old wins this, that he might be playing 60 consecutive main events for free, or maybe more? No, because the main event for life is actually only 30 years. (laughs) Come on. Why call it main event for life if it's 30 years? Now, the truth is, for me, it, it probably would be for life if I won it. Because I'm 51 years old. So, By the time 30 years would pass, and this would be starting the next year, it wouldn't be for this year, so I would be paying for the 2023 World Series main event, then let's say I won that drawing, then I would be getting the main event for free starting in 2024. Now, if I were to die before 30 years pass, then I couldn't have this transferred to somebody else, then it's just gone. So in that way, it kind of is a lifetime benefit, but the other way isn't true. So let's say I live way past 81, because 81 would be the last one I would be uh, playing in 2053 if I were to win this this year. So I'd get 30 then, which would be 2024 through 2053. So the last one, I'd be 81. In 2054, I would be 82, and I would no longer have it, despite being a, quote, life winner of the free main events. Now, the truth is, at 82, even if still alive, I probably wouldn't want to play the main event at that point, because... uh, it would require these very long days sitting at the poker table, and it's tough at that age to do that. Some people can, but that's why you don't see that many people playing the main event who are elderly, because it is sort of a test of endurance, and it gets harder and harder to sit for all those hours when you're that age, day after day after day. To do it for one or two days, fine, but do this for all these days, which is required to be successful in the main event, it is very tough. So even if you are healthy and alive in your 80s, it can be very tough to do that, and that's why you don't see that many people entering the main. That's why Doyle stopped entering the main. So would I still want to play at age 82? Well, good chance no. So for me, 30 years would be fine. But for someone much younger than me, take someone who's 20 years younger than me. They win main event for life. Well, that would mean their last free main event would be age 61. 
So that feels kind of shitty to have won main event for life and then to have to pay for it again when you're age 62. So don't call it for life. Just say way, you win main event for 30 years. Just put, don't say it for life if it's not life. Now, if they want to make it 50 years and say, okay, the chances are that anybody who wins this is either going to be dead within 50 years or just not in the condition to play after 50 years. Okay, fine. Then call it for life. But not 30. Because someone could easily win this who is going to still be many years away from quitting the main event when those 30 years pass. Like, why? What's the point? They really can't afford the 10K per year for whatever extra years there are before that person dies or, or, or just can't play it anymore? Like, like, what are they really giving up here? They make so much money. So why not make it for life? Like, they don't have to worry about someone living 300 years and costing them $3 million. So what's, what's the problem here? And this is spread over a long period of time. That makes it a lot easier. They don't have to hand a lump sum to these people. So why not really make it for life? Why not just be, for the rest of your natural life, whatever that might be, you can play the main event each year for free. Why, why cut it off at 30 years? That's, that's such a cheapskate thing to do. And 30 is just such a stupid number. As I said, at least 50 would be reasonable. At least 50 would be life for just about everybody. Even like a 25-year-old probably wouldn't have that many years left to play if they were to win that sweepstakes. But the main event is mostly older people. There aren't many young people left in the main. The average main event player is like mid-40s now. So it probably will be someone winning it who is somewhat near my age. Maybe not, and maybe someone old will win it. I mean, what if someone who's like 70 wins it? Well, then Caesars will get off real cheap because they're not going to make the 30 years. Why make it 30? That's so dumb. And the thing is, they can make it a very big number because, number one, people only live so long, and number two, at some point, you don't have the physical, uh, physical ability to do it. Now, maybe they would do it anyway if they are getting it for free, but okay, whatever. So... Caesars throws in one of these free seats for each year that they hold the main. So it's very stupid. They're like, they're like limiting their loss in a stupid way. I always hate when they say things are for life or unlimited such and such for a year, and then it's not really unlimited. Like I remember there was a stupid promotion Caesars had, which was for gasoline, which was unlimited gasoline for a year. And you think, oh, that's nice. Unlimited gasoline for a year. Uh, no, then it turned out that the unlimited gasoline for a year was $80 worth of gas per month. <laughs> and yeah, gas was cheaper then. I guess it was kind of around like three something a gallon in California and probably two something a gallon elsewhere. But still, unless you barely drove, you spent way more than $80 of gas per month. So like, why even say that? Why say free gas for a year? If it's not free gas for a year, why not just say $960 worth of gas, which is what it really was. So I I hate this, like, such free whatever for a year, free whatever for life when it's not. Because it sounds cool, and then you find out about about the restrictions, and it's just dumb. It's obnoxious. But this is just such a Caesars thing to do (laughs) for life, and it's really 30 years. I mean, it's better than last year and all the other years where they didn't give away this prize. It's nice that I'll have this uh, tiny uh, free roll to win this thing. I mean, the, the equity for each person is very small. The equity for each person 
it's a three hundred thousand dollar prize, and let's, let's assume each person could really live the thirty years. I mean, I, I guess people who are older, it's less equity, but let's just assume you're going to live and play out the thirty years, which is a big if. It's a three hundred thousand dollar prize, which isn't even worth three hundred thousand because of inflation. But let's just ignore that too and say it's worth three hundred thousand. Well, with let's say there's eight thousand people entering, uh, you're getting some equity here, but you're getting like $37. So, okay, you know, it's like a $37 value ticket that you're being given to a sweepstakes. Okay, it's kind of nice. It's not a big game changer. But keep in mind, you're paying like $600 rake to enter the main event. So those are the main uh, changes I've seen to the World Series of Poker in 2023. What am I going to play? I have a problem this year, and that is I have a certain family obligation that I, I have to be part of, and it's it's going to be during some of these events. So I'm not sure. So there's a number of events I'd like to play, including the Big O and the Short Deck, but I'm not sure if I can make either of them. The Short Deck, just because I'll have probably left by then, same reason others won't be playing it, the Big O I might miss, and there's uh, several others I might miss. There's actually a few different reasons I might have to miss things. So I'm still kind of putting it together. A lot of you want to know, am I selling pieces this year? I did not sell pieces last year. You should be glad I didn't because you would have lost if you bought pieces of me. Instead, I took the brunt there, but answer is I don't know. Uh, There's ups and downs to selling pieces. The good things about selling pieces that, uh, number one, it brings down the variance. Number two, it adds some excitement for listeners who want to experience a World Series sweat without actually being there. So that, that's nice and has more people rooting for me as I play, which I enjoy. So that, that's good. I like that. The, the downsides, though, is number one, I, I really do feel guilty if I don't win. I feel guilty if I lose money for people. And number two, it's a pain in the ass to administer. So I don't know. I may do it. I may not do it. If I do it, it'll be for that usual 1.2 markup. And I'm not sure if I'm going to do it at all. We'll see. I probably will not be playing any mix events, though I will be playing uh, the mixed Omaha, but I probably won't be playing like horse or anything. I'm still trying to improve at some of these games. I do want to play uh, Seven Card Stud again. I enjoyed that last year. I, I didn't run very well, but I enjoyed it. And I actually was told by someone at the table without knowing that I was uh, relatively new to playing Stud. I just hadn't played very much Stud prior to that. But that uh, someone who was at the table with me thought I was one of the better players at the table. I thought, oh, that's nice to hear. And the guy was just kind of like describing like the table... And he was saying, I, I, you were one of the good players there, you know, but such and seat two was a fish, seat six was a fish. Like he, he was telling me who was the fish there and who was just kind of okay, who he thought was good. So he thought I was one of the good players at the table. So I was, I was happy to hear that. That meant, and he was pretty good, this guy. So like, I was happy to hear that from him. And I thought I played it pretty well. So I'd like to take another shot at that. So I'll play stud again, provided I can make it and uh, play all the Omaha events I can play. Of course, all the limit hold'em I can play, and of course, some 
No Limit, Hold'em, of course the main event. Seniors, I'm going to make sure to be there for that one. I do not want to miss the Seniors event. I had a lot of fun at the Seniors event. And I feel that now that I kind of know it better, that maybe it won't take me three bullets to get deep this time. <laughs> I, I was having a little hard time with, with handling the crazy and unpredictable play there. It was a very weird event, and I had to kind of get used to it for the first two bullets. And then I kind of got a hang of the way the play styles were there. They're still kind of weird and hard to predict, but I kind of got the hang of it by the third bullet, and then I made that one catch on. And I could have gotten even a lot deeper if I just didn't have some bad runs of cards at the last table I was at, where I felt really good. I felt really good at the last table. So I can't wait to take another shot at that. And hopefully we'll uh, have some deep runs this year. And as always, I will be providing a way for anyone who plays the World Series of Poker to live-tweet what is going on in their event, what their chips are, or whatever they want to say. And you can do it even without a forum account if you just do hashtag PFA and then the two-digit event number. And if it's a single-digit event number, you have to put a zero in front of it. So, like, event 7 would be PFA, hashtag PFA07. If it's event 23, hashtag PFA23, etc. And if you do that then it will automatically post on Poker Fraud Alert's World Series of Poker form. And you don't have to do anything further. I have a bot that I wrote that scans Twitter for this and then automatically posts it to Poker Fraud Alert. The only thing I have to do in advance is make a thread for each event where people are going to want to do this. So if you're going to want to play any event that I haven't posted up there, because I only post the ones I'm going to play or that others are going to play from Poker Fraud Alert that I'm aware of, but Anything else you'll have to tell me. So you can text me, 775-372-8355, and tell me what you're going to play, and I will make a thread for that event. Don't do it right now, because I haven't even made the 2023 World Series of Poker forum yet. But once I make that forum and start making those threads, then I'll announce it here, and you can let me know. Or you can even let me know just before you're going to play the event, and I'll add it for you. So that's something that's always open to anyone who's interested in doing it. And we do have people doing it each year. It's mainly for me, but... You can use it too, and you don't even need a forum account. And you can always follow along my play, and I'm going to do that again this year. We're on my Dandruff Poker Twitter account, which is a separate account from my regular one. My regular Twitter account is Todd Wittellis, but Dandruff Poker is only used to do World Series of Poker chip updates, and I give you a lot of updates. So whether you have a piece of me or not, if you just want to see how I'm doing or my observations about the table or about interesting things that are happening or interesting people that may be at my table with me, whatever it might be, whatever I observe that I think you might be interested in knowing about, then definitely follow that account and you'll get all of that. I made it a separate account because I had some people complaining that I made too many tweets otherwise of stuff they don't really care about. So if you don't care about how I'm doing or how my chip stack is looking and all that, then you won't like that account. But if you do like this stuff, if you do like following my progress there, then uh, definitely go ahead and follow it. And if you ever want to send me messages while I'm playing, you know, to the Dandruff Poker account, to uh, my main Todd Wittellis Twitter, if you want to text me, you can always do it. Some people are like, oh, I don't want to bother you when you're playing. No, you can. Because there's a lot of downtime in these events where you're just like sitting and waiting for hands to restart when you've already folded. So I have a lot of time. I'm just kind of sitting there waiting. So I'm happy to get messages and responding to you. You're never bothering me. 
And if you are bothering me, I'll just turn off the phone and I, I won't answer. I'm not going to get mad at you for, for texting me or for uh, messaging me while I'm playing. So don't worry about that. I know there's some people who are real sensitive about that. Like, oh, don't bother me when I'm playing. I'm not one of those guys. So you, you can feel free to bother me if you like. Don't troll me. Don't send me uh, obnoxious messages intending to piss me off. But if you just want to talk about it or if you want to comment about the event or ask me something or just ask anything, you, you're welcome to do so when I'm playing. You don't have to worry about that. So I'm looking forward to the World Series this year. And hopefully I won't get COVID. But I might. <laughs> the truth is I can get COVID any time. I last had COVID in June. It is now many months since June, as you all know. And the only thing that might be helping me right now is that I may have caught Omicron BA2 in June. In fact, that's the most likely variant I had. And if I did, then there's a decent chance that I am immune to the current dominant variant of COVID because that is an offshoot of BA2. So I've gotten lucky maybe in that sense, but another variant will show up soon enough and I'll be vulnerable again. So that's not going to be the only COVID I ever have. And if I get COVID at the World Series, then I can only hope it will be as mild as the one I got in 2022, because it was really nothing. It was like a cold. It was like a mild cold. It was very, very easy to deal with. The only thing hard was just staying away from everybody. But the illness itself was very, very minor. Story number two about girl poker drama. This is about Dr. Kamikaze. Dr. Kamikaze is a female. Until this week, a lot of people did not know who Dr. Kamikaze was. I did. I knew who Dr. Kamikaze was. In fact, Dr. Kamikaze blocked me some time ago. Why did he block me? I actually have no idea. I, I think I disagreed with some extreme political point of view she had at one point. But I just found one day I was blocked. And the reason I noticed this is that she was responding to somebody else's tweet sometime after she blocked me, and it showed that I couldn't read that response so then I, w I went uh, on incognito mode on Twitter, you know, not logged in, so I could see whose response I couldn't see, and I saw it was hers, and so I was like, okay, she blocked me. <laughs> and then I realized later that she was blocking pretty much everybody. She blocks tons of people. Like, if you say the slightest thing she disagrees with, she blocks you. She's notorious for that, apparently. But until this week, people hadn't paid that much attention to her. A lot of people didn't really know who she was. She's on Twitter as Dr. Kamikaze, you know, like Dr. Kamikaze, exactly as you would spell it. She looks like a butch lesbian to the point that some people think that she is a man. But I don't believe that she's a man. I don't believe she was ever a man. I don't think she's trans. I think this is just a butch lesbian. I think this is a girl who is just uh, very butch and is a lesbian and is very left-wing and has some very, very extreme points of view that she likes to express on Twitter, I think just to get attention and to rile people up. I do not believe that a lot of what she tweets she is doing because she's hoping to make the world a better place. I, I really think that she's somewhat of a Twitter troll, except she is tweeting things she really believes. But she's very aware when she tweets these things that it's going to get a reaction. She has these extreme viewpoints, and she wants to put them out there because she enjoys everyone getting outraged, and then she enjoys blocking people who disagree with her to further piss them off. So I believe that Dr. Kamikaze is somewhat of a troll, albeit one who believes what she puts out. That's my opinion of her. 
I said earlier when I was introducing the segment that I see her as a worse version of Vanessa Selfst, which I never thought I'd be able to say. Because Vanessa Selfst is a butch lesbian who is extreme left-wing, who puts out a lot of obnoxious commentary, who has very thin skin to where if you disagree with her, she will block you. At one point, Vanessa Selps even said that people who watch Fox News should not have the right to put their opinions out on Twitter. She really put that, that they should be censored. This is a lawyer, by the way. And she's also tweeted crazy things. I'm talking about Vanessa, not Dr. Kamikaze. She's tweeted things before that uh, she'd like to see President Trump assassinated, which is also really stupid because you can get arrested for that. She didn't, but she could have been. Vanessa Selps is a very unpleasant person. She has berated people at the poker table time and time again, both male and female. But despite all of that, I still think that Dr. Kamikaze is a worse version of Vanessa Selps. She's also not as good at poker as Vanessa Selps. <laughs> so, like everything you can say about Vanessa Selps, I, I think Dr. Kamikaze is worse, though they are similar. And the reason I feel Dr. Kamikaze is worse is her skin is even thinner than Vanessa Selps, which again is surprising that I'm even saying, but yes, it's true. So she blocks you a lot more easily than Vanessa will. And I believe she is tweeting a lot of what she tweets to get a reaction rather than just putting out her opinion. Right? I think Vanessa just puts out opinions that are very extreme and doesn't consider how people are going to view them and then gets angry when she gets negative responses. I think Dr. Kamikaze actually premeditates this and thinks about, okay, I'm going to put out this tweet. It's going to really piss everyone off. I'm going to get everyone really mad, and then I'm going to block people who disagree with me. So that's why I think she's worse. But anyway, I'll tell you what got all the attention this week. You can still see it. The tweet's still up there. In fact, it was first brought to Poker Fraud Alert's attention by Bart Hansen, who occasionally posts on the forum. And this is what Dr. Kamikaze tweeted. And I think Bart took notice because it was kind of indirectly an attack on him and several other people. It wasn't just at Bart, but he was one of the people she was referring to. And you'll understand why. She tweeted, challenge, name a poker training site that has even one coach who isn't a white man. Bonus points if you can name a trading site that has a single coach who is not white. And yes, this matters. Poker coaching has Lexi Gavin and me Hip Hop 101 Trivia has great content. Any others? And then she went on to tweet, For those who prefer a straight, white-only kind of poker vibe, I'm afraid I don't offer that. By the way, she's white. But I can recommend Chip Leader, Raise Your Edge, and Upswing. Sure, they charge excessively high prices, but that extra value of bigotry and closed-mindedness is worth paying up for. So this is a very, very, very backhanded compliment. So backhanded that the backhand slaps you in the face as it compliments you. She's saying that the poker coaching services Chip Leader, Raise Your Edge, and Upswing, and Upswing is Dub Polks, charge excessively high prices and that part of the value you're getting is bigotry and closed-mindedness. So in addition to getting good poker coaching, you're paying extra because they're bigots. And you're a bigot too if you're 
paying for coaching on upswing or chip leader or razor edge, according to Dr. Kamikaze. And that's why you're paying extra so you can get their bigotry because you're also a bigot. So, you know, the bigots are sticking together and paying extra to stick with other bigots, she's trying to say. So the, the whole point she's making here, and this is probably why Bart got offended too, because Bart is a uh, poker coach. He runs Crush Life Poker. And he's white and he's male. But she's trying to say that poker coaching is too white of a space. It's a white male space. So she's challenging people to name poker training sites that have any coaches that aren't white males. And then she's saying if they don't have poker coaches who are other than white males, that they must be bigoted and closed-minded. Now, here's the problem. How are poker coaches selected on these services? They tend to be selected because the person who owns the poker coaching service, who usually is also a poker coach themselves, they will recruit their friends to also be coaches that they think has something to offer. So let's say you're a really good no-limit cash player and uh, you're a white male. But then you have some friends who are good at mixed games and you have some other friends that are very good at multi-table tournaments and you have some other friends who are good at some uh, specific types of games like Omaha or Limit Hold'em or whatever it might be. And they have more expertise in these subjects than you. So you say, okay, I'll do all the No Limit Hold'em cash content because I think I'm the best one of the group of us at this game. And uh, I'll get the rest of my friends to do these other topics where they know more than I do. So that's how they're selected. They're not selecting poker coaches of, you know what? I'd like to hire this girl over here, but she's a female. We can't have a female poker coach because she's a girl. And this person over here, uh, he is not a girl, but he is black. And I don't want a black poker coach working for my company. So forget him. Ah, here's a guy. He's white and he's male and he's straight. Okay, perfect. We're picking him. That's not ever how it goes. They're just picking who they associate with. They're picking who their friends are. And, you know, a lot of times, and this is true across all races, that people tend to hang with their own kind. So a lot of white people tend to have mostly white friends. Not all white friends, but they tend to have mostly white friends, usually. And Asian people tend to have mostly Asian friends, usually. And black people tend to have mostly black friends, usually. And Hispanic people tend to have mostly Hispanic friends in most cases. And that's not bigoted. That's just who you're exposed to and also who you have more in common with culturally. It doesn't mean you're opposed to having friends who are of other races. It just means that you happen to have more association with or more in common with people who are more similar to you. And that's fine. And as long as you're open to having friends who don't look like you, as long as you don't reject people because they're of a different race, which really most people don't these days. I mean, maybe many decades ago people would. But I can tell you, in the 2020s, I can think of very few people that are in poker that wouldn't be friends with someone because they're of a different race. We're just way past that. Society's way past that. Save for a few mega bigots. Just about everybody else is past that. Just about everybody else is friends with whoever they get along with. 
and that's it. So that's why this is so stupid, is because poker coaches are not selected based upon their gender or their race or even their sexuality. They're just selected because the person who started the service knows them and knows that they have something to offer. I can tell you this, being a poker pro myself and being someone who has expertise at Limit Hold'em, and I do have things I could teach the average person about Limit Hold'em if they wanted to learn, but I'm not in any of these coaching services. And one of the reasons is because I am not friendly with anyone who runs these services. I'm not saying I hate them all. I don't even really hate any of them, but I'm not friends with any of them. So it just never came up. There was never any occasion for me to talk to them and offer to be a coach or for them to ask me to be a coach because we just don't really know each other well. We may know of each other, but we don't have any kind of real relationship where that would have come up. Now, I could have tried harder. I could have tried to go to all these services and say, hey, I have a limit hold'em bracelet and I am 12th all time in uh, limit hold'em caches at the World Series as far as the amount cashed. And that's true. If you, can, you can go look that up if you want. And uh, I've had uh, a long time decades-long success in Limit Hold'em cash games to this day. So I, I could tout all of that, and there's a lot of people out there who could back this up. And maybe some of them would hire me, especially because Limit Hold'em is kind of an older game that uh, a lot of the newer players now who are, who are very good at other variants, just they're not that good at it because they haven't played it very much. So, yeah, I, I possibly could get on one of these services and make some Limit Hold'em videos, I haven't tried, but also nobody has approached me about it. And the reason they haven't approached me is just because I am not close to these people. And that really is what determines, for the most part, who gets hired. Number one, who you know, who you're friends with, and also how hard you try to put yourself out there. I don't know any of these poker coaching services that would turn down a potential coach who is a good player and has a lot to teach just because they're black or they're female or they're gay or whatever it might be. I think the only way they would be turned down is if they had a bad reputation for some reason. If they had a reputation for being a jerk or for being a cheater or for being someone very dramatic that's always causing issues and being controversial. Maybe just they, they don't like them personally from their Twitter persona or the persona they've seen on TV. Those can be reasons you'd be turned down but never just for the race or the gender or the sexual preference. So this is just a garbage take. This is just one of these stupid left-wing takes where you look at some space where there's not even demographics according to the population, and you say, oh, this must be because of bigotry. And you can't say that. Because there's many other reasons why there can be disproportionate representation that has nothing to do with any kind of bigotry. So there was a lot of pushback on this, and she was just blocking everybody. Block, 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 block. However, there were some people, a lot of the uh, poker social justice warriors on Twitter, of which we unfortunately have many, who are trying to give Dr. Kamikaze a chance. They're saying, wait a minute. Now, yeah, she is not exactly putting this in a delicate manner, but hey, that's just her style. You know, good for her. She's, she's putting out a topic we need to talk about. This is serious stuff. Okay, yeah, she's being a bit obnoxious, but it's fine. She's bringing up something good we need to discuss. 
So let's not just dismiss her, some people were saying. And others were saying, including some people on the left, were saying, no, 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 you don't know her. She is always trying to agitate. She's always trying to cause trouble. One of the funny things was because her gender is not apparent unless you really look closely, a lot of people were assuming she was a dude and kept referring to her as he. (laughs) Including Bart. Bart thought it was a guy. And Dr. Kamikaze kind of... It sounds like more like a male name than a female name, so that, that also contributes to it. But anyway, putting that aside, there were a number of people who kept saying, no, 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 you just have to ignore this person because they're just trying to agitate. They're trying to cause trouble. They're not bringing this up in good faith. And one of the people doing it, I'll give him credit for this. He's been on the show before. And he and I will often argue pretty vigorously on Twitter. And that is Andrew Barber. Andrew Barber is very left-wing, and I disagree with him a lot about politics and about a lot of social matters. And he can be very frustrating to deal with on Twitter. And we've had some very vigorous arguments. At some points, he's even considered blocking me. He's never blocked me, but he's talked about how he's considered blocking me. Even though, like, when he's come on the show, he's, he's gotten along with me very well. And when I've seen him in person, we get along very well. So I don't even dislike Andrew Barber at all. Like, personally, when I've seen him in person, when I've spoken to him directly, he's a nice, intelligent guy. But, like, on Twitter, he he brings up these very obnoxious left-wing takes and then just gets uh, very, very, very opinionated, and he isn't very tolerant of the other side's opinion in many cases. Once in a while, he is, but usually he isn't. And so he can be very frustrating to deal with on Twitter. I'm sure he feels the same way about me. I've never thought of blocking him. I don't do that. But he's actually occasionally mentioned how he's thought about blocking me. But I will give him credit here. Because despite being very left-wing, despite being one who usually would take a position here that would be, hey, let's discuss this, let's talk about why there's so many white male coaches, Andrew Barber was telling all the people who were telling everyone else to give Dr. Kamikaze a chance, Andrew Barber was saying no. No, this person has a history of not arguing in good faith, he said. He said, look in their history, look at their body of work, referring to what they've posted on Twitter in the past. You will see this is not someone you should take seriously. And he was 100% correct. And I give him credit there because this is a fellow left winger. And he's saying, no, this person is, is someone who is just trying to agitate. So I'll give him credit for that, for pointing out that she's basically a troll. Well, she pretty much proved it. There was a lot of arguing back and forth because Matt Berkey got involved and, and he was trying to defend the poker coaching space. And of course, he has a big poker coaching service, uh, Solve for Why. Now, he has uh, people that work with him that are not white males. For example, that uh, Conrad guy who's on his Only Friends show, and I believe is also a coach with his service, is black. And uh, Christian Soto is Hispanic. So you definitely can't say that Berkey is a, is a bigot. But uh, uh, she, she was trying to say he was, and she was trying to say all these other people at poker are bigots as well. So she, she was really just trying to piss everybody off. But she really exposed how extreme she was when she blocked arguably one of the most left-wing people on Twitter. Jennifer Newell, who's writer Jen on Twitter... She does very good work when it comes to poker reporting, and she did a lot of reporting on the Postle situation. 
she's done a lot of reporting on a lot of other situations that have come up in the poker world. And usually, if it does not have any kind of, like, social justice sort of topic to it, if it's just a general poker topic that doesn't have to do with anything uh, political or social, we agree. Because she's smart, and she's logical when it comes to stuff like that. So, like, we're usually on the same side with that sort of thing. And when it comes to stuff like that, we get along very well. And in fact, I've even told people before that I recommend hiring her to write articles covering this type of thing because she does a good job covering this type of material and is thorough and, and she presents it well. So when I've seen people like looking for poker writers, they say, oh, this is one person you can consider. I also mentioned Haley Hintz. So I don't let our differences politically, which are extreme, like we were extremely different politically. And she gets very frustrated with me, much like uh, Andrew Barber does. She also uh, will get very mad at me for strongly disagreeing with her politics, even though I, I present it very respectfully. I'm always careful with all these people to present it very respectfully when I disagree. But they get very angry because they don't enjoy this disagreement. You would think that the least likely person to block when you're trying to make the case about uh, white males dominating the poker space would be Jennifer Newell, because she really is probably one of the most left-wing people on poker Twitter. I think even she would admit that. And what ended up happening? Yep, you guessed it. For no good reason, she blocked Jennifer Newell. And Jennifer Newell was trying to argue for her. Jennifer Newell was trying to say, let's hear her out. Let's give her a chance. And it's, I don't even know why. Jennifer doesn't know why. She found herself blocked by Dr. Kamikaze. And Andrew Barber's like, see, see, I told you. I told you. See, you're going to tell me why I was right now? So he was gloating about the fact that he was telling Jennifer publicly not to listen to Dr. Kamikaze and... Jennifer kept saying, let's give her a chance, and then Jennifer gets blocked. So you know if Jennifer's getting blocked from the left-wing standpoint, I guess I guess Jennifer Newell wasn't left-wing enough for Dr. Kamikaze. And if you know Jennifer Newell, that's crazy. That is absolutely insane to block Jennifer Newell for not being left-wing enough. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But that's, that's what I... That's, that's just indicative of what Dr. Kamikaze is about. This isn't about bringing up a real discussion topic. This isn't about making any change. This isn't about convincing people. It's about saying outrageous things that she probably believes and pissing people off and blocking them and getting attention from blocking them. So This is someone who is a troll. And you have to know that. And some people will think trolls are only people who write things they don't believe. But some trolls write things they do believe, but they know it'll piss people off. And she's that type of troll. And there's right-wing trolls like that, and there's left-wing trolls like that. She's a left-wing troll like that. And just because she's a lesbian and female, and you, know, you, you can't just say, well, she's a minority in poker because she's a lesbian, and we, we got to be respectful. No, if if she's a troll, and she's obnoxious, and she's posting things just to agitate, you should just ignore her. You shouldn't take anything she says seriously. So people are finally learning that. 
It's, it really is a dumb discussion, though. If you can present any evidence that there's actual racism in the poker coaching space where someone got turned down because of their race to be a coach, well, yeah, sure, put it out there. But don't just go by demographics. Because you have to understand how these coaches become coaches in the first place. And if you don't understand that, then you can't comment. And once you understand it, then you will know there's no racism. You could say there's nepotism, but there's no racism. Okay, so moving on. All right, so moving on to our our final female in poker topic. This is a topic that I knew I'd have to do one day. I knew I would have to do this topic as soon as the whole trans thing became very big in Western society. Transsexuals have been around for many decades, in fact, before I was even born. And for those decades, transsexuals lived among us, and we knew they existed, but we really didn't think about them very much. And there really wasn't very much talk about them, and the goal of transsexual people was to appear and live as the opposite sex, whether it was male-to-female transsexuals or female-to-male transsexuals. In fact, the term transgender did not exist then. It was transsexual because it was seen as you switching from one to the other, from the sex you were born with to the other sex. And there were two sexes, male and female. It was far more common for male-to-female transsexuals to exist than female-to-male. Now we are seeing the opposite occurring with the whole transgender explosion that has been occurring in Western society, which has become very controversial. Now, I'm not going to get into all that. That's a whole topic in itself and a very controversial one, as I just mentioned. But there is an element to it that we do have to address because it will play into the discussion I'm about to have. And that is about transgender women in ladies' events. Because there are ladies' events in poker. And when I say ladies' events, I'm talking about poker. I'm not talking about women's sports, which is a whole different issue. I'm talking about poker. Ladies' events in poker, like the World Series of Poker ladies' event. Whether transgender women, that is males who transitioned to be female, if they should be allowed in ladies' poker events. And, more importantly, what should determine eligibility to be in them if the answer is they should be? So... If you're okay with transgender women being in ladies' poker events, what is a transgender woman? And that's not a simple question to answer. You're probably aware of a documentary that was released in 2022 by a conservative YouTuber named Matt Walsh, who works for the Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's company. And Matt Walsh became much better known through that documentary, and that was called What is a Woman? And this was a documentary where Matt went around various left-wing and academic spaces and kept asking that basic question. Define what is a woman? And the whole gimmick of that documentary was that nobody he talked to could clearly define what a woman is and isn't. They would give a lot of roundabout answers like, well, a woman is an adult human female. It's like, what is that? Well, a woman is someone who identifies as female. 
You say, okay, but what does that mean? When is someone a woman versus not a woman? Well, you're not a woman if you don't identify as female. You're like, okay, but if someone identifies as female, does that always make them a woman? So he would ask questions like that, and they would have a very hard time answering and giving him clear criteria what makes a woman. Now, maybe you're on the side where you believe that anybody who identifies as a woman is a woman in your eyes. But hold on, it's not that simple. So none of you believe that I am a woman. I'm pretty sure of that. None of you believe that I've ever had gender dysphoria, and none of you believe that I'm transgender. And you'd be correct, because I'm not transgender. I never was transgender. I never will be transgender. I don't have gender dysphoria. I'm completely fine with being male. But what if tomorrow I stated I'm a woman, but I made no effort to look like a woman. I kept my mustache and beard. I wore all the same clothes that I've been wearing prior to claiming I was a woman. I didn't change anything about myself, personality or looks or anything that would indicate that I was a woman. But I just started saying, starting tomorrow, that I'm a woman. Would you believe me? Would you be able to consider me a woman? Well, if you would, you'd be stupid, because that wouldn't make any sense. That would be me screwing with you. Because a woman has to mean something. You can't just take the term, I'm a woman, and then be the exact same way that you were when you were a man. The reason the term trans is used is you're transitioning to something else. And if you're not doing any transitioning, if you're the exact same way as before, then you're not trans. So there has to be some criteria. And I'm not just talking about anything in poker. I'm talking about just in general. There has to be some criteria of where someone really is trans and where someone who is born male really can be considered a woman. Now, there are some people who believe you absolutely cannot be the other gender. So if you're born male, some people believe you're forever male, no matter what you change, no matter what surgeries you have, no matter what hormones you take, no matter how you appear, that you're still a man. Or if you were born female, you're always still a woman, no matter how much you try to look like a man. There's some people who believe that. But I'm not even taking that position here. I'm taking the position here that if we are willing to accept people being the opposite gender when they are having some kind of gender dysphoria and deciding to transition, that there does have to be some sort of transition. There has to be some sort of change that would make them into a woman. And just saying I'm a woman doesn't mean anything. For a woman to mean something, then there would have to be a change that would take place that would define what would make a woman versus a man. Otherwise, they're just meaningless terms. They're completely meaningless if they don't have some criteria behind them. So the reason I'm giving you this speech is not to ignite a big debate about this. The reason I'm giving you this speech is because deciding that transgender women can enter ladies' events in poker is not so simple. Because it's easy to say, okay, poker is not a physical undertaking. So a male, a biological male in poker does not have any innate advantage over a biological female in poker because there's nothing athletic going on. It's something with your mind that you're doing. So a female 
can theoretically be the very best player in the world at poker. Now, at the moment, there is not a female who is considered the very best in the world, but there are some who are considered very, very good and and getting close. And I wouldn't be surprised one day if we do have a female in poker who becomes the best player in the world one day. Hasn't happened yet, but it could. And a lot of what's holding it back is just there's far more interest in poker by males. So there's a lot more males that have the potential to rise up and become the best. So some of, it is, some of it's just a numbers game. So I will agree that males that transition to female can play a ladies' event and there's no inherent advantage they're getting like they would in sports. Like, I feel it is very unfair for transgender women, that is, men who transition to female, to enter women's sports because there they have a tremendous advantage with having a male body. A, even if it's a body that's changed somewhat through hormones or surgery, they still have a lot of advantages in having been born male that allows them to have a much higher ceiling and how good they can become at these sports. And that's why you're seeing these trans females setting all kinds of records in women's sports and just blowing them away. That's why you're seeing mediocre male athletes switch over to become female and then they're number one ranked. It's very unfair. The reason we have women's sports is because women are at an athletic disadvantage compared to males. Now, yes, very athletic women are better at these sports than the average male, but the average female athlete is far worse than the average male athlete, and the top female athletes would not even be an average male athlete. There's just such a huge difference, especially at the top. The ceiling for females in athletics is so much lower than for males. It's just a physiological difference. So letting biological males into these sports, no matter what they've done to transition, isn't fair. And we're seeing that in these records where they're just dominating these sports that they join. So I don't know how anyone is for that. It's very unfair to girls. It runs counter to the whole point of why we have women's sports. Because if we didn't have women's sports, and it's just, okay, whoever's the best gets on the team, well, women would not get on any teams because it would be all men. Because even average men at the sport would be better than the best women. That's why we have women's sports, knowing that women are not as good because of differences in their bodies. But in poker, it's different. In poker, there is no such disadvantage that women have. So for that reason, and I think most people would agree with this, it is okay for transgender women to enter ladies' events. And in fact, I would think that most Females that are not trans, which are referred to as cisgender females or natural females, I think that most of them would not mind having trans women in the events. There would probably be a few that wouldn't like it, but I think most of them wouldn't mind it. And none of them are going to feel it's like really unfair. But the question really comes, how do you determine who qualifies? Because there is a perception, and it's to be honest, a true perception that these ladies' events have softer fields. And it's not because women are naturally inferior at poker, but it's because a lot of women enter these events who are inexperienced at poker, and they like that to be their first event. They feel it's a, 
an easier way to introduce themselves to poker tournaments. So a lot of women who are very, very new to the game and don't know much, much about the game and frankly aren't very good, they enter these ladies' events. So therefore, the field is far weaker than the average tournament. So some males like to enter these things to exploit that, and they don't care if people criticize them or make fun of them or shame them on Twitter. They don't give a crap. They just want to make money. So you have to find ways to prevent that. In some states, you're actually allowed to separate these tournaments by gender and simply not allow males to enter. And in other states, like Nevada, you can't do it, but you can put on other requirements that would dissuade males from entering, like the World Series charges $10,000 for males to enter the ladies' event and 1000 for females. And that is legal in Nevada. And that's how the World Series gets around it. And that's why very, very few males enter these days, because no matter how good a value they think it is, entering for $10,000 kills that value. They're, they're paying 10 times the buy-in. So that kills whatever they were trying to gain from the whole thing. So that was a good solution. It worked. Now, the growing problem of males entering the ladies' event at the World Series went away. But what about trans females? If you say, okay, they can enter, well then, what is a trans female? And it goes back to Matt Walsh's question, what is a woman? And if you can't define that in concrete terms, then you have to let anyone register for the World Series of Poker ladies' event or any other ladies' event if they say they're female, no matter how they look and no matter how they have been identifying in the past. Now, the way they've been doing it has been with ID. So if your ID says female, then no matter how you look or no matter what genitalia you were born with, you could enter a ladies' event. And this has always been the case at the World Series, too. And if your ID says male, then you can't. And that's that. In fact, if you were a female-to-male trans, you were born female but now identify as male and your ID says male, you actually can't enter the ladies' event, even if you still have uh, all the parts that a female would have. It's actually going by your ID, and I think that's the correct way to do it. But there is a little bit of a problem. There are some states that do not allow you to change your gender on your ID unless you have had what's known as bottom surgery and you can prove it. Now, you don't have to pull down your pants and show them, but you have to show documentation that you actually had your genitalia changed. So you had to either have your penis changed to a vagina or a vagina changed to a penis. And contrary to what a lot of people believe, most trans people do not undergo that surgery. Most of them keep their original genitalia because it's a very expensive surgery and it has a lot of undesirable side effects and risks to it. So they just don't do it. That's really the case with both. As a result, a lot of people who are trans still have their original genitalia for whatever they were born with. So some states do not allow you to switch your gender on your ID for that reason. Trans women, which are born male, in states like that, still have ID saying male, even if they live every day as female, even if they've had uh, breasts surgically put on, even if uh, 
they do everything they can aside from this bottom surgery, even if they've done everything else and they've lived as females for years, they can't get an ID saying female. So they're saying, hey, why should we be shut out of these ladies' events if we can't get that idea because of where we live? So this question came up. And I didn't even know about this ID situation until this discussion happened on Twitter. But what I did know was that I was seeing increasingly absurd viewpoints on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere on the internet that you are whatever gender you say you are, and that's all you have to do. Once you say you're a gender, you're that gender. That's it. You don't have to show anything. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to change anything. You can be a big, burly dude with a big, thick beard, and you can keep wearing your male clothes, and you can act just like a stereotypical dude. But if you say you're a woman, they, they got to call you a woman. They have to dress you as she if that's what you want. And if you don't, then you're transphobic, which I think is absurd. I think it's crazy. Like, if you're that happy with being a stereotypical male and you were born male, then guess what, dude? You're male. You're not a woman. And I've seen even more of that the other way. I've seen very stereotypical females who are claiming that they're male, yet they will not go as far to do anything to make themselves look or act or really take on any characteristics of being male. They just want to say they're male. So if everything about you is female and you were born female, then you're not a man. If everything about you is male and you were born a male, then you're not a woman. But then there's cases in between. So what about a guy who is attempting to wear a dress and put on makeup and wear a wig or grow his hair out, whatever, but he's not on hormones, he hasn't had any surgery, It just kind of looks like a guy who threw on a dress. If he goes to register for the World Series Ladies event and his ID still has his original male name and it says male, do you let him register? Like think of Sean Deeb when he did that joke and registered for the ladies event. I think around like 2010 he did this and he put on makeup and he wore a dress and other guys did this too. Like, Sean D, he was not trans. He was not having gender dysphoria. He was just doing this for a gag. But, yeah, he showed up in a dress and makeup. So, was Sean D female? Well, obviously not. He was a dude who was dressing in drag as a joke. But what if he said he was female? Would that make him female? If just that one day he put on the dress and the, and the makeup, but says, okay, I'm female now. Can you tell him no? Can you say, no, you're not? Well, according to a lot of people who are fanatical with this gender ideology, you can't say that. You have to say, okay, well, from now on, you're she. I don't believe in that. I believe that there are a certain percentage of people who have true gender dysphoria where they just are not happy in in the body that they were born, and they, it causes them great anguish and psychological distress that they are not the body of the opposite sex. So females, they, they're very depressed that they have breasts. They're very depressed they don't have a penis. They, they really, really wish they were a man. They look at men. They say, oh, I wish I looked like that. I wish I didn't have these parts. And then the same thing with males who wish they were female. And then it's, it's not just kind of that they wish. It's like it really bothers them to where it consumes them that they're that stressed out being in what they feel is the wrong body. 
that's very tragic that some people are like this. And if the only way to be happy is to transition, then fine. I don't think they should do it as kids. In fact, I'm very sure they shouldn't do this as kids. But if you're an adult and that's what you want to do, fine. But I think that's a small percentage of those who are claiming they're trans now. I think it's just become a thing that's cool for people to claim they are. From the poker sense, since there's an advantage to enter these ladies' events, you have to make sure that the trans women that are entering are really trans women and not just people who are throwing on a dress Sean Deeb style and claiming that they're entering. But how do you tell the difference? Because you can't look into their brain and understand the intention. So this subject came up this week when a trans woman named Ariel, who's in Florida, wanted to enter a World Series circuit event in Florida. Ariel is a male-to-female trans This person, I do believe, really is transgender. They have had surgery to have breasts. They live every day as a female. They've done this for years. So this is someone I do believe has gender dysphoria and did this to try to find some internal peace. I have no problem calling this person she- I have no problem treating this person as female. I understand there's some people who feel they need to do this, and she was one of them. So if Ariel was in a ladies' event, I wouldn't say, hey, what are you doing here, dude? I wouldn't say, hey, throw this person out. I wouldn't say, oh, this is a guy exploiting it. I'd actually be fine with Ariel appearing in World Series of Poker or other ladies' events, because this person clearly isn't faking it. So Ariel's point was, hey, look, it's clear I'm not faking it. You can see even on my ID that I look like a female. You can see I'm presenting as female on my ID that I have a, an, I've changed my name. So I've got a female name. I've got a female appearance. I have breasts. Common sense would show you that I'm not exploiting this so I can enter ladies' events as a man. I'm just not a man anymore. I was once a man. I'm not a man anymore. So please let me into the ladies' events. That's, that's her point. And on the surface, that sounds fine. But the thing is here, you have to have a policy, not just for Ariel herself. You have to have a policy across the World Series for who is allowed to enter a ladies' event and who is not. You can't just go by how they look, because what about a less feminine-looking trans person? Are you saying they don't get in and Ariel does? Or what about someone who is, was born female and looks very manly. Just a bush female, like Dr. Kamikaze, for example, or Vanessa Selbst. Saying they can't enter because they look male, so you can't go by looks. You can't say, well, you look female enough, you can come on. It's not like that, because there has to be a concrete policy that doesn't require the subjective identification of who's a male and a female. It needs to be something concrete that you can either say 100% yes or 100% no. And that's very tough here. If you're not doing it by ID, which is concrete then how do you do it? Ariel's point is that she lives in a state which does not allow you to list yourself as female unless you get that bottom surgery to get your dick cut off and that she doesn't want to do it. She says she can't afford it, but there's other reasons they don't do it as well. So she's saying, well, just because I don't do that, why I can't play ladies' events. And it's not fair. 
So I kept asking. I originally just gave her an answer like you you just can't play because it goes by your ID. Sorry. I wasn't trying to editorialize. But then she and a number of other trans poker players as well as uh, some social justice warriors were arguing with me and were telling me that I'm being transphobic and that I'm being bigoted. And I wasn't even saying that she shouldn't be in the event. In fact, I kept repeating that I have no problem with trans women in the events, provided they are real trans women. And then I got one saying, oh, a real trans woman? That just shows your attitude. You know, who are you to say who's real? I'm like, well, no, yeah, I am someone to say who's real. Like Sean Deeb, when he was in the ladies' event, he was not a real trans woman. Any dude who goes and puts on a dress to get in these events and says he's trans when he really isn't is not a real trans woman. A real trans woman is a former male who transitioned to female, who lives full-time as female, and has been doing so for quite some time and didn't just change days or weeks before the World Series. Someone who's put considerable effort forth into living full-time as a female and has for a while. That, that's a trans female, in my opinion, and I think anyone who's common sense would be working properly would say that is a trans female as opposed to someone who wakes up and says, okay, I'm a girl now. That, that's not a trans female. But it, it is very hard for someone at the World Series who is taking registrations. You can have the cashier looking, hmm, do you look female enough? Let me see your breasts. Uh, have you gotten a surgery here? Okay, yeah, your breasts look big enough. Okay, we'll let you register as female. Like, you can't do that. It's, it's, it's got to be a hard and fast rule either way. So nobody could present a solution to me. And nobody went as far as saying, well, anyone who says they're female can register, but they were strongly implying it. They were strongly trying to get across the point that anything short of that is transphobic and is going to discriminate against trans women. And I said, look, none of these are going to be ideal. In the ideal situation, there would be a magic way to determine who is a legitimate trans woman and let them play and shut out everybody else. But a random person shows up that isn't known. I'm not talking about someone that's known in poker to be a longtime trans woman or someone in poker who is known not to be a longtime trans woman that just abruptly shows up in a dress. I'm talking about just some unknown person who you really haven't heard of before. Shows up at the poker cashier and they're wearing a dress and they've got makeup on and they say, okay, my ID says male, but I'm a trans female. Let me play. What do you say? How do you, how do you determine it? What does the cashier say at that point? And if the answer is the cashier says, sure, go ahead and register, then any dude, including me, could register for these ladies' events and play. And I think that's a big problem. And I think that brings us right back to the Sean Deeb problem we had all those years ago that has already been solved. So I kept saying, we can't bring back the old problem that has been solved. I understand why you want to play, but we can't bring back the old problem to solve the issue because we were bringing back a bigger problem. Furthermore, I pointed out that they are able to play every event that they could before. That what they're looking to do is add eligibility. It's not like since they became a trans female that now there's a bunch of events they can't play anymore and they're looking to get equality. They are able to play the exact same number of events 
that they were when they were male. And now they're just looking to add to it because there's no male-only events. So they, they don't lose anything by transitioning to female. But they're looking to gain something. Which, again, I'm fine with, but if they can't get it because it's too hard to adjudicate without having an ID change, then they're really not losing anything because they didn't have it in the first place. For example, I don't feel discriminated against that I can't play the ladies' event. I don't feel discriminated against that there is a ladies' event and no men's event. I just say, okay, there's a ladies' event. I understand why they have it. They're trying to introduce more females to the game. It's a nice thing for women to be able to do, and it's a less competitive environment. Okay, that's fine. Good for poker. No big deal. It doesn't bother me that I can't play it. If I was female, I would play it, but it doesn't bother me I can't play it. So I don't feel like I'm being discriminated against. So similarly, someone who has transitioned to be female, while I can understand why they'd want to play it, if they can't play it, they still have access to all the same events they had before. They have not lost anything from transitioning. So that's not the same thing. That's not discrimination. Discrimination would be if they were being kept out of something because of who they are. Like if they tried to register for the World Series and someone said, hey, we don't want any trannies in this World Series, so get out of here. We're banning you. That would be discrimination. But just saying you're eligible for all the events that you were before until you get your ID to change and say female, and if you can't get that change because of where you live, I'm sorry, but there's nothing we can do. That's not discrimination. It's just they have to come up with some solution. And an imperfect solution is sometimes going to be imperfect for certain people. That's why it's called an imperfect solution. Sometimes there is no perfect solution. So it was then suggested that why can't they just evaluate this on an individual basis? Why can't people just either contact the tournament director in advance or present themselves to the tournament director since there won't be that many of them? since we're not going to have 500 trans women trying to register, why can't the few who want to play just arrange this in advance for exceptions to be made? Well, I'll tell you why. This is the type of thing that will work until it doesn't. So yes, trans women like Ariel, you can understand how tournament directors would say it's okay. And by the way, Ariel did end up getting permission to play this event, the circuit event in Florida, presumably doing just that. She claims the, quote, World Series let her play, but I think it was really contacting a local tournament director there and saying, hey, can I play? And the tournament director probably said, yeah, okay, sure. So let's picture that this Ariel person, that she contacts for this World Series coming up in the summer in Las Vegas, she contacts Jack Effel and says, hey, I'm a trans woman. My ID says male. There's no way I can get a change. Can I still play the ladies' event without paying the extra 9000 bucks? And I've been trans for years now, and my ID shows this picture and a female name. It all makes sense. It's, it, you know, by common sense, I'm a trans female. I'm not exploiting anything. Maybe Jack would look at that and say, okay, fine, go ahead and play. But that's an easy case. What about someone who is a more recent trans woman? Because someone at some point decides that they're going to transition. At some point, you make the decision 
to go from male to female. So what if that point happened to be three weeks ago? So three weeks ago, let's say uh, in early May 2023, a male decides he's going to transition to female. Not for the World Series purpose, just because he's decided to finally do it. He's been considering it for a long time. He's had these feelings for a long time. He's kind of fought them off. He finally decided, I can't take it anymore. I've got to become a female. And he starts the process. But he hasn't gotten the hormone treatments yet. He hasn't uh, gotten any kind of surgery yet because it's only been three weeks. So he's gone as far as uh, getting women's clothes, wearing makeup, and uh, doing all he can on that front. And so he shows up at the World Series, and then he goes to meet with Jack Effel and says, hey, uh, can you let me in? I'm a trans woman. I'd like to play. But all Jack Effel sees is a dude showing up in a dress and makeup. How does Jack Effel separate that from somebody who just puts on a dress for that day and says the same thing. How? If he doesn't know this person, how can he do it? So the first time that Jack Affel or uh, any other World Series official says no, that's going to cause a huge problem because they're going to cry discrimination. They're going to say, oh, well, you're not letting me play because I don't look female enough. Because I don't have breasts yet. Because I'm not on hormones yet. Because I haven't been trans long enough yet. Who are you to decide that just because I became trans two days ago that I'm not trans? They may, we may even have ones like these ridiculous trans I see sometimes on Facebook who look completely like the gender they were born. Dudes with full beards that are claiming that they're female. What if they go up to Jack Effel and walk up there in male clothes and facial hair and say, hey, I'm a woman, I'd like to play. And I may not look like a woman, but... I feel like I'm a woman. I identify as a woman. I put on my Twitter profile, my pronouns are she and her. So I'd like to play. And if Jack were to say no, then this could invite a lawsuit. This could invite a lot of allegations on social media about transphobia. And you may say, well, that's ridiculous. People will laugh that person off. No, they won't. There will be a lot of people on their side. And that's what's so crazy. Because I know because I've argued with these people before. I've had arguments on Facebook and on Twitter where people legitimately are trying to tell me that a dude in male clothes and a full beard who says he's a woman is a woman. So if these people agree that this dude is a woman, despite making no effort at all to appear like a woman, then people will feel the same way about the World Series. So the first one of those people that's denied, it's going to become a big issue again. So that's why the World Series needs to get ahead of this and make a concrete policy. And I think the one they had already was a good one, which is just, if your ID says female, you can enter. If it doesn't say female, you can't. And yeah, it's going to shut a few people out, but that's the way it goes. That's the way the ball bounces. And again, these people aren't losing anything. They're just not gaining. In a perfect world, they gain one more event, but you know they can't because of their ID. I made a comparison. Say that there's a country where the passports, for whatever reason, don't show your date of birth. I don't know if such a country exists, but let's say one of the countries that when they issue passports, it just doesn't show date of birth. And let's say that person is 50. So they come to the World Series, and they say, I want to play the World Series Seniors event, and I can because I'm 50. And so they show their passport as their only form of ID, and the cashier looks and can't find a date of birth and says, what's your date of birth? I can't see it here. Where is it? Oh, I'm sorry, we, our country doesn't print that on here. Well, can you 
provide any official documents that would prove your date of birth. No, I can't, but I'm 50, and look, I have gray hair, and look, I look 50, and I just, I just can't prove it to you because my passport doesn't show it, says this person. Do you think you should grant them entry to the seniors event? The answer is no, because there's a very clear rule for the seniors event at the World Series of Poker, that you have to have a government document showing that you are 50 as of the date of that tournament. And if you are not, you can't play. If you're not, or if you can't prove it, you can't play. So even if you really are 50, but just can't show a government document that you are 50, then you can't play, even if it's not your fault, even if you're from a country where that date of birth isn't printed. If you can't show it, you can't play. And that should be the rule. And you can't say, oh, you're discriminating against this person from this country because they're really 50 and you're not letting them play anyway. Because they can't prove it and you don't know if the guy's lying. You don't know if the guy's 45 and saying he's 50 so he can get into the seniors event. I would have loved to enter the seniors event when I'm 45. But I could not. I had to wait until last year when I turned 50. So I made that comparison and they were saying, oh, it's so different. But I'm going, no, it's really not. <laughs> it's, it's, again, a case where you may be something, but you can't prove it because of some limitations of where you live. And again, you're just not gaining something rather than losing something. So I don't know what the World Series is going to ultimately do. It kind of looks like they're taking the path of least resistance and kind of staying away from making any hard rule about this and just hoping they can handle these behind the scenes. That may be what they're really doing. They may be hoping that the few trans women that want to enter, they just kind of speak to them offline and say, hey, uh, just talk to us individually and we'll make a decision on a case-by-case basis. But this has all the ingredients to go wrong for the reasons I said. And notice something, before I close this topic, notice something. I am not making the case at all that trans women shouldn't be in ladies' events in poker. I'm fine with that. And a lot of conservatives would say no to that. So even though I am a conservative, I'm trying to be open-minded here. And I'm trying to respect those who have transitioned to female, to treat them like a female, and let them into a female space where it's not doing any harm. And that's very different than letting them into women's sports, which I don't support. But something like this, because it makes common sense to support, I'm okay with it. But only if you're not breaking something else. And by just letting anyone who self-identifies as a woman in is breaking something else, and it brings back an old problem that we already had solved. Here's a bonus topic wasn't planning to cover this, but throwing it in anyway. Lammers are a thing of the past, at least at the World Series of Poker. What are lammers? Or shall I say, what were lammers? Lammers were chips you would win for cashing in a satellite at the World Series of Poker. They had no cash value. They only had value in entering other satellites or World Series of Poker events. Or I guess any kind of World Series of Poker related events, like the Deep Stacks, I guess you could enter them too. But it has to be something at the World Series of Poker that you would buy into. That's all the Lammers were good for. And 
you could not sell them to Caesars. You could unofficially sell them to other players. And over the last few years, Caesars has started getting funny about that. And they were going back and forth as to whether Lammers were transferable or not. And we've discussed that before in the show. And the policy was getting very murky. And I wasn't liking that. This is one of these things which, again, similar to the gender policy with the ladies' event, I felt they needed to clarify one way or the other, and they weren't. And I kind of felt that was intentional. Because they just didn't want to deal with it either way. They, they wanted people entering these satellites, but they, they also did not want to explicitly say it's okay to sell the lammers to others because they could get into legal trouble. And the reason they can get into legal trouble is that there is only one currency allowed to be used to pay debts in this country, and that is the U.S. dollar. And uh, that is why, for example, it is uh, technically not allowed for you to give someone a casino chip to pay a debt. So let's say I owe you $1,000 and you see me around the World Series of Poker. And I go, oh, okay, that's convenient because uh, I have this uh, $1,000 chip I just won playing blackjack. So uh, I was just about to go to the cashier, but you know what? I'll just hand this to you. You go cashing it at the cashier. There's $1,000. Now, I don't owe you anything anymore. Now, we could probably get away with that because uh, all you'd have to do is walk up to the cashier and claim that it was your chip and you want it. And uh, they're probably not going to ask many questions for only $1,000. But let's say I gave you uh, $10,000 in chips. Let's say I gave you two $5,000 chips. They probably would ask you, where did you win these? What table were you playing at? Did you use a player's card? When was it? And if it doesn't match with their records or what they have on camera, then they will actually confiscate the chips. And they have a right to do that. Why? Because if you can't show that these were your chips, then it is assumed that you got them from somebody else, which means you can't cash them. And in fact, you can't even have them in your possession. Because they cannot be used as currency to satisfy debts. Now, I've never understood how you're allowed to tip the cocktail waitress with chips. But somehow that has never been challenged. But there have been people who've had chips confiscated at the cashier for admitting that they got them from somebody else. Even if it is to pay a legitimate debt. In fact, this happened to Nolan Dalla some years ago. So if you're ever doing this, if you're ever cashing in somebody else's chips at any cashier never admits someone gave it to you or they're going to take it. So where, where this intersects with Lammers is that uh, what would happen is people would win Lammers, but they wouldn't necessarily want to use the Lammers to enter other events. They just would want to get the cash and, and pocket it. So what they would do is they'd hang out around the World Series line, people registering for events, and asking, hey, are you registering for an event now? If you said yes, they'd say, okay, can you buy the Lammers from me? And they'd want this at even money. So you weren't getting anything out of it as the player in line. So, for example, someone would show up to a $1,500 event line, where most of the people are there to register for a $1,500 event, and they'd have $1,500 worth of Lammers. And they'd say, hey, can I give you this $1,500 worth of Lammers and you give me 1500 cash? Now, when people would approach me with it, I would say to them, I will only do this if you come with me to the front, and if the cashier takes it, then I'll give you the 1500 after the transaction. Otherwise, forget it. And it didn't help me any, so I, I'd be willing to do them a favor, but at the same time, I was not going to take any chances. I wasn't going to take the chance they wouldn't be accepted, and I wasn't going to take the chance that maybe the Lammers are counterfeit or something. 
because again, I'm getting nothing out of it myself. So if they said to me, no, 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 I want the money now, I'd say, okay, forget it. Now, they always agreed to because they're happy to have anyone willing to buy it. But that was the way I would approach it. Well, in 2021, they abruptly changed the Lammer policy and said you can't transfer them anymore, like near the end of that series, which I felt was crappy because there were people who were playing these satellites believing they could sell the Lammers because they weren't that hard to sell. People were just nice and did it in line. And uh, when they suddenly changed the policy, you can't, then that screwed all the people who played believing they could. It's one thing to make it clear to everybody, hey, you can't sell these lammers and people play anyway, and then they're mad they can't sell it, then that's on the player. But if the player plays believing that they could sell the lammers because this has been common practice for the last 20 years, and suddenly they can't, that's not fair to them. And I made this point pretty loudly on Twitter and this show and on Poker Fraud Alert. And uh, from what I've heard, the World Series wasn't thrilled that I was making this point. Because the reason that I believe the World Series changed the rule is because they were probably worried that they were going to get in some regulatory trouble over this. But at the same time, uh, they were kind of hoping that maybe they could kind of still accept them in the background. Uh, They weren't for some time in 2021 when they first said this, but then apparently some cashiers were still taking it. Then in 2022, they wouldn't clarify the policy, and that was really cashier-dependent. Like, half of them were taking them, half of them weren't. And, like, I kind of understood, on one hand, why the World Series didn't want to put out an official policy with the Lammers, because on one hand, they wanted to encourage satellite play and make money from the satellite players, and they didn't want to kill their satellite action, and they kind of wanted to just take them on the down low without directly saying they would, so they could claim to regulators that they're technically against it. But the problem was, it wasn't consistent. So you'd have people who were winning these satellites, and then they'd go try to sell it, and then people would buy them, and then those people couldn't use them. The people who were just trying to help out, they'd buy the Lammers, and they'd get to the front, and, the, and they, they can't use them to buy into the event, and they feel like chumps. So I said, look, the World Series got to go one way or the other. I understand if they're going to disallow transferring the Lammers, but in that case, they need to really make it a clear and hard and fast rule and make it clear to everyone registri- registering for satellites that that is the new rule. Otherwise, it's not fair to the players. So I said, you got to go one way or the other. If you want to change it, I get it, but you got to make it clear you're changing it, and that's it. So it looks like they probably did what I was uh, saying they should do, not because I said it, but I think they realized what I was saying was correct, and they've finally changed the policy for good. And the way they've changed the policy is by doing away with Lammers completely. Rather than putting it on the cashiers to verify that the Lammers were won by the people registering. Because it's not all that easy. Because the Lammers are not personalized. So you just have these Lammers and you slap them down. Okay, I want to buy into this event with these. Uh, The cashier would have to go through your history and see what you registered for and see if you won these. It's not all that easy for the cashier to do. It holds up the line. So that's why some of the cashiers were just taking them even when they were instructed not to. So starting for 2023... The Lammers have been completely eliminated. KevMath tweeted, Eagle-eyed observers will notice that they're not awarding buy-in chips. Buy-in chips are Lammers, they're the same thing. And now what is happening is you're going to have some kind of credit in your account when you win a satellite that you can use to buy into other events or other satellites or the deep stacks or whatever, but it has to be something that you buy into at the World Series, and you, it's non-transferable. 
So that's the way they've solved it. There's no more physical lammers. There's nothing to sell to anybody because it's plopped in your account and you can't move it out of your account. So that is a new change for 2023. They're called tournament buy-in credits, and that's what you're going to get from now on instead of lammers if you win a satellite. So it's very important you don't play a satellite unless you are going to use the tournament buy-in credits you're going to win. Because that's what you're going to get for winning a satellite is a bunch of tournament buy-in credits to play other tournaments. So if your plan is to turn this into immediate cash, then don't play. Because it's not like it was other years. I hope they communicate this properly to players when they register that this is a change for this year, that there's no more Lammers. Because those playing, hoping to get Lammers, are going to be sorely disappointed. Now, this is still better than giving Lammers and not communicating to people they can't sell them anymore. Or not communicating well when they register. That's, that's really when it should be communicated. I always feel like whenever people sign up for something, they should know everything. Anything important needs to be really, really clearly disclosed. Not just in the World Series, but all tournaments. I've always been a big advocate that anything non-standard or anything deviating from what has been the norm for a long time needs to be clearly disclosed so everyone knows. Not buried somewhere or posted somewhere on Twitter. I mean to where everybody registering sees it. Otherwise, you're tricking people in some way. So I will say this is better than the Lammer situation where maybe you could tell them, maybe you can't or sometimes even where the people who buy them get screwed. But I I hope that they're going to make it clear to people when they register that it's going to be awarded as tournament buy-in credits on their account, and these are non-transferable. And that's something I hope they're going to have viewable very clearly to those registering. In fact, maybe I'll make this suggestion to the World Series to do this. Because you've got to be upfront with the players. And again, I totally understand why you guys made this change. I'm not saying that Caesar should break the law. I'm not saying Caesars should put themselves in regulatory jeopardy by allowing this Lammer situation to go on. So if the, if, uh, the Gaming Commission or even the federal government is getting concerned that these Lammers are being sold between players and that this shouldn't be happening because it's against the law, then okay, fine. Do away with them. That's fine. Just make sure people understand what they're playing for. So no more Lammers. Just be aware that there's no more Lammers and you're not going to be able to sell them. I'm all for transparency and fairness to the players. I want everyone to have the experience they expect. I don't like when surprises come later, when people think they're registering for something with certain characteristics it doesn't actually have because something abruptly changed and they weren't informed. You have to be real careful when you change something big that you make sure everybody knows. You don't just bury it somewhere. Even if it's going to drive people away you got to let them know. Otherwise, you're not being honest. So I, I hope the World Series does make this clear. But if they don't, now you know. Moving on. Steve O'Dwyer used the coverage of his play at the PokerStars PCA to shame airline Lufthansa for a disastrous customer service issue he was having involving his bags where he just couldn't get them, even though he knew exactly where they were. And reading about this story, I understood his frustration. But this actually made national news. And I've had people ask me, hey, do you know the Steve O'Dwyer, who was on CNN? So this was covered all over the place because he made a big deal about this during televised poker play. And the media found that interesting. 
Lost luggage can be very frustrating. I'm sure all of you have had this at some point if you've flown any reasonable number of times in your life. And you don't find out until the last bag comes out and yours isn't there. And it's just such a lousy feeling because you don't know. It's just a black hole where your luggage went into. Maybe it never left the airport. Maybe it got stolen. Maybe it got sent somewhere else accidentally. And you don't know if it's ever going to be found, if it'll ever be brought to you, if they'll ever locate it, if the former Secretary of Energy stole it. You, you don't know. It could be any of these things. So when the carousel stops spinning and your luggage isn't on there and you're somewhere far away from home, it's a really crappy feeling. And I've had this occur before. And fortunately, every time this has occurred, my luggage has eventually appeared. Steve O'Dwyer came prepared. He lives in Ireland. He is a high-stakes tournament pro. He has a very good record. He's one of the tops all-time in amount cashed. Of course, a lot of that is a function of the fact that he's entering very high-stakes events. But still, the guy is a successful high-stakes tournament pro, and he wanted to go to the Poker Stars PCA in the Bahamas. So he was trying to fly there, and this invited a big problem involving lost luggage. However, he did something smart beforehand, which you think would prevent something like this from getting that bad. In the past, if your luggage disappeared, you'd have to count on the airline to be able to track down where it went. But there's something you can do about it where you can track it yourself. You can buy something called an Apple AirTag, which is a device that you can put on or in your luggage, which uses GPS to track where it is, and then it transmits its location. So on your iPhone, you can track in real time where your luggage is. And you can use AirTags for anything. You can put them on anything that you're worried might get stolen. And provided the AirTag doesn't get taken off, you can track where it went. You maybe track down who took it. So in the case of Steve O'Dwyer's luggage, he put AirTags on his luggage just in case it were to get lost. And then he would see where it went and hopefully get it back quickly. Because really the hardest part of luggage disappearing is the airline tracking down where it actually went. Sometimes that's easy, sometimes it can be very tough. He was flying from Dublin, Ireland to Nassau, Bahamas, and his bags never made it to Nassau. They ended up stuck at London Heathrow Airport. The original flight called for him to go from Dublin to Frankfurt and then switch over to Air Canada, which would take him to Montreal and then to Nassau, Bahamas. So the way London got involved was that Steve O'Dwyer's Canadian visa was out of date. So when they were in Frankfurt, he tried to get on the flight to Montreal, and they said, you can't get on the flight because your Canadian visa is out of date. 
even though they're just going through Montreal, I guess that was not good enough and he needed a Canadian visa. So they bought new tickets on Lufthansa that would connect through London Heathrow and they would not need to stop in Canada. This time now they were going to go from Frankfurt then to London and then take a Virgin Atlantic flight to Nassau without ever touching Canada. So somehow with all that, the bag just never made it past London. So they did fly to London, Heathrow, and then the bags were stuck there. Never made it onto that Virgin Atlantic flight to Nassau. So they did see that the bags were right there still at London Heathrow. So that should have been it. What should have happened at that point, and what usually happens, is the airline will then fly the bags over to where they're supposed to be and actually hire a delivery service to bring them directly to you. So you're not even expected to go to the airport and get it. They're supposed to deliver them to you, and usually it happens the next day. And that's what he thought was going to happen. And he called up the airline and told them that he sees them right there in London Heathrow. In fact, saw them at Terminal 4, told them exactly where they were. And they were told that, uh, okay, no problem. Uh, They're going to send them over. The problem is they didn't come. At the time, they weren't worried about this. They thought that uh, this was going to be standard, and then the next day they were going to get the bags. But then the bags didn't come. And they called Lufthansa back and said, look, we're still seeing it there at Heathrow. It hasn't moved. It was supposed to fly out here, and it it hasn't gone anywhere. The whole day has passed. It's, It's still sitting there. So Lufthansa said, okay, we will send them over. Sorry about that. We don't know why they didn't make it on the flight yesterday, but we will send them over. Don't worry about it. Uh, Apologies. So what happened? Would you believe 13 days passed and they still did not get their bags? (laughs) Now, they didn't just sit there on their hands and wait. O'Dwyer kept calling Lufthansa every single day saying the bags are still sitting at Heathrow. Why aren't you sending them? And every time they got a different story, He said, on some of the phone calls early on, they would tell me they're still searching for my bags. Other times they would say they had them and were ready to forward them to me. I would tell them that one of the two bags has an air tag. I could see it at Heathrow Terminal 4. I'd ask how I could send them the screenshot, and they would tell me they don't have any way to send that information. They would say they have our bags. They're doing everything they can do to forward them. They will request an update from the baggage handlers, and that I just needed to have more patience. It was clear to me that they were just reading a script, and their goal was to get people off the line as soon as possible. And that's very true. And that's unfortunately what happens at a lot of big companies is that you'd like to think that the person you're talking to on the other end wants to solve the problem. But in reality, what they want to do is get you off the phone and move on. So anything that becomes hard or complicated or something that's going to require a lot of time or a lot of follow-up, they, they just don't want it. They want it to be somebody else's and the company's problem. So what employees love to do with these companies is just send a message on to the department that they hope will handle it and say, okay, it's being handled. And then a lot of times the messages aren't checked or the person receiving it on the other is incompetent or they just don't receive the message, whatever it is. And then just this stuff never gets solved. And it, it, it can be very difficult getting someone on the phone who's willing to actually take ownership of the situation and solve the problem. And I've had this so many times in my life, not necessarily with airlines. I've never had a debacle like this with an airline, thankfully. But I have had it 
in so many different ways where something that would seem relatively simple to fix, nobody ever will because it isn't as simple as pressing one button. And it, it can be so frustrating because some of these problems aren't that complicated. And that's what was really, really tilting Steve O'Dwyer beyond just not getting his luggage and being in the Bahamas with no luggage. And I guess they had to buy a bunch of stuff there in the Bahamas to replace what they didn't have. But it was beyond that. It was that they saw where the bags were. They're sitting right there in London Heathrow Terminal 4. And yet they're just not being sent. And he's like, look, let me send you the AirTag report where I can show you right on the map where they are in Terminal 4, and you guys can easily go over and find them and then send them to me. Why is it so hard? And every time he got anywhere between, okay, we'll do that, we'll, we'll go get them right now, okay, we found them, we're sending them, or sorry, not our department, we'll send a message on to somebody else, and then it never gets done. And what was really frustrating is no one would even look at his screenshot. We don't have a way to receive that, so too bad. Which I've had that before, too. I don't want to make this all about me. For some reason, what I keep being reminded of, even though this has nothing to do with travel, was back when Verizon was providing Fios service, I had them for my internet. This is probably about 10 years ago. And I signed up for a pretty good deal bundle plan where you get TV and uh, phone and internet and it was an internet-only special, but this wasn't anything that was unusual or just for me or tar- a targeted offer. This was something I saw on billboards, in fact. It was a very common offer at the time. It was just a good deal. So I signed up for it, and somehow there was some kind of issue. There was some kind of glitch with the whole thing to where it completely screwed it up. So I got my first bill. It was not only not that deal, it was tremendously high. And in fact, it was missing some things I signed up for. It signed me up for other things. I didn't, it almost looked like it messed up and mixed up somebody's order with mine. But I couldn't even see anyone ordering it this way. It was like horribly overpriced. The whole thing was a disaster. So it was charging me like double what I should have been charged every month. Not exactly double, but something along those lines. And I fortunately saw this coming and took a screenshot of what my actual offer was just in case there was a problem down the line. And I kept telling them, at customer service, let me send you the screenshot I took of the deal that I, that was offered to me, which again was a common deal when I signed up. It was on billboards everywhere. You guys can verify this deal existed. I can send you the screenshot of when I signed up for it so you can honor that. And they'd say, oh no, we can't honor that because we can't prove that that's what you really signed up for. And I said, well, let me send you the screenshot to prove it. And they said, no, we have no way to do that. (laughs) And I said, wait a minute. I thought you wanted me to prove that this is what I was offered. I'm offering to prove it to you, and you won't accept it. I'm sorry, sir. We have no way to prove that. We have no way to receive it. So uh, the best we can do is uh, give you the offers we have right now, which weren't nearly as good. I said, no, I signed up for that. You legally have to provide this to me. And I must have been through about 20 hours of phone calls. I'm not even exaggerating before someone fixed it. But the problem I ran into was similar to what Steve O'Dwyer ran into, is that nobody wanted to take ownership. And I had people, quote, accidentally hanging up on me, which, of course, were in accidents. I had people that would claim they fixed it and really didn't because they just wanted to get me off the phone. I had some that would transfer me to departments that can supposedly fix it. And then I get the department. They say, what? This isn't us. That's not what we do here. 
Nobody wanted to actually take ownership of the situation because apparently it wasn't easy. Apparently they had to do a lot of stuff on the back end to back out the plan that it gave me erroneously and backdate the whole thing. It, it wasn't an easy thing to do. A lot of people didn't know how to do it. And also they didn't want to go to whatever departments had to help them with it. So rather than go through the effort, they just kept trying to get rid of me. And some of them were just like downright, downright rude. And, and telling me that uh, I'm not telling them the truth or that that's just the way life works, that I've just got to deal with it. You don't get everything you want. You can't believe everything you read on the Internet. You, you wouldn't believe some of the dumb things that were told to me. And I was tearing my hair out, dealing with all these different reps, none of whom would ever solve the problem. And just like with him, some would say they were doing it and wouldn't, and others would just refuse. And I was going crazy. And, and finally, when I got it done, it, it was such a relief but boy, was it tough. And here, the whole time I had a screenshot that could prove it, and here it was an offer that was very, very public at the time that they knew existed. So I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling when you have the solution right there, and no one will take a look at it, and no one will solve it. So that was happening with him. But how did this make big news? Because, again, this is just one guy losing his luggage. I mean, this happens all the time where airlines lose someone's luggage and they can't get it back. And you know maybe they do have air tags. I'm sure he's not the first person to have air tags and be able to tell them where it is and they just can't get it to him. I'm sure he's not the first guy to go through this. But the reason this made news is because he decided to rant about this on a TV table. Listen to this. Steve O'Dwyer. airline on the planet. Oh, he's doing Give it. Give me back my luggage, you thieves. I mean, we can't control what the players say at the feature table. I like how they put that disclaimer here because they don't want to piss off Lufthansa or get sued. It's like, oh, we can't control what the players say at the feature table. I think O'Dwyer peeled the big blind just so he could take a shot at the airline that lost his luggage, knowing the camera would be on him. He might stick around for more streets. Yeah, O'Dwyer called with King 3 offsuit, so that's why they're saying that maybe he just called from the big blind to this early position raiser because uh, he just wanted to get this out somehow on the TV. Value your property. Do not ever fly with Lufthansa. <laughs> yes, if you value your property, you do not ever fly with Lufthansa. <laughs> no, I'm looking at the camera. <laughs> so some guy next to him said, wait, you're looking at me? He said, no, no, I'm looking at the camera. So that was enough to... Tell everybody watching this, I'm not sure where this is being broadcast, but uh, wherever this is being broadcast, the TV table here at the PCA, this got enough people's attention to where it eventually made it on CNN. Steve O'Dwyer tweeted, I busted from the main event earlier today and still haven't gotten my baggage back from the thieves at Lufthansa, but at least I got to tell a large audience to never ever travel on their airline when I was on the TV table. So, do you think he ever got his luggage back? Well... I don't know if he did. Uh, I haven't followed this to the very end. But I know for a long time he still didn't. And remember, it took 13 days. Uh, eventually, when contacted by CNN, when this story was finally uh, put into national media, Lufthansa was asked for comment by CNN. And obviously Lufthansa had to address this. And whenever... like major news organizations ask about something, that's when they jump into action. So a spokesperson for Lufthansa said they're forwarding O'Dwyer's experience to customer service and they promised to work through the matter and contact him directly. They said, we regret that we could not fully meet our own quality standards here. 
Now, it sounds like you guys don't have any quality standards. So you, you, it looks like you did meet your quality standards, which are just very low. So what I do know is that he left Bahamas without ever receiving the luggage there. So he was actually going back to Dublin. I, I think the best approach would be to fly back through Heathrow and actually just go to Terminal 4 and grab the bags himself. <laughs> but this is really one of the times where if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> I think that's what I would do. I would just book the return flight through Heathrow and just stroll over to Terminal 4 and say, okay, thank you. I've been waiting to grab these. Just take them. It looks like you're just not going to get them otherwise. I believe they probably returned them at that point because they weren't just gone. They were sitting there at Heathrow and they wouldn't forward them on. Now, funny enough, I got some people who were engaging in some pushback who were telling me, not O'Dwyer himself, but I was discussing with some people and some people were saying that he was being a Karen, that he was uh, making a big deal out of nothing, that, yeah, it's frustrating, but this happens all the time, that this shouldn't even be a news story. Why is CNN wasting space covering it? And I said, I disagree. I said, this isn't a huge news story, but it is something that everybody can relate to. And I like when the spotlight is shined on corporations behaving badly. There's no reason this should have happened. There should be a process at Lufthansa that when someone's luggage has been lost and when they actually can identify where it is, that they go there and get it. It should have been it. They should have sent a message to somebody who reliably receives it and strolls over to Terminal 4 and looks at the luggage that's sitting there that was not claimed and found his luggage there, which I'm sure his name was on in some way, and grabbed them and sent it on to NASA. Why, why 13 days would it sit there in Heathrow when he's calling every single day about it? I mean, that's a tremendous failure. And it's good that this is being pushed in national media because then people thinking of booking Lufthansa may not. And then they suffer from it, and they know it. They know it. They know that they're getting bad PR from this. And that's the way these companies change, is when they're either compelled to change because of fines or when there's bad PR to something. So that's exactly what you try to use social media for. He was smart to say this on a TV table so people will see it. He couldn't have pictured this was going to get on CNN, but at least he was trying to get this out to anyone watching the program as a little bit of revenge on Lufthansa for doing this to him. There's no excuse for it. If I were in that position, I don't know what I could have done differently. A lot of times I'll read about someone's customer service nightmare and I'll say, oh, they messed up. Oh, they could have done this differently. But he was doing all he could. I would have pretty much done everything he did there and still been unsuccessful. Because the bottom line is if they don't physically pick up the luggage and send it over to Bahamas, what can he do? He's not physically there to make it happen. Maybe I would have made more effort than he did to get a manager on the phone. It kind of sounds like he was just calling every day and asking whoever he was talking to to handle it. That may have been his one mistake. Maybe he was doing it and they just didn't mention that. But what I would have done is kept escalating it as far as I could once it was clear that this wasn't happening. And that's usually what I do to solve these problems. Sometimes I'll be told it can't escalate and you're, you're speaking to the highest person you could speak to or the escalations person isn't there or they'll call you back and they never do. I've had that before. So maybe that's what happened to him. But that's the only possible thing I would have done differently. Otherwise, he did a good job including saying it on the TV table. If you care about your stuff, don't fly with Lufthansa. But I, I hate when people make excuses for corporations that screw up too. I realize that corporations are very large and bureaucratic and that some of them, you're not going to get perfection. You're going to have fail that will occur. And I understand that. 
but it's how they respond to the fail and correct the fail is what separates the good ones from the bad ones. And they should always have a structure and a mechanism to correct these type of issues, especially lost luggage, which airlines have been dealing with since before I was born. They should be experts on handling this by now. And the fact that he could tell them where it is using modern technology that wasn't available in the past, and they still weren't fixing it, that is a big problem. That is a tremendous hole. This isn't just like he made one call and they didn't send it. He called like 13 times and they weren't sending it. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they were screwing with him. Not because they hated him personally, but maybe the, someone took a dislike to him when he called when it didn't get sent the first day. Maybe, maybe he was a little bit uh, cross with them. And he gave them a talking to. And they didn't like him. They decided to screw with him and maybe put some note on the account to not send it. Or There, there was one department where everybody knew each other and they just were jerking him around. I don't know what it was, but if I were in charge there at Lufthansa, I would use this as something to investigate to see what is wrong over there, both at Heathrow and also just their telephone customer service department. I would have figured out where the failure was. And I, I may have had to fire people, especially if it's done maliciously, but also if people were just purposely not doing their jobs because it seemed hard or it seemed like a pain in the ass. Something was happening there. There's some reason why he could not get that luggage, which he knew where it was and could tell them where it was, why, why they were just not sending it. Interesting, he made it all the way to CNN. Another lawsuit was filed to attempt to stop the practice of casinos keeping your spare change. There was already one of these filed. I don't believe it's been completely adjudicated. This was in uh, Massachusetts about Encore Boston. And I've talked about that before on this show. But the lawsuit I'm going to talk about now has to do with Las Vegas and is a completely different suit. And it was just filed. And I have long complained about this myself. I think this is outrageous what they've done. I I believe they've uh, taken an intentional step back in technology in order to make extra money. This is a lawsuit that is being filed by a man in Shreveport, Louisiana. And it's about the exact same thing, where they made a change, and this was in 2012 in uh, Louisiana, and it happened later at some Caesars properties in uh, Las Vegas, but now it's pretty much everywhere and in tons of casinos, not even just Caesars properties, where you get a cash-out ticket from a machine and it has dollars and cents on it, and then you put it through the cash-out machine and it spits out the cash, and then the change, it just spits out a ticket saying, okay, well, here's your change ticket. You got to bring that to the cashier for them to give you the change. So what it's doing is it's making it to where you have to waste a lot of time standing in line at the cashier to get less than a dollar, which most people won't do. So what do they do? They throw these away. And what happens to the money? The money has to go somewhere. Well, the state and the casino end up splitting it. I think the state takes like three quarters in Nevada. I don't know what they do in Louisiana. But still, the casino gets a quarter of it for, quote, administration fees. And this really adds up. They claimed 
more recently this was done because of a coin shortage, but that's nonsense because if it was about a coin shortage, it could just keep dispensing coins till it ran out and then it could do these. But now they just completely stopped dispensing coins. And it's ridiculous because obviously it could dispense coins because prior to putting these machines in, they did dispense coins. So what's wrong with the old machines? The old machines worked great. You'd get exactly what was on the ticket, dollars and cents. So why would they take a step back and say, oh, we can't dispense coins anymore? Why? So you're telling me you could dispense coins in the 2000s, but not in the 2020s? How does that make any sense? And as I said, you can't even blame any kind of coin shortage because then it should be a matter of running out of coins, not just never dispensing them. So this is intentional. This is the Superman 3 trick to steal cents from each customer to where it adds up eventually to millions. So as I said, there was a lawsuit about this for Encore Boston in Massachusetts that was filed in 2019. This one was a class action suit filed against Caesars involving their three properties in Louisiana. It's on behalf of everybody who used a Caesars cash out machine since 2012. I don't know if this is for only the Louisiana properties or for everybody in the country. Caesars gave an interesting response. They are claiming that they are not the correct party to be suing because they don't own the properties. Wait a minute. Then who does? Well, the properties themselves are actually owned by a spin-off company called VT Properties. And Caesars did sell these properties to Vici in 2017. However, that is referring to the physical buildings and land. It's not referring to the casino. It's not referring to the operations. So basically what happened was Caesars needed to raise cash. And what they did was they spun off a company, this Vici Properties, that its entire purpose was to buy the land and physical properties from Caesars and then lease them back to Caesars. So it's kind of an accounting trick. And this allowed Caesars now to have the cash from selling these properties to Vici that they could use for other investments. They are leasing the space so they can fully operate the casino the way they were before, and to the customer, it's transparent. The customer doesn't even notice that Caesars doesn't own the physical properties. Just like when you go to a restaurant, usually the restaurant owner doesn't own the building where the restaurant is located, but the owner still owns the business, and the owner keeps all or most of the revenue from the business, and any issue at the business, you take up with the owner of the restaurant, not the landlord of the property. So it would be like something happens to you at a restaurant and you sue them and they say, oh, you shouldn't be suing me. You should be suing the owner of the building. And you go, what? The owner of the building has nothing to do with this. You're renting the building from him. So that's basically what's happening here is Caesars is renting these buildings from this spinoff company, but that has nothing to do with any of this. They're the ones who made the decision, Caesars, to have these machines there. So that's what this lawsuit is about. So uh, Jay Jammy, who's a former attorney who's uh, a poster and poker fraud alert, said that he doesn't think this tactic's going to work. This is probably uh, a long shot. 
that Caesars is taking to get out of this. He says it's called a uh, 12B6 motion. And it said it's uh, hard to win a 12B6 motion against a well-drafted complaint. So he doesn't think this is going to work. And I agree for for the reasons I just stated. He he didn't state the whole thing about the buildings, but that that doesn't make any sense to me how Caesars can get out of this lawsuit just because the physical building is owned by a different company. So I have a feeling this is going to flop, this uh, attempt to get it dismissed, and then they'll probably proceed to actually fight this by claiming the case has no merit. I'm not sure what they're going to claim, but probably just that everybody has an opportunity to get their change, just people are choosing not to. But the obvious problem here is they are putting an undue burden on customers to get the remaining sense. And they're purposely structuring it to where people are likely to throw these tickets away. Caesars could argue back that prior to these cash-out machines, players had to stand online to get their money anyway. That it's not like cash-out machines have always existed since casinos have existed. These are something that showed up maybe 15, 20 years ago. And prior to that, you always had to go to the cashier or you'd have to uh, get like a giant thing of coins that would come out of the machine that you'd have to uh, exchange into bills because you wouldn't want to carry out a giant thing of uh, dollar coins or whatever it is that they'd spit out back in the old days. So Caesars could argue a trip to the cashier has always been necessary at the end of a gambling session. And by putting in these machines, we're making it a little easier for people who don't want to stand on these long lines that they've had to in the past. And uh, the only thing they're giving up here is the sense. And if they want the sense, they can go back and do it the way they used to and stand on the line as has always been an option. So we're adding an option here, which has a small downside that you don't have to utilize. That would be their defense. But I would say the answer back is that they are putting these machines to entice people to use them, knowing that the benefit they're going to get out of it is uh, keeping people spare change. That the whole system is set up to do that and, and to defraud these people out of the change, making it at that point, once this has happened and they have their money, at that point they have to make a decision. Is it worth standing online to get 42 cents or do you just forget the 42 cents and walk away? And that's what most people are going to choose, just to walk away. That it's not even one of these things where people are aware of all the time before they use one of these machines. They, they f- will find out when it spits out that ticket. And even if you are aware, you're presenting a system to where still the customer knows I can either get my cash now and give up whatever change there is, or I have to stand on that long line over there to get the whole thing with the change. So still, they've set up a system, a payout system, that is structured to steal people's change. Now, they can argue that's kind of like a fee. They can say, yes, okay, fine, we built it in like this, but this is kind of a fee for us to provide these machines, which we didn't use to. So you don't have to use these machines again. Jay Jami also said that this whole thing would make an outstanding bar exam question. I agree. So it's not as uh, straightforward as you might think. If they just outright refused to give you your change, if you just ate your change and said, here's your dollars, but the cents we're keeping, that would be blatantly illegal and 
they would 100% lose such a lawsuit like that. In fact, they would get in trouble with gaming. It's the fact that they are giving you a burdensome way to get your change, but it's one that you are not required to utilize, that you can always go to the cashier for the change or just not use these machines in the first place. And the fact that before, you always had to go to the cashier anyway. These would be some decent arguments on the other side, even though I think it's unethical what they're doing. Especially because they already had machines in the past that dispense change. And that would be, I think, a pretty strong argument on the plaintiff's side, is they already had a working system that they ruined on purpose. So if this was the only way these machines could operate, let's say these cash-out machines, you just can't buy one that that dispenses change. And sorry, like we don't make these machines. This is a convenience for the customer. They got to give up the change. That's the way these machines work. But they, they did not work that way. This was a conscious change that they made. And it's something that kind of took a step back technologically, and it obviously had one reason to it. Moving on, we're going to talk about another lawsuit, this one involving Las Vegas strip properties and alleged price fixing. A lot of people have become unhappy with the prices of Las Vegas hotels, especially on the weekends. The prices have gotten quite high, in fact, higher than ever. Some people have found it to be really unaffordable to stay on the Las Vegas Strip, especially if they are not entitled to any kind of comps from uh, previous play. By the way, I'll give you a little tip here. I don't want to turn this into a casino comp segment, but I will give you a little tip that it's not that hard to get room comps. And what I would suggest doing if you'd like to get room comps is to just play a little bit at various casinos And you'll be surprised how long the room comps might last. You're not going to get a lot of free play, but a lot of times that will give you uh, quite some time worth of room comps or at least discounted rooms. So don't necessarily put all your eggs in one basket if you don't gamble much. Now, if you play enough to where you get free rooms offered anyway, that's fine. Caesars properties tend to be pretty free with the rooms. Uh, the comps tend to suck at Caesars Properties, but something they are pretty lax with is offering you comp or cheap rooms. So you can keep that in mind as well. But anyway, back to the hotel rates. We're, we're ignoring the whole comp situation here because that's not what this is about. But apparently, there is a third-party vendor that a bunch of strip hotels use to help set their prices. And this lawsuit, which is a federal lawsuit filed in Nevada, it's seeking class action damages for anyone who booked a hotel room in Las Vegas since 2019 because most of these hotels used this company called Rainmaker Group Unlimited to suggest prices for these hotels to charge. And what this software does is it looks at all the prices for all of the rooms that are available on the Strip, and it comes to a market rate that it believes each hotel should be charging, and then communicates with these hotels that are using their services, what we think you should be charging this right now based upon what we see other properties are doing. Now, the hotels don't have to accept this advice, The hotels can program their own system to set the room rates however they want. 
So these third-party tools are not actually controlling the rates, but they're giving a suggestion, which then the hotels can take, usually through their own algorithm, to then help them set the right prices. And the reason they want to do this is the ideal price for a hotel to charge is the highest price they can charge and still fill the room. What hotels don't like, obviously, is when they have empty rooms, because when you have empty rooms in a hotel, the amount you are collecting from that room for that night is... Zero point zero. So that's what they really don't want. What they also don't want is to discount the rooms so low that they are filling the place, but that they're selling them for a fraction of what they'd like to. And then it's kind of the equivalent of having a lot of empty rooms. If you're selling everything for half price of what uh, you could otherwise get, then that's the same thing as selling half the rooms for full price. So they want to find that sweet spot, but it's not always easy to find because this isn't just a magic number you always know. It depends on a lot of factors. And in fact, demand for hotel rooms can fluctuate a lot. Sometimes there can be a lot of early bookings for a certain date and they can start raising the prices. And then as it gets closer to the date, people cancel or you don't get a lot of last minute bookings and they've got to quickly drop the prices. And I've seen this all the time when I'm booking hotels myself. In fact, something I always do when I book hotels for any kind of trip, I'm not just talking about Las Vegas, but I will book them in advance and I will always have it cancelable and to where I can cancel and rebook if the rate goes down. And at that point, it becomes a free roll because if the rate goes up, you're still locked in at the rate you booked. And if the rate goes down, you can cancel or rebook or you can just call up the customer service number and say, hey, rather than cancel and rebook, can you just lower it to the current rate? And they will. So you just start price watching and every time the price goes down, you call up and have them change it or you just cancel and rebook yourself. And I've really saved a lot of money traveling this way. I've taken summer trips where what I end up paying for certain hotels is substantially less than how I originally booked them. So you should do this with Vegas too. That's why you should avoid ever taking these quote deals where if you prepay in advance and it's non-cancelable, that you get a 20% discount, it's not worth it because often it will go down way more than 20% from where it was when you booked it. Now, if it's at the last minute, then it's not that bad. But if it's something way in advance or even a little bit in advance, you, you shouldn't do that. But back to this. The lawsuit is alleging that this is price fixing. That Rather than the hotels discussing with each other what to charge and all artificially keeping the prices high, that they're using a third-party company to do the same thing. They're using a third-party company together, all the same company that they're – it's all the different hotels using the same company to fix all of their prices. That's basically what the lawsuit is alleging here, which would be illegal if that is what is happening. You, you can't have price fixing. You can't have an agreement with competitors that we're going to keep our prices artificially high and not compete with each other to force everybody to pay high prices. Because that is one way you can keep prices high. It would be illegal, but if all the hotels had an agreement, we're just not going to lower prices and undercut each other, then yes, you can get the average traveler to pay a lot more because they don't have a choice. Now, yes, some people will stay home, but 
what drives the prices down is when hotels keep lowering the prices to fill rooms and then the other hotels have to follow suit and also lower their prices so they don't fall behind there because they're going to get a lot fewer bookings if the equivalent hotel, equivalent quality hotel that's that's right next door is much cheaper. So that, that pushes the prices down and this tool is meant to fight that. So the lawsuit says that this Rainmaker Group Unlimited provides algorithmic-driven price-fixing at the expense of consumers in violation of antitrust laws. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of plaintiffs Richard Gibson and Herbierto Valiente by the law firm Hagens Berman Sobal Shapiro in Seattle and Berkeley, California. And it seeks class status and monetary damages, though it doesn't say how much, for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people based on antitrust violations of the Federal Sherman Act, which prevents this. MGM said that the lawsuit is meritless. They said the claims against MGM resorts are factually inaccurate and we intend to defend ourselves vigorously. Wynn did not comment. Caesars did not comment. Steve Berman, the plaintiff's attorney, said, What happens in Vegas will no longer stay in Vegas. We intend to expose the -the under-the-table deals perpetrated by these Vegas hotels. Now, Alan Feldman, who works at the International Gaming Institute at UNLV, but used to be an executive at MGM, said that this is really the travel ecosystem at work, And this isn't really price fixing. He said, rest assured they watch each other, referring to each other's prices. They can decide if they want to go above it, below it, or just ignore it. But I can't imagine these companies talking to one another, and certainly not on price. So that's a very good point. And that was my thought before I even read what Mr. Feldman had said. There is a big difference between using a tool that analyzes prices of the competition and suggests a price that is the current market rate that it suggests you should charge and actually controlling the prices set. They're two very different things because one of them is making a suggestion and one of them is actually setting the price. The information on what other hotels are charging is not a secret. You can see this right now. You can just go on the hotel's website and look at what they are charging right now. Just don't log into the Players Club section and just look at what you will pay for any day of the year, and you'll see right there what the general public is being charged. It's not a secret. So it is very easy to create a program that scrapes this data from competitors' websites. The info is right out there. This is not company private. This is something provided to the general public to examine at any time. And in fact, a lot of these travel aggregator sites like Trivago actually do scrape this and then sort it for you and you can decide which one to book. So this is data that is made public and therefore all of the competing hotels have a right to look at each other's prices. There's a big difference between price fixing and just visibility into other 
competitors' prices and then deciding algorithmically how you want to set your prices based upon theirs. A much lower tech example is if you have a grocery store and there's a grocery store down the street competing with you, there's nothing wrong with going to that grocery store and browsing the aisles and writing down what they're charging for everything and then coming back to your store and adjusting your prices based upon what you see they're doing. But what you can't do is you can't go to the owner of that other store and say, hey, you know what? Uh, How about we stop charging less than one another? How about we correlate our prices to where there's really no advantage to go to either store? Then we're we're both going to make a lot more money because we're the only two grocery stores in town. That you can't do. That's price fixing. But you can look at the other store's prices and say, hey, you know what? Our prices are too high. No wonder we're not doing well and we'll start charging more. Or, hey, our prices are too low. Uh, People are still paying these higher prices at the other place, and we're selling for way too cheap, so let's raise prices on these items. That's totally fine. That happens all the time. That's been happening for as long as these businesses have existed. So same with the travel industry, that they are always examining the competitors' prices. And in this day and age, they can have computers do it and use algorithms to set these prices so you don't have a human being sitting here examining what the other hotel's charging. You have computers doing it and trying to set these prices based number one, on the competition, and number two, based upon the demand currently, and number three, historical demand for the same dates. So there's a lot of factors that can go into this price setting, and that's not illegal. That's just market research, basically. So now this lawsuit's saying that this is taking it one step further. They're not just observing the prices of the competitors, but a tool that most of them use is telling them what they should probably be charging. So it's almost like price fixing by proxy. But where I think this might fail is that the hotels are not leaving the decision up to the tool. If the tool was delegated to make these decisions and the tool was fixing prices, then I would agree that this is a violation. But when a tool is simply doing research for them and saying, based upon what we're seeing at the other hotels, we think your regular rooms should go for $175 a night for this upcoming Saturday night. That is not price fixing. That is analysis. And just because the same tool is being used by other hotels, that still doesn't mean it's price fixing. They're just using the same tool. And for this to be price fixing, There would have to be some kind of agreement between the hotels that they're all going to use the same tool and abide by its suggestions, or mostly abide by its suggestions. But if they all just happen to like the same tool, then it's hard to prove there's any kind of price fixing, even if there is some price fixing. So I think this is going to be a hard one to win, because there's no law against them using third-party tools to let them know what the market rate is. Also, it would be interesting to find out, and I guess this will come out in the lawsuit, it would be interesting to find out how often they are taking the recommendations of the tool. So if it could be shown that 98% of the time it is taking the recommendations of the tool, and that's pretty consistent among all the properties that are using it, then you could argue this kind of is price fixing because they're all delegating so many decisions to this tool and with all of them using it, that it is fixing prices. Even if they want to claim that it's unintentional, that that is the mechanism of what's occurring. But I don't know if they're really following 
the advice that often. I think it should maybe just be one data point they're getting. Because remember, this tool is doing analysis for each date compared to the competition. But it probably is not doing analysis historically at that hotel or watching how the bookings have been going. I think it's just looking at each date and what is available and what others are charging and trying to let each hotel know from what we're analyzing, this looks like the going rate at the moment. This looks like the proper going rate to set at the moment. But I think there's other factors that the tool doesn't know. So I think the hotels are probably, I can't say this for sure, but I think they're probably just taking this as one piece of information that they're using to set a price. So there's a fine line between price fixing and market research. And I think they're going to lose this one. But let's talk about morally. Forget legally. Let's talk about morally. Is this okay what the hotels are doing? Or is this like legal price fixing that they can get away with through a loophole? I actually think it's okay to do this morally as long as there is no agreement or even standard practice to let this thing actually control the prices. If all it's doing is feeding them information that they they use in various ways, then I think it's completely fine. I really don't have a problem with it then. So whenever you see something like this, it can be tempting to take the side of those who are suing the big corporation because everybody has the experience of thinking, hey, let's go to Vegas this upcoming weekend. And you get on the website, you go, oh my God, they want $400 a night? For a standard room at anything but a complete shit hotel? Well, I'm not going to pay that here. Well, forget it. We're not going to go. That's very disappointing. And then you see this lawsuit and you say, oh, wouldn't that be nice if it would be a lot cheaper? If they could be prohibited from getting more information about what their competitors are charging and maybe the prices would come down? Oh, that would be sweet. Okay, I'm on their side. Well, yeah, sure, that'd be nice for you as the traveler, but is it fair to the hotel? Every business has a right to do market research, even live or ongoing market research, even using automated tools, of course, to inform them of what price they're likely to get. Because their goal is to make money. They should not be misleading or cheating you. They should not be price-fixing. But there's nothing wrong with trying to get the maximum amount they can get. That's how the free market works. And sometimes it can backfire. Sometimes if they overcharge and then people don't book and then they have to lower the price way below where they could have gotten before because they were being too greedy. So it's a balancing act. If you can get $150 today and you get greedy and try to charge $190, and no, nobody goes for 190 and you could have filled up at 150 and then you're left with a lot of available rooms because you're trying to charge 190 and by the time you adjust, then the demand is much less, and all of a sudden you're having to sell these $150 rooms for 90 you got screwed. But that's the hotel's fault for being too greedy. So it's a balancing act where they don't want to overcharge and not sell rooms, and they don't want to undercharge and not collect as much as they otherwise could. So if they want to use tools to make it more efficient, that's the way it goes. I mean, every 
travel-related business is doing this. Rental cars, airlines, hotels. And that's why the prices fluctuate. And what you can do as a consumer is play the same game back. Figure out what they're doing. Figure out their patterns. And book when it's cheapest. That's what I try to do. Or find various promotions that'll get certain things cheaper at certain times. There's a lot of different little tricks you can do, legal tricks, to get things a lot cheaper. And there's nothing wrong with that either. Because you don't exist to make the corporation's money. Your priority should be getting the best deal you can. So if you find ways to get the best deal you can, then great. So when I book something at $300, and I keep watching, 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 and I notice the prices drop down to 210 and I call up and change it to 210 and then I notice again it dropped to 150 and I call up and change it to 150 and then I see it fall to 130 I change it to 130 and then uh, the day before, and I can still cancel, it's uh, down to 115 I change it to 115 So now I've got my $300 room for 115 And then because I'm a member of their club... At, at the highest level that I got through a credit card or whatever, then I get a free upgrade too. So all of a sudden, a $300 regular room that I originally booked, I'm now getting for 115 and I'm getting a suite because I got upgraded. So these are the type of tricks you can use as a consumer. And if you just want to be a chump and just book at whatever rate you see and never look again and never try to make any effort to become a member of these clubs or these uh, hotel chains and stuff, well then you're going to get a much worse deal. So it's all up to you, the consumer, to get the best deal you can, and it's up to the business to try to get the most they can out of the consumers. So I don't think this lawsuit has merit. I actually think MGM's right here. Here is a weird story. Usually I have a theory about things that have happened when something has gone wrong. But this one, I am stumped. This is about Ape Styles, whose real name is Jonathan Van Fleet. He's been around for a long time. He is both a poker pro and a poker coach. He does a lot of content on YouTube and does a lot of uh, training videos. And this segment is going to be about his YouTube channel, which suffered a very, very bizarre fate. So what happened here? Well, Ape Styles, who had a channel on YouTube with thousands of hours of him playing poker, found the incredibly frustrating message that his account was recently deleted, that his entire Google account, which includes both his Gmail, which was apestylespokeryt at gmail.com, and more importantly, his YouTube channel itself were completely gone. They were just deleted, according to YouTube, and he has no idea why. On February 8th, he tweeted to Team YouTube, which I think is managed by bots. So it can be frustrating communicating with them. But that's like the only way you can talk to YouTube. He wrote, Hi at Team YouTube. It appears the email associated with my YouTube account with 10,000 subscribers or so has been deleted. I have no path to recovery. Can you let me know what steps I need to take to rectify this and recover my channel? 
lots of hours of hard work has gone into that channel, which is true. And he showed screenshots saying that his account was recently deleted and may be recoverable. Click next to attempt to restore the account. So then he did that. He clicked next and then it said, Google does not provide another way to sign into this account. <laughs> and I kind of, they give him the false hope. It's like, your account was deleted, but hold on. We have ways to recover it. Click next. He's like, okay, next. Yeah, uh, we don't have ways to recover it. We're just kidding. You, you can't really cover it. So he wrote that to Team YouTube. Team YouTube responded back, sorry to hear about this. Was your Gmail account deleted by someone else? Send us your channel URL so we can take a closer look. Also, we recommend deleting tweets that has your personal info for account security. So he didn't care about his personal info. It was just his email address. And I think that was just the one he used for the YouTube account. So I think what he really lost there was his YouTube channel, even though the Gmail's gone too. And so he wrote the channel URL was youtube.com slash apestylespoker1862. Indeed, if you click on it, it says this page isn't available. Sorry about that. Try searching for something else. Ironically, it shows a picture of an ape with a magnifying glass searching for it. (laughs) I mean, how fitting is that? Ape Styles has an ape searching for his missing channel. (laughs) It's actually kind of a stylish ape, too. So Team YouTube wrote, thanks for this. Passing this along so we can take a closer look. We'll get back to you when we know more. Then he got nothing back and said, hi, do you have any updates for me? And they did give him an update. So he thought, okay, good. This is update, colon. And he's thinking, okay, an update, perfect. It's best to try following these steps to get back into your account. Pro tip, do this from a known device or browser that you typically use to access your account. More tips here. So they had different links. However, he wrote, thanks for the response, Team YouTube, but when I follow the process through that link, I get this, and he showed a picture that he uh, couldn't sign into his account. Please advise, YouTube has removed my entire channel of 60-plus videos and 10,000 subs. So then Team YouTube responded, if you've manually deleted your channel by going into the advanced settings, it is permanently removed from our system. Let me know if you need something else. And he said, what? I did not manually delete anything, but the account is deleted. Is that really all you can do? Keep in mind that he did not get banned, apparently, for any kind of violation, because it's a different message. When you get banned for a violation, it says, this channel has been removed for violations of our terms of service. Sometimes it'll say what term they violated. And you'll also get an email to whatever you have registered to that YouTube account. And it will tell you why your account was terminated. He did not get any of that. And Team YouTube is not saying that he was deleted for any violation. In fact, when you get banned, it's not actually a deletion, it's a ban, which kind of is the same result that nobody can access your channel, but it's a different message, it's a different mechanism. This was shown as manually deleted, that someone actually uh, went in and uh, deleted his account. And when he asked if there's anything they could do, they said, we've already looked into this and shared the update here. And they linked back to that same update. Uh, It's best to follow the steps in the resources we provided, which 
provided him nothing useful. When he tried to, it just said there's no way to restore your account. So, Trader Ruski, hello. You've been listening to this frustrating tale about Ape Styles? No, I kind of chimed in late because I didn't realize you're doing the show, Jeff. Um, but wow, that sucks. Sucks big time. Uh, so, he can't get an answer here. So, the question is what really happened? Let's think about this. His account was not mysteriously banned by YouTube. That's the easiest thing to explain when it happens, because there are a lot of wrongful bans on YouTube because it's all managed by bots. Once in a while, a human being gets involved, but usually it's a bot that scans your channel and it can actually transcribe what you say, or it can process the images and see if it doesn't like something in the images, and sometimes it'll make mistakes and kill your channel, and there's even been cases where channels get killed as a result of a sweep where they're trying to remove a whole group of channels with certain information. Like back in the days with the irresponsible suppression of what they call COVID misinformation, what was happening is there was a lot of false positives there. First of all, I, I don't agree with the suppression of COVID quote misinformation, but even if you agree with that, what would happen is YouTube would go through all the channels. And if you even say anything with COVID-19 in there, with any words they don't like, even if you're not questioning the current COVID narrative, if you say anything that has certain words in it, then it'll think it's COVID misinformation and just ban your channel. So this happened to some people. I'm not saying that's what happened to Ape Styles. I mean, his channel had nothing to do with COVID-19. I'm just saying that sort of thing has occurred, but these people would get a ban message. They would get a ban message that they violated the COVID misinformation policy or whatever. But here, the channel was, quote, manually deleted, which means someone supposedly logged into his account and selected to delete it. And he didn't have, quote, recovery information on there. And it's hard to believe that this isn't reversible in some way, but they're claiming if somebody does that, you actually can't recover it, which is strange because then anyone who hacks your account can wipe your channel and there's no way to get it back. So I'm not sure if I believe that. But even if you do believe that, the question remains, who did it and why? Or was this just a complete mistake on the part of YouTube? Did YouTube just glitch in some way? And did somebody else delete their channel and somehow it processed deleting Ape Style's channel? But it's hard to believe that could just happen. And if this was malicious, like, how did the person get access to his account? to get on there and do that? And why didn't he get any notifications that a new device signed in or anything else? So it really looked like his channel just outright got deleted and nobody can explain it and YouTube is being very unhelpful in the situation. Someone who follows Ape Styles wrote back to him that this also happened to their daughter last year. And that when they contacted YouTube about it, they got the same answer where they basically said, sorry, it was manually deleted. There's nothing we can do. And they said that this had nothing to do with any violation and the account was just deleted and nobody could explain it. So there's, there's maybe a chronic problem at YouTube where channels are just disappearing and showing up as manually deleted. And Ape Styles may have just been unlucky. I would think that's probably the most likely explanation. This was just some error. I just don't believe that someone hacked his account and went in and deleted it. I guess it's possible. 
And I, I know there are some people who don't like Ape Styles for various reasons. He's not someone with a ton of enemies, but he's not someone that everyone likes. So it's possible maybe some guy who he pissed off figured out a way to get into his channel and was able to manually delete it. But to do that, you usually would have to do something that would be pretty tough. Because even if you had ApeStyle's password, if you were to try to log into his Google account, it would ask him to verify in some way. Because it would say, okay, we don't have a recognized IP or, or we, haven't, we can't recognize this uh, mobile device, whatever way you're trying to log in. So to prove it's really you, uh, go onto YouTube on a device you've used before and, and click the prompt that's going to come up that this is really you. So it makes it very tough to log into an account from a new device on an IP that's never been used before and just get into the person's account. So this really makes me think this probably wasn't a hacking. It's not impossible. Like, I guess if someone was dedicated enough, maybe they could have done some kind of uh, SIM swap where they were able to get access to his text messages, but then you'd think he'd know about it because then he wouldn't get his own text messages. So I don't think that's what happened either. It's possible that an insider at YouTube helped someone do this, or maybe an insider at YouTube didn't like him and did this. So there's various possibilities which are kind of outside chances. But the most likely explanation is that it was just an error. And this is why you can't put too many eggs in one basket with YouTube. You should use YouTube as a supplement to your business, but you can't count on it completely. Because you never know. They could unfairly ban you. It could be something like this. You can be locked out of your account. It can be very tough to get in. So I've known of people who didn't have their account banned or deleted, but they just couldn't get in anymore. And then they try to go reset it, and it says, sorry, Google doesn't have any other ways to reset it at the moment. Where they didn't assign a secondary way to access the account, and then they're stuck. You can't even email Google and say, hey, can you help me here? It's just tough luck. You're, you're done. So you do have to know that YouTube is very fickle and that it is largely managed by bots. It can be very frustrating because bots will get kind of into a loop where they'll appear helpful and they'll be pretending like they're human. And you'll never know you're talking to a bot. But then you get into a situation like this where everything they tell you to do doesn't help and then you explain that to them and then they just keep going back to the original suggestion. And that's what they're doing here. It's like, well, we, we've told you though. We, we've told you what you can do. Here's, here's your suggestions. And he's like, no, but this didn't work because of this. Well, yeah, but we told you what we could do. And he's like, no, but it didn't work. Well, yeah, but we've given you our update here. So, like, it's, it's acting like, what, what do you want from us? And he's like, no, I still can't get my account back. Like, uh, you can't even explain what happened here. Who deleted it? When did it happen? Like, that's where a customer service rep could tell you, okay, it was deleted on this date. Someone logged in from this IP or this device or or at least from this city and did it. And they verified they were you this way. Like, that would be useful information. So you could at least figure out what what happened there and maybe get someone to help you get it back. But not when it's just bots managing the whole thing that can't listen to this logic and provide you what you really need to know or get to the bottom of the problem. I can see why he's so frustrated and he may never get it back. 
I actually feel, not just because of this, I've thought this for a long time, that a lot of these tech companies have become so dominant and so much of a monopoly and they've become so ingrained in everyday life of so many Americans that it should not be allowed for them to have no human customer service. That anything that big, that influential, that consequential in people's lives, there should be a requirement that you can reach a human to solve problems. Legislation could be written to separate which companies would need this and which wouldn't. Which Most of them wouldn't have to have this. But if you look at these social media companies, most of them are monopolies. Most of them are huge. Most of them are very widely used. Most of them have no way to contact human customer service. And they make decisions that are final where you don't even know if a human has ever reviewed it. And that's very bad. And you can't just say, okay, well, I'll go to your competitor because there is no competitor. You can't just say, okay, I won't use this again because sometimes it's uh, something that is very, very important to use for your business or personal life or whatever. So if they want to enjoy this this monopolistic status, they need to make some concessions for the consumer. And I think the inability to reach customer service is horrible. It's really, really horrible, bordering on abusiveness towards the consumer. Because they invest so much time and energy and sometimes money into the presence they have on these systems. And then when their account disappears or has some issue or is unfairly banned, they can't even speak to anybody. So I think at some point there is going to have to be some kind of legislation that mandates that they have human beings on hand to deal with these problems. And they can afford it. These are huge companies with huge budgets. And I've hated companies like that that you cannot reach. I had a problem where I was locked out of uh, one of my social media accounts and it asked for me to take a picture of myself holding my ID and to send it into them, which I, I didn't love. I don't like them storing pictures of me holding my ID. That can be abused in many ways, but I needed to get access back, so I did. So I took the picture, sent it in. I wait, nothing happens. Doesn't say yes, doesn't say no. It says, we'll, we'll get back to you, nothing happens. I do it a second time, nothing happens. I do it a third time, nothing happens. I'm going crazy. Do it a fourth time, finally I get an answer. It says to me, thank you for submitting your picture. Unfortunately, we could not verify your picture. It, uh, we were unable to read the information in the picture, so we cannot restore your access. <laughs> so I'm like, what? But it was very clear. So I, I took another one. Again, no response. I take another one. Thank you for submitting it. However, we cannot read the information in the picture. I'm going crazy because I can see the picture I'm submitting, and the information on my license is very readable. And the picture of me is very clear, and it contains everything they told me to put in there. And it's just telling me over and over and over again that this isn't sufficient. And it doesn't say what I can do to change or what exactly they're missing. It doesn't say, well, we, we can't see the address or we can't see your face. Well, it just says it's not sufficient. And I, did, I must have done this like 15 times. I, I couldn't, I, it wasn't working. 
and I thought it was going to lose access forever. I Googled this and actually found a reporter this happened to. And he wrote an article about a tech reporter. So I actually messaged him, but uh, he wasn't easy to message, so he didn't get back to me until like weeks later. Well, by the time he get, got back to me, the problem was solved. How did I solve it? Well, just somehow, I don't know, four or five days later, I get another email saying, thank you for verifying. We have verified that your information matches. Here is a link to restore your account. And then I got back in. I have no idea what that delay was because I, last I had seen from it, I was re- rejected or ignored like 15 times. But it was so frustrating. There was no one I could call, no one I could email. There was no one I could say, damn it, look at the freaking picture. It's me. The ID is readable. Everything's readable. What, what's wrong? What am I missing here? I couldn't ask anybody. It just, the bot just kept saying, nope, we don't like it. Nope, we don't like it. Nope, we don't like it. So I was going crazy. I thought I was shut out of the account forever. I don't know what magically fixed it. It wasn't this guy I wrote to. I was going to... This guy had had some communication with someone at that company when he wrote his article. So I was hoping maybe he could write them about write to them about me and get it fixed. But he didn't get back to me until weeks later. So it wasn't him. And I told him, well, thanks for getting back to me, but I've already solved it. But as that was occurring, I thought, wow, this is exactly why you need to be able to reach a human. I don't look forward to the days when AI is managing everything because you're going to have a lot more of this. Finally, a Reddit post appeared. It was on the section R Poker about tipping. And there's been various tipping discussions over the years involving casino employees. But this one was a bit different because this involved a dealer, a poker dealer at Bellagio, who supposedly suggested that you give her a tip. This is what happened according to this Reddit poster. Bellagio dealer says to me, tips appreciated as she puts a po- pushes a pot my way, was the subject of the post. I'm not tipping each and every hand, especially on quick hands or I raise preflop and everyone folds to me. It happens maybe two or three times after the dealer sat down. When she sat down, she was being quite direct and rude to my friend about how they were too close to the table watching from behind, so I didn't appreciate her attitude already. After hearing that comment, I definitely wasn't going to tip. Pretending not to hear her just got up and left. First time ever I've been asked for a tip, I'm never going to tip anyone that asks for a tip in any industry or situation. By the way, if you're the type of person who tips $1 or $2 each and every hand, no matter what, good for you, just sharing my view. Remember, the, the subject basically said what was happening here, that when the dealer pushed one of the pots to this player, she said, tips appreciated. So she didn't say, you have to tip me, or why aren't you tipping me, or tip me this much. She just pushed a pot saying, tips appreciated. So someone saw this on our poker and then reposted it on Twitter and got a conversation going. The person who saw it is a young poker player from Florida. Her Twitter screen name is the fake Sammy G. It's the fake S A M M I E G. 
I think she's a college student, or she just recently was a college student, and she's, I don't know, I've been playing poker for a few years. And she reposted this, but she wasn't super clear that it wasn't her post. I figured out it wasn't her post, but a lot of people got confused and were responding to her about her experience, and this wasn't her experience. The weird thing was she didn't comment on this. She just said, interested in comments on this, and then she did not give her feelings, and I even asked her in response, can you give your feelings here, and she just ignored me. So that's a little bit weird to post about someone else's post from Reddit, but then refuse to give your own take on it. But this caused some controversy because some people felt that it's fine for the dealer to remind people that tips are kind of expected, that they're working really for tips here because they get paid a base wage that's minimum wage or very close to minimum wage, and that the only way they can make the living they expected when they signed up to be a dealer is to get tips. And especially because some players are from Europe where there's not much of a tipping culture. So they just don't tip because they don't ever tip anyone in their country. So they were saying that, okay, these dealers have to remind players because there's a lot of people from outside the country and they may not know they're supposed to tip. So that was the argument from those that say it's fine for the dealer to say tips appreciated because they're not demanding a tip, they're just reminding everybody that it would be appreciated to tip them. Then there were those on the other side saying that this is rude and inappropriate, that you're not ever supposed to say tip me in any way, even in an implied fashion. And that was what I said. My response to that tweet, which was reposting this Reddit post, was anyone who demands tips out loud gets 0.0 from me. This is across all industries, not just gambling. And if I get a nasty reaction from a standard tip, I also don't tip that person again. Respect goes two ways. Now, I've never had a poker dealer do this to me. I've had it occur twice at Blackjack in the past. And when that occurred, then I was not going to tip that dealer. And in both cases, when that occurred in Blackjack... I had just started playing and didn't have a chance to tip them yet. But when I got the comments I did, then I I was not going to tip them. So anybody who makes that sort of comment does not get a tip from me. And anyone who just angrily snatches my tip to where I can see that they're pissed off, then I also don't tip them again. Because one thing I just will not do is tip somebody who's going to resent me for tipping them. If you're going to resent me for giving a standard tip, then I'd rather you resent me for giving zero, because then I get to keep all my money. You don't have to get on your knees and thank me every time I tip you, but I I do expect at least you're not going to grab it angrily. And when I tipped poker dealers, I will get a mixed reaction between thank you to an emphatic thank you to, like, just kind of tapping the tip and dropping into their pocket to just nothing, and they just take it. And all of that is acceptable. I'd rather they say thank you or give some sort of acknowledgement. But when I see like a snatching of the tip and angrily putting it in, and you can tell, you can tell when they're kind of pissed, then I'm just not going to do it again. That's what they're accomplishing here. They may think what they're doing is giving me a message to tip more. That's that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to tip zero next time because 
I'm tipping what I, I feel is correct and what most people tip. And just because some people tip above standard, if you're snatching it angrily from me because I'm not doing above standard, then I, I'm just not going to do it at all. And if it's not related to the tip and you're just grabbing it angrily because you're in a bad mood, same thing, because I can't read your mind. Someone else brought up a good point on Twitter in response to this post. They said that for these dealers, they have to understand that some people over-tip, that some don't tip at all, and some tip the expected amount, but it all averages out. And that's part of working this type of job. And you can't freak out because certain people don't tip that well or don't tip at all. Because you're going to get the wide spectrum there and it's all going to kind of break even. While you would like to hope that everybody tips, those that don't, it's not the end of the world because you do have those that are overly generous to kind of make up for them. And you're not looking at what each individual gives. You should really be looking at, am I getting tipped well enough on this job for what I'm doing? And if the answer is yes, then you should be singling out people and getting mad at them. And the most important thing here is that regardless of why you took the job and regardless what your base pay is, the bottom line is tipping is a personal decision. So you should never make demands or implications that people should be tipping you. And as far as the argument, oh, some people don't know they're supposed to, well, they'll see it very quickly. Because even if in their country they don't tip, if they're sitting there and they're not tipping and everybody else is throwing a dollar after every pot, then you'll learn to throw a dollar after when you win a pot. So it's not like it's a big mystery as to what someone is doing at the end of a pot. When you see them throwing that to the dealer and everyone's doing it but you, you would understand what's going on and what the custom is and then you'd start doing it too. So I don't even buy that they, the dealer saying tips appreciated is just trying to remind people who, who may not know. Some people felt that it's fine as long as you're not demanding if you're just making sure people understand that you're really hoping they tip you. But that's just not appropriate. It's rude. Because what you're saying there, by saying tips appreciated, is you're trying to shame people who might not tip you. You're trying to make them feel like assholes. You're trying to make them look like assholes because you say tips appreciated as they're pushing you the pot. This is implying like, hey, you're not tipping me, so I'm just letting you know, and everybody can hear it. Everybody at the table can hear it, that uh, you're not tipping me, and I'd really appreciate it if you started. So that's what tips appreciated really means. And according to this poster, they hadn't tipped because they had just won like two or three pots where they raised pre-flop and everyone folded and the hand was over right away. And they just said, I don't want to tip a dollar here. I'll wait till a, you know, a real hand goes down, or at least there, there's a flop. So I guess the dealer wanted to shame this person and say tips appreciated. So just because they say it in what's outwardly a more polite way, but where the message is clear and the message to all the other players is clear watching this whole thing that they're calling you a cheapskate and trying to shame you into tipping, that person deserves nothing. That's not, that's not the way a service job is supposed to work. A service job is you're supposed to do the service and keep your mouth shut, and people are expected to tip what they should be tipping according to the customs for where, whatever that might be. And if people choose not to, then you just deal with it. And if hardly anyone's tipping, then you can quit. 
but what is never part of the job is trying to shame people into tipping you. That should not be, because tipping is the decision of each patron. And it's just not your place to stay. That's not what tipping is supposed to be about. Tipping is supposed to be something voluntary, not expected. Even if overall you are expecting tip income, from each individual you cannot expect it. Also, they may have reasons for not tipping you, even if you don't realize it. Maybe you've been rude to them. Maybe you've done the job incompetently. Maybe you were rude to them a few days ago and you don't remember. Maybe you were rude to their wife or their husband a few days ago and they pointed you out. You don't know. So, you know, you you shouldn't be shaming these people for not tipping you because there could be many reasons. I also have refrained from tipping dealers that seem to not be trying. Ones that are not paying attention and just making a ton of mistakes or ones that I'm seeing get rude to either me or other players for no reason. And I try to assess when it involves other players whether there is a good reason. So there are players who are complete jerks to dealers, and if the dealers get rude back to them, I I don't hold that against them because some of these players, especially like at Commerce, are awful. So I don't hold that against dealers who talk back to players who are nasty to them. I'm talking about dealers who are unnecessarily nasty to players who haven't done anything, and I've seen that before. And sometimes I won't tip that dealer if I feel they're mistreating players, even if it didn't happen to me. And if it happens to me, then I'm especially not tipping. And I'm not one of these people who believes that just everyone deserves a tip for existing. You're providing a service. You you have to act like a service employee and actually provide the service and, and be at least moderately friendly. When I say moderately, I just mean don't be a jerk and don't act entitled. You don't have to kiss ass or anything or have a big smile on your face, but... Uh, if you, you come off as rude or confrontational, then you don't deserve to be tipped in any industry. And maybe service jobs aren't for you. The truth is some people are really not cut out for service work. So take a job, you'll be behind the scenes and you'll be paid a higher base rate and you won't be getting any tips and that you'll, maybe that type of job is what you're suited for. But some people just think they can show up to these service jobs with a, a sour attitude and be nasty to everybody, and then go, oh, why is nobody tipping me? What assholes? What cheapskates? No, you, you got to earn it. As I said, respect goes two ways. And I, I've told this story before, but I'll, I'll tell it again as one who didn't get a tip. I was playing blackjack. I was playing high-limit blackjack. I, I don't do this anymore because I don't want to get banned everywhere. But this is when uh, I was still taking these chances. I was playing high-limit blackjack, and... I won my biggest hand of all time. The reason it became the biggest hand is I was already betting a uh, fairly high base bet. I was basing uh, $600. Well, it became 600 because the count was high. I was playing blackjack and counting cards. I forgot what it started as, the base bet. Maybe it was uh, 100 or 150 whatever my original bet was. But I was betting 600 and I was doing it on two spots. And then it ended up a seven times bet from all the doubling and splitting I did. And there was some drama in the hand because some of the hands I ended up with weren't very good. In fact, some of them were below 17. So some of them the dealer had to bust to win. And other ones were not very good. Like I had a 17 and 18. So there's a, a very possible way I could lose all seven there. And this was right at the beginning of the session. 
So, fortunately, the dealer busted. And it didn't even go as well as I, I was hoping it would because the dealer had like a five or a six up, but then drew a card to bring it to like 12 or 13. And I go, oh, shit, that's, that, there's a lot of ways I'm going to lose this one. And then the dealer drew a 10 and busted or a nine and busted or something like that. So I won all seven, obviously. So they pushed uh, $4,200 to me. So some other guy at the table, just remember, I just got in there and he's some stranger. And he was not someone who knew me in any way. But he was very impressed by this $4,200 win. And he said, whoa, that's a big win there. I, you, you better tip the dealer big for that one. And before I could say or do anything, the dealer's response was, yeah, he should tip me big for that one, but I have a feeling he's not going to. I think you guys know, after hearing that, what I ended up tipping the dealer. Zero point zero. You can't say that to me. The dealer should keep their mouth shut. The other players can say what they want. That should not affect what I tip the dealer. So I, I'm not penalizing the dealer because some guy is telling me I need to tip big after that. And I hadn't decided what I was okay, going to... All right, now drop. What if the dealer had said, sir, please, there's no no requirement to, to, uh, to tip and told the other guy, thank you, but, you know, we don't want to ever put pressures on players for tipping. Oh, that's fine. Then, then, I would, yeah, then I'd tip them whatever I felt was appropriate. I was thinking bef- before this dealer piped up, as the guy was talking, I was trying to think, okay, what should I tip here? This is the biggest hand I've won in my life in blackjack and, and still is to this day, this $4,200 win. What should I tip here? What What is a tip? that the dealer's not going to feel as insulting. Because again, I, I don't want to give something that they're going to be mad at. Go, what? You just won $4,200? You give me this? So I, I'm trying to think like, what is a, a reasonable tip here to where or at least be somewhat appreciated and yet isn't too high for what the situation is? Because remember, I, I'm betting fairly big here. Remember, even if I just had one hand, it would be 600 bucks. I was actually doing two spots of 600 bucks each because the count was high, and I was already starting with a high base bet. So it's not like this was some fluke hand. It wasn't like I, I was putting a dollar out and won some kind of jackpot. I, I'm, I'm betting big on every hand, so I, I can't just throw huge tips because I happened to win that because I, I also was playing higher than I usually would in blackjack. So the point is here that I was trying to figure out in my mind what I was going to tip but before I could even do it, then the dealer made the comment. Now, had the dealer just told this guy, okay, you know, uh, we, we don't ever suggest tips here. It's always up to the player. That's fine. Then she's correcting the guy who's telling me what to tip. And I, in fact, I think that's better than her saying nothing. But her saying nothing is fine, too. But what I did not like was the, I have a feeling he probably won't, but, but yeah, he should. Or something like, like I, I couldn't believe that. And that she, it wasn't like she had experience with me. I hadn't recognized her from the past. And... She didn't know who I was, and I, sh- I had just gotten there. So I think she thought that making that remark was going to guilt me into tipping. Instead, I gave nothing. And I was going to give something there, and not, not like a dollar. I, I was going to give something, but not after that. Not after predicting I, I, that I there's a good chance I won't. And I, you know, I've had other rude blackjack dealers before that didn't talk about tipping, but but made other obnoxious comments. 
I had one tell me once that I, I, I'm too stressed out. I need to relax when I was frustrated when I lost a big uh, hand. And it wasn't like I did anything extreme. It's like I, not like I pounded the table and yelled obscenities. I just, you know, was a little bit frustrated. So I, I, don't, I don't need to be told to relax after that happens. That I'm looking too stressed. I'm not, I'm not going to them as my shrink. They should keep their mouths closed and keep dealing. So that person I was not going to tip. And it wasn't even saying like out of concern. It wasn't like, oh, hey, you know, I'm a little worried for you. You seem a little bit stressed. It's like, hey, man, you're too stressed. Some dude is like some older dude. It's like, hey, man, you're too stressed. You got to calm down. You got to relax. It's like that t- tone of voice. It was like he thought he was my dad scolding me. So, yeah, you got to earn this. I have another one in blackjack. Uh, this is when I was with MyCon in uh, a small Vegas casino. Wasn't even on the strip. And uh, MyCon kind of like half knew how to count cards. But I, of course, fully knew it. And this dealer, again, an older guy. Looked like he'd been dealing forever. Uh, MyCon makes some comment like, Hey, well, you know, I, I hope you can uh, deal us some winners here. And the guy says, Well... I'll tell you what, you take care of me, I'll take care of you. So I already didn't like how that started. Because I, 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 did, I don't like them saying, like, if you tip me well, I'm going to deal you good cards. Because it's bullshit. They can't deal you good cards. Now, Mikon took this to mean that the guy's going to deal further into the deck, which is advantageous for card counters, which I knew that's not what he meant. In fact, they actually had a point that was marked that they have to stop dealing. So I knew this was bullshit. But Mikon took, like, the most optimistic interpretation of it so Mikon starts tipping like every hand like way too much like if, if you were to play at that pace and just keep tipping that much compared to his base bet uh, you would actually be negative expectation even if you're card counting perfectly so I wasn't doing that now I wasn't tipping zero but I was tipping much less than him so the problem was he had established that he's the big tipper here and that, that was kind of the cheapskate so this guy took an immediate dislike to me that I wasn't tipping as much as my buddy there. So what happened? This guy started to get more and more nasty with me as the session was going. And as he was getting nastier, I was tipping him less and less. And then I just stopped tipping him at all. And then the guy was enough of an asshole that he started rooting against me. He was rooting for Mikon to win and rooting against me winning. And he was verbalizing why. He was saying things like, well, one of, one of you two knows how to get the good cards here and the other one doesn't. He, it was very clear that he was rooting against me because I, I wasn't tipping him anymore. In the meantime, Mikon is raising his tips then. And when we walked out, I said, what, are you, what were you doing there? Why were you giving this guy what he wanted? Why were you giving him more money for being rude? And Mikon said, well, no, I thought he was trying to tell us to tip more so he'll deal further in the deck. I said, but he didn't. He said, well, that's what I thought he was doing. I go, no, it's so obvious that he wasn't doing that. It was so obvious that he was just trying to play on superstition. Like, hey, you tip me well and I'll deal you great cards. That's what he was trying to say. Says whenever somebody's rude to you like that, you just you don't give them what they want. You you do the opposite. 
There's one other instance long time ago. Uh, there were a bunch of guys playing, and uh, I kind of loosely knew them through poker. And we were playing, uh, I think, at a $100 minimum table. And I was counting, and uh, they weren't. And it was one of these situations where even with me counting, it was positive EV for the casino to keep all of us there. Because they were just flat betting, and they also weren't very good, these these other guys. They weren't friends with me, but I knew them for poker, and it looked like we were all together. Because they recognized me, and, and you know, we were all talking, so it looked like we were all buddies, even though we weren't. Or they were buddies, but I, I wasn't with them, but it kind of looked like I was, and I kind of showed up when they did. So it really looked to the dealer like we were all friends. Anyway, the dealer was just a complete dick to everybody. Like, actually more of a dick to them than to me, but he was a dick to everybody, including me. And he was barking all these demands, and uh, if you slightly put the the chips, like, a tiny bit out of the circle, and I don't mean, like, out of the circle, I mean, like, a tiny bit off the border, he'd bark at you, like, they're supposed to be in there, push it in there, you you know, you, well, you know what they're going to do to me if the, the if I'm allowing bets like this, they, instead of just politely saying, hey, you know, can you push this in a little bit, they're, they're very particular, he starts barking at you and yelling at you, he was just a complete dickhead the entire time, and... The other guys were young guys. They were kind of afraid to say anything. And as I said, we're playing high limits. We're, we're playing black chip games, which is $100 each chip. So I, I took this for about five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, something relatively short time, but enough for him to establish himself that he was a, a dickhead. I think it was about 10 minutes. It was, it was enough time to where he wasn't getting any better. And so finally I said to him, you know what? I've had enough of this. We're playing for a lot of money here, and you've just been a complete jerk to us the entire way when we haven't done anything wrong. We're, we're, we're just trying to play blackjack here. We're not doing anything that deserves this type of treatment. And for some reason, you've been very nasty to everybody here. So I'm going to give you two choices. You can either change your attitude, keep your mouth shut, and just deal us cards, or I'm going to stop this whole thing. I'm going to call it the pit boss. I'm going to tell him that we're all leaving and we're never going to give action to this casino again and it's because of you. So, which one would you like? And he put his head down and just started dealing and didn't say another word to us the rest of the time. So he knew it. He, he knew he was being a jerk. And I, I, think, I think it's because the other guys were young and I wasn't that old because this was many years ago. So I think because everybody was a lot younger than he was, especially those other guys, he kind of just felt like he could be an asshole. And then when someone stood up to him and he knew he could get in trouble, he uh, quickly changed. He didn't ever say sorry, but he, he didn't say another word the rest of the time. Whereas before, every second he's scolding us for something. And in a nasty tone of voice. So, not only was I going to tip him, I, I was serious. I was really about to stop the game and call the pit boss over and uh, complain. So the bottom line is, you should treat service employees with respect. You shouldn't... Uh, be rude to them. You shouldn't yell at them. You definitely should not get mad at them because you're having bad luck gambling. That's the nature of gambling. If you can't take it, then don't gamble. But at the same time, they should treat you with respect. And they're not automatically owed a tip simply for showing up. And if they're rude or they're not doing their job, then they shouldn't get tipped. If they're telling you to tip them, they shouldn't get tipped. 
And at the same time, you should recognize that they are partially working for tips and not just tip zero because you're feeling cheap. So it's a two-way street. But some people don't see it as a two-way street. Some people see it as a one-way street that thou shalt always tip no matter what happens. And I've never believed that. I am uh, looking right now east and I am seeing the sunrise, though it has not risen yet. I'm seeing out in the east it has. I see color in the sky. Trader Risky, can you see any sign of the sunrise where you are? I'm not near any windows. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm by a big window because I'm in a hotel room. Oh, where are you at? I, I'm in Vegas. Oh, so did you talk about the gas thing? I did not. That's an interesting story. I, I guess we'll throw that in as a final bonus topic. This show went a lot later than I expected. I'm going to have a hard time waking up for this uh, Super Bowl party today. But, uh, yeah, there's apparently a, a gas pipeline breakage between uh, California and southern Nevada. And a state of emergency has been declared by Nevada Governor Lombardo, who's the new governor here. And I was trying to ascertain from the story, maybe you can tell me if you've seen more than I have, whether this is any kind of danger or if it's more of just they're not going to get gas here. So what is the situation with this uh, pipeline broken? What do you know about it? No, I heard it was just broken. Not that uh, there was any, you know, issue for terrorism or whatever else. But yeah, that's all I heard. I remember there was a... uh, natural gas leak down Tropicana Boulevard, right around where uh, McCarran, now uh, Harry Reid Airport is. And that apparently it was much worse than understood at the time. And there really was a huge danger that if any spark had happened from a car driving by, it would have created a tremendous explosion all the way down Tropicana, for where this leak was, because like a lot of gas had leaked. And there would have been just like a, a gigantic explosion that would have killed a lot of people. But they detected it in time to close Tropicana and then fix the leak, and there was no explosion. But it easily could have happened. You know how cars are. They can make sparks all the time. So it was, it was fortunate that this didn't occur. And nobody remembers it because nothing ended up happening. It was one of those things that was a potential disaster that they just got lucky that didn't become one. This was, I think, late 2000s. It was while I was living in Vegas, and I drove down Tropicana over there all the time. So I was like, oh, shit, that could have been me on the road there. Who would expect that? You're just driving down the road, and like a fireball comes and engulfs your car and kills you. But that, that really would have happened to people had they not caught that gas leak in time that a lot more had leaked than they thought so it was very very dangerous and who knows it could have even affected the airport because it's right on the border of the airport I guess before we go this won't be very interesting in the archives but Traderuski who do you think will win the Super Bowl today oh god I've been going back and forth I started liking Philly then I like KC. I think I still like KC. Yeah, I'm I'm leaning that um, way too, but I don't think I'm going to bet either side on that. Uh, I'm I'm really 
starting to think I might bet the over, which feels very much like a ploppy bet. These ploppies love over bets, but you know sometimes that's the right side, even if the ploppies like it. Uh, as far as the line, it's been fluctuating between like 49 and 51 for the total. So you're really not getting any clues for what the books are doing. Sometimes the books will move the line, and you can tell by the way they're moving it, especially if the action is not corresponding to how they're moving it. You can see how the books believe it's really going to go. You can't see that with this one because it's jumping up and down, up and down, up and down. So you don't get any clues there. But I believe it's more likely than not that this is going to be a higher-scoring game. So I am considering placing a wager on the over, and I'm looking at some props. But I, I'm not the expert on props. I just get them from other people. So I, I can't really explain the props because that's really not my area of expertise. And we'll see. i got to bet on something. I mean, I'm going to a Super Bowl party and be watching it, and I don't really have a reason to root for either side. I mean, I don't have any feelings either way about Kansas City or Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm with you. I just want it to be a good game. I'll probably put a couple buckets on something, but yeah, I mean, it's it should be good. I mean, who knows? Yeah, this is the you know, first... A lot of, I mean, all the hype was, you know, first it was like Philly and everybody was on Philly. Now all the talks about like, oh, Philly hasn't played and everybody that they've played, there's been like the points of the season where they played them where the quarterback was out or they weren't doing well or whatever. You know, so it's like, I, I just saw too much of that yesterday, which then has me leaning back to Philly. Yeah, um, I had thought this that Philadelphia was starting to decline towards the end of the season, and not even just because of the issue with Jalen Hurts, but it just, I, I started to see them not winning in very dominant fashion, even when they were winning, or they were barely getting by fail teams. So even though they get the W, it wasn't that convincing, whereas earlier they were just crushing everybody. So I saw them as a team that was starting to not look as impressive as the season went on. And I saw other teams, like the 49ers, that seemed to only be getting stronger. So I really thought the Eagles were going to have some kind of disappointing playoff loss that people weren't expecting. And that didn't happen. I, that that was a incorrect prediction on my part. And here they are in the Super Bowl. And Kansas City, yeah, they looked good. I, you know, That was a team that I thought was a good chance would be there. So now that Philadelphia is there and has defied my uh, skepticism, it, it's very hard to say. And, that's, and they're very close in, in the line here. So it, it's almost a toss-up even by that. I, I don't know. Yeah, well, all, all the 49er fans, oh, well, they played. They didn't play our quarterback. Yeah, because they knocked him the fuck out. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I just think that that D looks good. The offensive line's tough. Sometimes that's the difference in these games, you know? Yeah, and it's just one game, and it, it can be very hard to tell sometimes with uh, who just shows up playing better than others. 
So there's a lot of unpredictability. And of course, on something like this, you're not going to ever get a soft line. This is something that's very, very closely studied by the books when they set these lines. So you're not going to find it very often where it's a, a misset line where they just set it stupidly. There's just so much focus on this game, more than any game in any sport for the entire year. So you're, you're, yeah. you're not, you're not going to outsmart the books on this. I mean, one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. But either way, it's a line that was very well set. And even if the result doesn't go close to the line, that still doesn't mean you were a genius and, and, and saw the correct uh, result. It just means that uh, you were either happened to luck into the, being the winning side or you, or you did make a bet that was good, but it's only so good it could be. Or as is said, you're, you shouldn't be trying to get rich on the, the Super Bowl. Yep, I will put it on tape that Vintage One says that Casey will blow them out. Oh, interesting. we got to have a Vintage One back on the show sometime. I know he was yeah. co-hosting for a while when the, everything was shut down. And then uh, he had to go back to his busy job there on the shows he works on, and that was the uh, the end of him as, as a co-host here, which I knew would happen. But yeah, it's been a while. But okay, I'll, I'll keep that in mind that, that Vintage One is uh, on Kansas City, but I, I really think I, I'm not going to bet on the side of this game. That's been my feeling pretty much since I saw which teams made it, and that's still how I'm feeling right now. I, I, I may... I don't know when the sports... the physical sports book here opens... If it does open at 6, I might go down and place some bets right after the show's over. Where are you staying, Jeff? Uh, it's a secret location. I, I, I can't ever reveal okay. it. I, I can tell you privately, but it's, uh, for, for, for the lovely audience here, it's always a secret location. I understand. Did you talk about that thing that happened at the Rio? What thing happened at the Rio? I guess they didn't. Well, a guy walked in with the AR-47, went to the bathroom, and offed himself. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Yeah, he didn't mm. kill anybody else, but he, uh, yeah, but walked in with an AR-47 bathroom, and then, uh, yeah. They didn't see him? <laughs> he walked in with that? Well, that's, what, I mean, I think that was the discussion. How did they let him kind of walk in with that, you know? Thank God he didn't kill anybody else, but he certainly could have. Well, yeah, I mean, like, if something like that happened at the World Series of someone who wanted to murder first before they killed themselves, that could be really, really horrible. Yeah. And fortunately, this person at least wasn't looking to cause any harm to any other people. He just wanted to end himself. I don't know why he needed to do it in the Rio. That's a little bit weird. That's strange. Well, why not just do it at home, like... Maybe he wanted to be on the news or something, but at least at least he didn't go in there with the intention to hurt anybody else. Clearly, he went somewhere he could just do it in private there and not be interfered with. And it does bring up the question of why they didn't see him. Yeah. By the way, this hotel room I got, um, everything was fine, and they did hold the room I was asking for. So all, all that was good. It did have one problem. This just a problem that's so tilting it's when the sink doesn't drain well don't you hate that when like you you you, open, you turn on the sink and it just uh it takes so long for the water to go down 
and then you're brushing your teeth, and all the water just gets stuck there that you just spit out. Oh, yeah. It's just, I, yeah, I hate that. I, I absolutely hate that. I, and then you have to go call maintenance, and then they got to clear it. So I had to do that here. And and I don't like them in the room when I'm not here. So I've got to find a period of time that I'm going to consistently be here for, like, at least an hour. And then call them to come up. And to their credit, they came up pretty quickly and fixed the problem. But, like, I got here on, on uh, Friday morning, very early Friday morning. And I, I didn't get around to doing it until just before radio. So I, I did have some time with that uh, frustrating situation with the sink. It's just so bothersome. When there's two sinks in the room, it's fine. I just move over to the other sink. But this room only has one sink. But, okay, one sink. So that narrows down. Oh, now it's not the, it's not the Rio, because the Rio has two sinks. I'll tell you guys that. Sure. <laughs> and I'm not in a suite. I'm just in a regular room. Which is fine. Yeah, I don't need a suite when I'm by myself. Uh, I, I don't want to give too many hints here, but yeah, there is one sink, <laughs> and everything else in the room is okay, though. I always say the room you want to have is the room I just checked out of, especially if I've been there for several days. Then you know everything works fine, because anything that is bothersome, I will always get fixed if I'm there multiple days. But it makes me wonder, like, how long this goes before they fix it. And the guy who fixed it, he said that the drain was pretty clogged. It wasn't just like pulling up the stopper. He had to snake the thing way down to clear it. So this must have been this way in this room for a long-ass time. And just nobody complains and just deals with it. I've seen some weird things in rooms that I'm surprised people deal with. Like on a cruise ship, one of them had a broken thermostat to where it was just always freezing in there. And I'm thinking, well, unless this just happened, like, is every guest spending a week in here just freezing their asses off? Like, how long has it gone that this thing is stuck on the lowest setting? And when I say stuck, like, you could change it, but it would just always act as if it was on the lowest setting and freeze the room. It's like, that's a very weird thing. And then the same room had this weird thing where the toilet lid wouldn't stay up, so it just comes slamming down. And I'm going, well, how does any male pee in the room without peeing on the seat? If it's doing that. And again, like, how long has this been the case? Uh, sometimes I'll be in these rooms and I'll wonder, like, how long is this the case? And and one time at the Rio, it had the moldiest shower curtain you've ever seen. It was so gross. So I'm about to take a shower and the, the, the curtain is just, it has black mold on it. So I, I can't believe this. This is a new low here. So I, I called up and I told them there's a moldy shower curtain and they need to replace it. So they said, okay, we'll send one up. So they send up a runner with a shower curtain. And the guy comes in and he immediately has an attitude. He's like, here's your shower curtain. Uh, you know, they say, you have mold on it, so here's a new one. The guy's kind of a dick. And then he goes in to replace it and he goes, oh, wow, this thing really is moldy. Wow, this is pretty bad. Wow, no wonder you called. So his attitude immediately changed as soon as he saw that it was like so bad. So he, he thought I was just being like a neat freak and unnecessarily demanding the change of the shower curtain was frustrated until he saw it and then like his tone immediately changed when he saw how bad it was but i wonder like how long people were using that shower and just staring at the black mold there and saying nothing but i think people they just don't want to say anything i think they just they either don't want to waste the time to call and wait for them to come fix it but a lot of people don't even care if they come in the room when they're gone i'm just very big on, on not ever letting anyone in the room if i'm not here 
But I know most people aren't like that. How do you feel about that? Like, do you does it bother you if they come in when you're not there? No, I don't let anybody come in my room. Um, you know, I'll kick the maid twenty bucks when I get there, just to make sure she's. Ma- I'm priority for everything. If I need towels, have her come in, deal with uh, whatever I need. So, oh, yeah, I, I just I do tip her at the beginning. But then you you are you there when she comes in to clean? Yeah, if I need cleaning, but I normally don't even have her clean because I don't I don't need cleaning. Yeah, I see. I don't either, unless I'm there a long time. And when I say a long time, I if I'm by myself, it's got to be more than five days. If I'm with right. the family, it'll be less than that because more people makes more of a mess, especially when you have kids there. But if it's just me, there really isn't that much of a mess made. So, right. like, I, I if it's going to be less than five days, I don't even bother to have them. And I'll just get towels off the cart if they need replacing. Exactly. And give her the old ones. Yeah, and there's some people who are obsessed with, with getting maid service every day. Some people say, oh, that's a luxury I love having in a hotel that just every day they're cleaning and every day they're making the bed. And I go, I don't need this shit. I, <laughs> I, I only need cleaning if something gets dirty. That's how I feel. I don't, I don't need everything done like this. I just find it as a burden. I feel like, like another person's coming in the room I, I don't want here. So I just exactly. diff- different uh, perspectives. I, I'm, I'm glad you see this the way I do, though. I, I, I had a feeling you were just going to say, no, no, I like them coming in, I don't care, but okay, it looks like you feel the way I do about this. Oh, hell no. Listen, if not, I don't want to worry, something's missing, Yeah, you know, no one's in there that I don't need to worry about shit. Right, that's my attitude, too, is that if, if they're not supposed to come in here, if anything does go missing, then they can look what key was used to get in, then that person has to explain why they were here, and it's a lot harder for them to steal than if they're supposed to be in here and then I say something's missing and they just say, well, no, I don't know what happened. I didn't take anything. And then I'm stuck. But if they're not supposed to have come, then it's a lot tougher for them to explain. So if they're, if they're going to come in, then the, I want to be here. And for maintenance issues, it can be a pain in the ass. And that'll happen sometimes where they'll say, oh, well, we'll send them up. If you're not here, they can come in. I go, no, 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 I don't want that. I, I want them set up when I am here for, for them to come in. I guess everybody's different about these things, but and I've never had it where things have been stolen from me, but that's because I'm cautious about it. And, it, you know, it's not even just about theft. It's also about rearranging things. I just hate when they move things around to clean and maybe something falls and then I miss it and end up, it gets lost. I just like to know everything is exactly where I left it. Because I actually keep a pretty good mental picture of, of everything in the room of where I left things. And then when people move yeah. it around and screw it up, then, then I have trouble finding things. It, it's just all unnecessary. But I, I tell some people this, and they think I'm crazy. They, they, they just think I'm nuts, and why don't I just let the maid come in and the maintenance man come in like a normal person, whether I'm here or not. And I go, because it bothers me. It makes me worry what's going on when I'm not there to supervise the whole thing. So that's the way I see it. And I'm also very big on having a quiet room. I always put a lot of effort into getting something that is just in a location that I'm going to be able to sleep, especially because I do a lot of sleeping during the day, such as like what I'm about to do right now. And I don't want to be where it's going to be noisy. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into all these things. So my 
Yeah, that's why I was surprised it was a show draft. I looked last, I thought I'd looked last night, and I didn't see anything. No, I just decided I, on a spur of a moment to do it. I, I You know why? Is because oh, okay. So I've got this Super Bowl party today, so I'm not going to have time to do the show today. I'm not going to have time to edit the show today either. And then uh, I have something to do on Monday. So I'm thinking, well, when am I going to do this shit? Like on Tuesday or Wednesday? And, and it's just like... I was also thinking that since I, I'm going to be gone these days, that I don't want to come right home and then tell the family, well, okay, now I'm going to go do radio, so goodbye. Like, I'm physically there, but they, they really have no access to me for all those hours, so I just, you know what, it's it's just better if I do it here on this night, and I didn't really have much going on, so I said, all right. I, I could have gone down and played poker, but I already did plenty of that the day before, so... Uh, I, I will say that the the Vegas poker scene it, it's uh, it is a lot more pleasant than in LA. the The LA uh, poker scene there, there's a lot of angry people and uh, a lot of rudeness to dealers, a lot of shenanigans. Like I, I had something that pissed me off at Commerce, and I'll say this and I'll shut this thing down. But I'll tell you what pissed me off at Commerce, and I, I kind of regret that I didn't make a bigger deal out of this. I just didn't really have the energy to do it. I just wasn't that... I, I don't know. I, there, there's some moments I, I feel more confrontational than others, and this one I was just kind of uh, not really in the mood to get into it. But I was waiting to get into a game from another game. I was trying to move up limits because I couldn't get into the limit I wanted to when I showed up because it was full. So they call me over there, and I go to the table, and there is someone who is sitting in the seat that was assigned to me that wasn't in the game before. So it wasn't someone who moved over to the seat. It was a new player who was now sitting in my seat and about to take a hand. Hadn't taken one yet, but, but had his chips and was about to take a hand. And it even had my initials there on a paper right there, so I said, oh, th- this is supposed to be my seat. So he goes, what? It is? And it was like a regular who isn't a major fish, but is kind of an action player who they like to have there. They'd much rather prefer him than me. The other players were insisting to me that I was wrong. The other players were telling me that it's his seat, that I was mistakenly called, that uh, this is his seat, he's in the right place, that I'll be next. And I said, no, I heard them call me. Oh, no, 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 it was wrong, though. It's, it's his seat, actually. And I look on the board. I go, no, he's not even on the board anywhere. I said, look, I'm first up. They just called me. Where is he? He's not even here. It's not like I'm second and he's first. He, there, there is no, he's not anywhere. He's not even fourth. He's not anywhere. So how is it his seat? And they kept saying, no, 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 it's his seat. We're telling you it's his seat. And they're, they're all insisting it's his seat. Even some people I wouldn't have expected to take this line. So then I like what what is this here? And he's about to post his blind and I go, Where's the floor man? Where's the so finally I get the floor man, who's not always accessible because they don't have that many floor men working anymore. And I, I he happens to be nearby, so I get him. I go, what is it? Why are they saying that this isn't my seat? And he goes, Ah, no, it's your seat. Hang on. And he walks over and he goes and he, he, he told the other guy to leave and said, Come on, it's his seat, let him sit there. So credit to the floor man for clearing this up. But the players there really tried to pull this shenanigan to s- sneak in a player to my seat because they re- would rather have him in the game. 
because he's like a, a loose, wild player they wanted there. But the whole table like colluded to do this. That's what was outrageous. And as is, including some people who are normally very friendly and nice when I see them there, it's not even like it was a bunch of people who hated me. They were just so selfish there. Well, Trump, they want the fish there instead of you, of course, though. Which, yeah, but, uh, which floor man was it that uh, did the right thing? I, it was someone new I hadn't seen before. But, uh, yeah, I, they were, and they sounded very convincing. They were insisting very, very uh, confidently, all of them, that this was his seat and that I was next after him. And I just couldn't make logical sense of it. So then they were kind of laughing as if this was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. They were, the guy had chips. They were about to let him post the blind. And they're, and they're all telling, they're really trying to convince me. And then they're all kind of laughing afterwards. And I, I was like right on the border of just really going off on everybody and saying, I don't appreciate this. And, and this is not right. And I just decided to not say anything. And uh, I, I did make one snide comment about an hour later when, Someone was uh, saying something like, "Oh, well, we've we've tried to tell this guy such and such, and, and he didn't want to believe me." I said, "Yeah, well, you all tried to tell me that this wasn't my seat when when it really was. So how can anyone take your word?" And then they all just kind of sat there and didn't say anything. But that was the most I had said about it. It was like an hour later. And how was the session? Uh, yeah, well, I, they should have been happy to have me there because I lost. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that uh, I, I ended up giving them what the the guy they wanted they would have given them. I just... You know what my problem was that session? I got so many pocket pairs and I got like no sets. And then the very final hand I played before I committed to leave and did leave, the very final hand I had pocket nines and the flop was like ace, nine, eight and I got no action. Even though there's like decent action pre-flop where you would have expected an ace there. Instead it was like the... Uh, Check, fold, fold, one call on the flop for one bet, and then they f- check folded the turn. That was the one so set I flopped. Like everything else was, uh, I got so many pocket pairs, and a lot of times I ended up stuck in for four bets, and then the flop would be awful, and I had to fold. And so I had so many hands like that, it just ate me down. I know you're only supposed to flop a set one out of her seven times, but I got it way more pocket pairs than seven like I, I i can't even tell it was a very long session so i got a ton of pocket pairs like more than usual and then just no sets that's not good though i'll tell you the poker i played yesterday i had a lot of times i won hands i didn't expect to win we're like against two players i have like bottom pair and i just can't see how it's good and somehow it is and so i had, I had a number of hands like that so that, that went a lot better so I, I i did well in poker here so at least it made up for the the bad session there which started off with them trying to steal my seat but the, the point i'm raising here is that like it's just so shitty like the entire table to not only sneak the guy in but then to argue and argue with me like i'm the one who's wrong and it, it's just kind of the whole vibe there in la the, yeah i've had issues that have happened over the years in vegas like a, a kind of similar one was when they 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 made the game 10 handed instead of nine to accommodate a fish and I waited hours and hours as first up and couldn't get in because nobody was leaving. And then finally someone left and it was time for me to join. So they called me in and I go to sit there and they go, oh no, you can't sit. 
we're converting it back to nine-handed. And I said, wait a minute, you can't just do that. And they said, oh, no, we can. We, we made it ten-handed temporarily. Now we're making it back to nine. So you have to wait till somebody else leaves. And I said, I've waited hours to get in this game. At first up, I'm not... Uh, no. So we called the floor man over, and the floor man actually sided with me and said that they can't convert it back to nine until uh, either the person who's next agrees or until there's uh, no board. So they were unhappy with that. One player out of the out of the players at the table took my side. Everybody else was insisting that they're going to nine-handed. One, because they preferred nine-handed, and two, because they didn't feel I was adding to the game anything, which I wasn't. I mean, I, I realize that I'm not the player they're hoping to get there, but still, it's... Uh, kind of shitty. But the, what, what happened in commerce is much worse, because here it was really my seat. There's no question, and they tried to sneak somebody else in. So Always angling. Always angling in L.A. Got to watch out. Well... Yeah, and they all get off the freeway, there's traffic, and he walks in with a bad mood. So. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's just pissed off there all the time. There's just a lot of anger constantly that's that's just part of it and like the angling kind of comes with it so you, you gotta you gotta watch out there i i, I gotta doubt everything that's that's being said it is amazing though those games are great sometimes like these people that look like they should be homeless pull out these wads of caches have no fucking clue what to do it's just i mean it's much better than the 90s obviously but um yeah but you know i'm sure there's still spots yeah. It's a very nice view outside right now with the clouds, with the uh, it's kind of like these pink clouds and orange clouds. A very nice sunrise here. The sun still hasn't actually risen above the mountains here, but it's, it's getting close. So I, I got to go to sleep. It's it's well after I, I said I was going to do this show. Okay, Jeff. We'll have a good Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, we'll do it next week. Yeah, you too. I'll talk to you later, Traderski. Thanks, brother. Talk to you later. Thanks. I did not mean to stay up this late. Well, I'm going to be kind of tired today during the Super Bowl. I don't know how much sleep I'm going to get. I mean, the party goes all day, so I don't have to show up right at the beginning. But I don't want to show up there like right as the game starts. There's other stuff people are doing, so... I don't know. I, I I thought I'd get on radio and maybe go four or five hours and still get a normal sleep, but you know how it goes with this show. I, I start the thing and I, I just keep talking. So when's the next show? That's a good question. It's pretty much whenever I feel like doing it. I'd like to say I'll do one a week from now, but I'm not sure. I won't be going anywhere. Like this this is where I've planned to go for the foreseeable future. So I will be back in my normal location very, very soon. In fact, by the time you listen to this in the archives, I will be back. But 
I don't know. It's when I, I feel that it's time to do a new one. And I have a feeling we'll have fewer Twitter poker girl drama stories next week. We've had a lot of that in 2023. I'm not sure why. I'm not trying to find these stories. They kind of find me. But, you know, an argument about polyamory in the poker world, I, I, I have to talk about that. You know how it goes. All right. Talk to you next week or next two weeks, whatever it might be. Shalom.